Welcome to the second installment of the Director Dossier's podcast, where each episode we chronologically break down and discuss each movie in a director's filmography. My name is Johnny Cruz. And I'm Danny Barker. And today we'll be opening the dossier on Paul Thomas Anderson. If you'd like to see more of these retrospectives, you can like and subscribe on YouTube and also comment down below who you would like to see us do next. Not sexually. (laughs) (laughs) You can also listen to this episode on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for watching and thank you to everyone who watched our Stanley Kubrick episode. We hope you enjoy this one too. All right. The Early Life of Paul Thomas Anderson. He was born on June 26, 1970 in Studio City, L.A., also my birthday. His mother... You were had, your birthday? You were born in 1970? No, 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 no. June 26, same as uh, Derek Jeter. Oh, so you copied him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to be like other people at mm-hmm. this point. His mother, Edwina, was an actress, and his father, Ernie, worked in radio and TV. Paul was the seventh of nine children. So his dad was very interesting, Ernie Anderson. So he was a booth announcer at ABC, and he was known as like the voice of a- a- ABC. He would be the guy on TV at night. Like, now you're watching the Carol Burnett show, oh, like wow. that kind of thing. And he was kind of, that was like what he was most known for doing. But he was also in Ohio, Cleveland. He th- it was like a, it was like a mystery science theater. Remember that, where people would watch a shitty movie and there, these puppets would be in the crowd. And they'd be like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. He did that, but it was for like bad horror movies on TV. And he, he went by Goulardi. He had this whole getup. Mm. And he'd go, this movie sucks. I don't know if he said that. But yeah, yeah, but he, yeah. Was, he was commenting on it and making yeah, he was like doing, commentary? He was doing, not like DVD. It was on TV. Oh, okay. It would okay. be like a live. Yeah. I don't know if it was live, but it would be for, it was like a kid's thing. He did that in the 60s. Um, but he, it says he was, the, he was one of nine children, Paul Thomas Anderson. He, his dad already had five kids by the time he remarried, and then he had, I think, no, he had four kids already, and then he met Paul's mom, and then had another five kids, and he was the seventh of nine kids. Wow. And also, uh, so what the story was with Ernie Anderson, I'm just spending so much time on him because he's actually a very interesting guy, and I heard one of the funniest stories I've ever heard from Paul Thomas Anderson talking about his dad. So Anderson's dad was friends with Tim Conway, who is an actor, comedian type guy, and he moved out to Los Angeles to get work, and he ended up being on the Carol Burnett show. I will, I will say Carol Burnett properly at least once mm-hmm. during this podcast. And he goes, at, he goes to Ernie and goes, hey, there's tons of work out here. You got to come out here. Ernie wasn't a very good actor, and he didn't get any work, but as like a courtesy, he ended up getting a booth announcer job on the Carol Burnett, Burnett show. Dang it. And... But they were best friends, and Paul grew up around Tim Conway. There was a funny story that Paul told, where Tim Conway and his dad were drunk one night, and what they did is they—it was like when Polaroids first started to come out—and what they did is they took Tim Conway and they wrapped him in toilet paper, and then they took a picture and then pasted the picture on his driver's license. And then went out and drunk drove until they got pulled over, <laughs> just so when the cop would say "off oh, license and register," they would give him the license, and he'd be wearing the, the toilet paper. And the cop would look at the license; he'd be like, "What?" Just so they can like make the guy laugh or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Guess before drunk but driving was illegal." Oh, he was actually drunk. Yeah, they were hammered. <laughs> and he would go out dressed as a mummy, and then they would try to get pulled over. <laughs> Imagine they were doing that today. Oh, that, well, that was, I, I don't know when drunk driving was made illegal, but it might have been after that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's what oh, did it was it. after it was. Legal? It was no, it might have been after they did that, uh, yeah, which makes yeah, sense because yeah. why would you go out and purposely drunk drive if yeah. it wasn't illegal? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> purposely just risk your life for the yeah. stupidest bit ever. Yeah, or the best ever. They were ahead of their time. If TikTok existed back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, that would be a TikTok oh God. challenge. Just the mummy driving drunk yeah. challenge. So growing up, Anderson always borrowed his older brother's 8mm camera to make short movies until one day his father brought home a video camera. Yeah, he was always making movies from around the house. And he, was, he wasn't doing it as, I'm going to be a filmmaker one day. He was just doing it for fun. Which I guess if you're entrenched in the life of, yeah, sort of he's he was so he sort of grew up around TV and was always in booths with his dad, you know, recording stuff, and then the video camera came, and that was that wasn't the video camera like a digital one. It still had the videotape, but it was the one where you had the pack that you had to carry and stuff. But the thing about it was that it was much cheaper than shooting on eight millimeter film, so he can basically shoot however much he wanted. And he said his dad brought that home, and he goes. I saw that, and I said, that is mine. Nobody else is going to use that. Mm -hmm. And then he ended up, I don't know if it was the same camera, but he ended up shooting the Dirk Diggler story. With that? With not, I don't know, with that particular camera, but on videotape. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. What what time was that about? What year? Oh, his dad know? probably brought How home that video he? camera, like around 81, 82, early 80s. He was like 10, 12. Oh, okay. So he and then Dirk Diggler, he was early. 17, so that was like 87, 88. Mm -hmm. So he was already putting things together pretty early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like every, like, every director around that time started out making 8mm movies. Similarly to Stanley Kubrick, Anderson didn't get good grades in high school and struggles to get into college. However, he spent a year studying literature at Emerson College in Boston. Yeah, he talked about how his grades sucked, and he couldn't. He was like, oh, I should get into USC or NYU film school, and he couldn't because his grades were bad. He got into Emerson College and studied literature for his, his professor— was David Foster Wallace. Do you know who that is? No. He was this author who, I, uh, from how I know, he wrote like a couple books, but he was he's known as like a legendary author because one of the books he did was called Infinite Jest, and it's like this 1,300-page book with all these footnotes, and it's notoriously hard to finish because it's just so laborious to read. Mm -hmm. And at, at what point is that just not a good book? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't, I, yeah, I don't know much about. I don't want to speak it. out of term because I don't know much about him. I yeah, saw a Charlie Rose interview. Have you, have you read that book or no? No. Oh. I have a sixth grade reading level. Why do you <laughs> think I read that book? <laughs> yeah, I can tell by the. Um, but <laughs> but his that's that was kind of a big deal. His his professor being David Foster Wallace, and that was around the time I guess he was sort of popular, or maybe just before. But he talks about how he was a very he was like the first teacher that he really liked because there was one time. It was the night before uh, uh, a essay was due, mm. and he called him at like midnight, and was I can't fi uh, I just need help with uh, you know I want to add some more meat onto this thing I'm not sure, and David Foster Wallace was all right let's <laughs> and then he helped him and it was clear that he he did a did paper on white noise by Don DeLillo, and he was very generous and so, mm -hmm. but it was clear that he wasn't actually working on it. No, he was. He oh, just kind of okay. just... waited till he panicked the last minute. Going, mm -hmm. is there? Did I put enough into this? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he he talked about how he loved being like he loved being at Emerson studying with David Foster Wallace because he went to NYU. Fine, he got into NYU, and he was there for three days. And the the story that he told famously on Charlie Rose was he walked in the first day, and the professor said, "All right, if you're here to write Terminator Two, then leave now, you dumb idiot." I added that part. He yeah, didn't say yeah, that. yeah. And for dramatization. Yes. And Anderson goes, well, that's terrible. What if there's a kid there who wants to write Terminator 2? Like, that's what he likes. Let him do it. Yeah. But the professor was basically saying, we write films here. We write The English Patient. I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah. And then he, he talked about how the first assignment was to write a page of script action without any dialogue that revealed the character trait. And Paul Thomas Harrison was talking about, I think his mom got him the script somehow for D- uh, David Mamet's Hoffa movie. And he, there was a page where Danny DeVito's character, or I think Danny DeVito's character, is driving along, and he puts a lit cigarette in between his fingies, so that it, <laughs> his fingies, <laughs> yeah, so that so that it, 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 when it burns all the way through, it wakes him up, he doesn't yeah, fall yeah. asleep at the wheel. And Anderson was, that's perfect. I'll write that. And he puts that. He sent that in as his project, and he got a C plus. So David Mamet, who's like a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, got a C plus in that class. Mm-hmm. And that's when Anderson decided, I'm out of here, pal. Yeah. It's pretty ironic that Professor would probably have loved some of Paul Thomas Anderson's films. And now that Professor is like, I taught Paul Thomas Anderson. I taught him everything he needs to know. Remember that shot in There Will Be Blood with the oil derrick? That's the coolest thing ever? My idea. My idea, yeah. So he left because he wanted to be back at Boston. I don't don't think he went back to Boston. I think he just went back to L.A. and started working as a production assistant. The Dirk Diggler Story, 1988. The genesis of the Dirk Diggler Story came out of Anderson's fascination with the porn industry that existed in the periphery of his life growing up in Studio City. He always talked about how he would go to, he, there was a story he would go to his grandma's house, and one time he saw these really nice cars pull up and these really hot girls go into this one house across the street, and he would look at porn growing up trying to find like the front window of the house <laughs> in there. He goes, I think I found it a few times. Maybe I was just tricking myself. And then he talked about how sometimes there would be, he'd, in his neighborhood, there'd be like a warehouse with a bunch of signs. And then at, outside one of the doors in the warehouse, there'd be no signs. And he'd be like, there's probably porn going on in there. I got to see what's happening. And but the But one of the things that really inf- informed I guess two that informed the Dirt Diggler story, the concept, was this is Spinal Tap, which was like the first big mockumentary type. Mm-hmm. That that basically started the the genre, and then there was a documentary called Exhausted, John C. Holmes, comma the real story, and I I tried to watch it, I couldn't find it anywhere. I found a commentary on YouTube of Paul Thomas Anderson talking over it, which I listened to, which I'll I'll link that below, and that basically is the. The, the documentary in Boogie Nights that Amber Waves makes about Dirk Diggler and how great he is and stuff like that, he was basically doing a riff off of this documentary, which was made by a woman named Julia St. Vincent instead of Jesse St. Vincent in the movie. And this woman d- directed this documentary on John C. Holmes basically saying, oh, he's such a great guy. And, and, and Anderson talked about how there was such a strange dark comedy in it because obviously this was so ridiculous but it, it was bad at the same time, so it was sort of depressing, but also funny. And that really informed... Yeah, you can tell it informs this, because yeah, this is so funny, and then it gets really dark Yeah, right towards the end. You're just like... Oh. And, and there's lines, there's lines, and even characters that are ripped straight from... The, the, the song, You Got the Touch! Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. in there, th- word for word. Like he's, he just had that. It sounds better in this. <laughs> yeah? In this, to me, it you think he, you better. Think, you think Mike Stein... The guy who plays Dirk Diggler in the Dirk Diggler story is better a, a better no. singer than Marky Mark. Yeah, yeah. Dang. Just in the, in because I think in this it turns out to be a big hit. The song ends up being a big hit. Does it? Yeah. That that was one of the points. Oh. He, that because 
he goes to this career in music, and the song ends up being a big hit. Oh shit! And it literally just sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song or something, right. you know. And so that was what drove him to become more of a drug addict. Basically. Oh, okay. More money, more problem kind I of thing. So I actually like the song better in this. Interesting. I mean, I like the whole the like the because pro- we talked about with Stanley Kubrick. He went through his I'm going to make a film about suicide phase that everybody goes through. Yeah. Where you either make a, a video, like a a short film about a kid walking into the woods or committing suicide or both, which mm. I did. <laughs> Don't look it up. <laughs> but in this, he just goes straight to this weird subversive very particular comedy. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. I mean, if my kid made that at 17, I'd be like, "What?" Yeah, I would be Because like, it's such a deep knowledge at 17 of how the porn industry works. A very mature thing. And you're like, how long has he been watching this? Since he uh, was seven? Yeah, <laughs> like, definitely. Shit. You just could see it going on. It was the world he grew up in yeah. or around. Maybe not directly he in. Saw, he saw it, yeah. Yeah, he could see it going on. But there's a lot of things in this that were so good that he just put straight into Boogie Nights. Yeah, they were there's good, so they were good, good enough things. to stay intact. Yeah. Uh, Years later, Alan Parker, director of Mississippi Burning and Midnight Express, recalled a time when a teenage Anderson chased down his car and gave him a copy of the Dirk Diggler story on VHS. Yeah, there, so there was a an interview after Phantom Thread came out where Alan Parker did an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson about the movie, and he talked about I was you know, I went to dinner or some shit, and I'm driving, I'm in my convertible, and I see this skinny dumb kid. Yeah, he's like talking shit to him yeah, to his yeah, face because yeah. I see this dumb idiot kid <laughs> running up with a VHS, and he—I don't think he even handed it to me. I think he like hooked it over my window <laughs> and just threw it in, and then he forced and he, him to take. Yeah, it. he's like take it, take <laughs> ah, my movie. Um, and then a few days later, it was just sitting on his, you know, the kitchen counter, let's say, and his son was like, "Hey, Dad, are you gonna watch this thing?" He goes, "Yeah, I guess I'll watch it." And then he watched it, and he thought it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, are you going to give him a job? He went, nah. <laughs> I don't know if that happened. But that was just a funny story of how he committed. Because also, I don't know, Alan Parker, maybe he was a hot director at the time, physically, but also career-wise. Mm. Because he did Mississippi Burning and what was the Midnight Express. That was a while ago. But Missi- yeah. Mississippi Burning was a big movie at the time. So maybe he was like a, like a hot director that everybody knew. Because that's a director that's... That might, that's kind of impressive for a 17-year-old kid to like track down that director. Not Scorsese or Spielberg, but that guy. Mm-hmm. Not that he's a bad director. He's just not that well-known, which is interesting. That just speaks he to his film knowledge. He might have also just been giving his stuff to everybody. It just turned out he was a director? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Over the next 10 years, Anderson expanded the story into a feature-length mockumentary, but eventually wrote as a straight narrative. Which became Boogie Nights. Yes, we've talked about that, but well, not talked about it, but as I no, said, we already talked about it. We're way yeah, ahead yeah. of this dossier. We're <laughs> so much smarter than the guy who wrote this dossier. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Well, like I said, this obviously Dirk Diggler is the main character in Boogie Nights, but there's so many good things that come out of this. I mean, uh, he came up with when he was 17. But also Bob Rid- Bob Ridgely's in it too, and he plays the Colonel in Boogie Nights. Yeah, who looks at his dick at the pool and goes, "Thank you." Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Eddie. But in this, he plays Jack Horner, which is and also there's a thing that's cut out of Boogie Nights where Dirk is basically gay or bisexual. He has like a gay relationship with Reed. Yeah, Rothschild. yeah, mm-hmm. that was very interesting. But still, the love between those two characters and and even the other character, you can tell when they're talking about loving him, that the, the uh, man character, his gay interests 
or gay love interest is actually in love with him. And right. then the other girl, uh, the other porn star, and she talks about it. She, I get the, you get the sense that she just loves him as like a brother or right. something, you know, a, yeah. as if as the other character in Boogie Nights does. Yeah, well, they they t- even in this because the whole one of the big things about Boogie Nights is like the idea of the surrogate family. Yeah, yeah. And even in this, they he had that idea, and mm-hmm. then he didn't realize it until Boogie Nights was done. Mm-hmm. That he wasn't conscious of that being a theme in the movie. You know, you understand? That's pretty so, crazy. Yeah, that he wasn't conscious of that because. At the at the end of even this, he when he passes away, he's surrounded by all those people. The acting in this was really good too. Yeah, and I got I like got choked up a little bit. <laughs> did you? I did because they're talking about you know they get really choked up. The what what's uh, John C. Riley's character? In Reed this? Rothschild. Well, Reed John, Roth- he's he's not in it. I know. I oh, know. Boogie but his, his oh the, the Reed Rothschild, the most jacked man of all time. Dude, jacked. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> like what a downgrade physically. <laughs> yeah, in the next movie. John C. Riley was like, I have to play this guy. <laughs> you got one month. <laughs> you have one month. Yeah. <laughs> No, but they I felt like they did a really good yeah. job. At first it opens, I'm like, okay, seventeen years old. And yeah. then I like halfway through I'm like, oh this I forgot that this was a seventeen year old made this. Yeah. And I yeah. forgot that this is fake. Yeah. It's yeah. still like pretty like raw mm. in, in terms of like, the raw talent behind it. It's very strong. Once the coffee is poured and the tip of the cigarette is lit and placed in the ashtray, then we will address the matter. Cigarettes and coffee, nineteen ninety three. Anderson spent some years working as a production assistant on various sets and wrote screenplays in his free time. One of these screenplays was Cigarettes and Coffee. So one of the things that he did on a set that you're really not supposed to do is he he was working on a PBS movie that was starring Philip Baker Hall. And who was his favorite actor that he saw in Midnight Run and other movies? Secret Honor, which is a Robert Altman movie from 84. It's a one-man show about Richard Nixon, and he plays Nixon. And he went up to him on set and went, look, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but you are the man. You're my favorite actor, and here's a script that I wrote. Read it. And Philip Baker Hall did, and he loved it, and he agreed to be in the movie if he ever made it. And the idea behind uh, Cigarettes and Coffee came from he was just practicing writing, and he goes... Well, the easiest way to practice writing is just have two characters sit down at a coffee shop talking. And you do that enough, and you know sometimes it just blossomed into the story. And it was kind of inspired... like So in basically the premise of the movie is there's three different threads going on where there's a husband and wife, there's Philip Baker Hall and this other guy, and then there's this seedy guy who walks in. And they're all connected by this $20 bill. And so it's, it sort of has like an Altman-esque feel to it that kind of connect interconnectivity and but in the beginning philip baker hall's character is very adamant about these weird rules that he has for having a conversation before they have coffee he goes once the cigarette is lit and the coffee is poured then we will get to the matter at hand and he talked about how that derived from his dad going out to get coffee with his dad and he always had these rules where basically he goes yeah, one time I was really busy, I, and my dad goes, hey, let's come on, let's go, go fucking get some coffee. And he goes, no, I got, I'm busy, I got I got to do stuff with my car. And he goes, oh, we'll, we'll get coffee, and then we'll do the thing with the car. It's fine, come on, let's just go. You don't have to talk to me in the car, let's just go get coffee, come mm. on. So he dragged him out, and he always had these rules. It wasn't exactly like, oh, you just, the cigarette must be lit now. But he did have a thing where, like, no, we're not talking until we get to the coffee, that sort of thing. You just have to sit there in silence. 
Yeah, then they were talking to be fine. Yeah, yeah. How uh, I know we're on this, but how was his relationship with his father? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. You would think otherwise from like some of the other like the surrogate family thing going on in a yeah. lot of his films. You would think he's searching like the, for that. Like the relationship between Dirk and Jack Horner. Yeah. Or Heart Eight and mm-hmm. with Sydney and um John. Yeah. Yeah. Or even Magnolia. Yeah, that's that's why There'll I was be wondering. blood. Mm-hmm. Dang, he's got a lot of dad movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I noticed looking through them all. I it made me wonder. That's why I just yeah. asked. So um Okay, so the making of cigarettes and coffee was reportedly a little hectic. Yeah, and there's not a lot of detail about that, but there is, you know, he he was a very confident, inexperienced kid. I think he, he was like maybe 21, 22 at the time, and he allegedly fired his cinematographer. The budget was $20,000. It was raised privately. I think his dad put in some money to it, and... He had, but the he borrowed a camera from somebody who worked at Panavision. I think it was Panavision, not sure, but he was able to rent a seventy-five, a thirty-five million, thirty-five millimeter mm-hmm. camera, and so that basically saved on the mini. He he was like, I'll borrow it for a weekend, and then he ended up needing it for <laughs> six weeks. <laughs> yeah, just like, come on, I need that camera back. <laughs> yeah, because that's a, that's an expensive. It's rental. so expensive. Six dude. weeks with it. It's so much money. <laughs> he knew what he was doing the yeah. whole time. I feel like. <laughs> so, Cigarettes and Coffee was accepted into the 1993 Sundance Festival Shorts Program, and Anderson was invited to the 1994 Sundance Lab, where he developed a story for his first feature film. Heart 8, 1996. Originally titled Sydney, the story of Heart 8 was informed by Anderson's own experiences working at casinos in Reno. Yeah, he talked about how he would be working out there and he would see these old guys who were just super cool and all they did was bet, but but they would bet so much and they were sort of these high rollers that the hotel or the casino would just comp them rooms. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and that's what basically how they live their life. In the movie, Sidney lives his life like that. Yeah. He's sort of a drifter that just goes from casino ca- to casino. But one of the, the fun stories that Anderson told was the rate card scam that they do in that movie where... Sydney goes, okay, buy a rate card. Here's a hundred bucks or whatever. And he buys the rate card to keep track of his winnings and losings. And then he goes to a slot, then cashes in the rate card, and then gets chips from the rate card. And then I forget how exactly how it goes, but then it, give, it gives him like a net profit on the rate card. That was a scam that Anderson used to do where he was low on money. He was like, all right, let me do this for a couple hours, and then he just make 2,000 bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's something that amazes me about him in general is. It seemed like he did a bunch of things before, and he was so young. Yeah. When did he have time to do <laughs> casino scams? <laughs> yeah. He was making movies at 17. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he, he talked about how he was living, I think around the time he wrote Hard Eight, he was living with his dad, just working in Reno. Yeah. And that's when he was right. He, that's when his dad was like, come on, let's go get coffee and stuff like that. And he said he loved living with his dad. It was fun. And then he, he wrote, while he was at the Sundance Lab, he obviously developed this story, and they did scenes with other actors. Because the, the whole point of the Sundance Lab is to develop like yeah. a feature script. So he came up with this idea. He based it off of the... He based the opening scene, basically, off the same jump point as Cigarettes and Coffee, just two guys talking over coffee. Yeah, I was assuming... Because one of the first lines in Heart 8 have to do with cigarettes and coffee. Yeah. I'm just a man who wants to buy you... Cigarettes and coffee... 
looks yeah, at the camera. Yeah. Remember that one? Reicher <laughs> 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 Entertainment financed the movie for a three million dollar budget, and filming got underway with a main cast of Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Samuel L. Jackson. Anderson was twenty four or twenty five years old. It's crazy that he got a movie with that cast at that age. Well, he even talks about now he's still like, I was way too young. I can't believe they gave me the keys to the car. I was yeah, so young. Yeah. He, he he talks about, I was this 23-year-old, you know, skinny kid who was just w- like sitting outside the executive's doors being like, give me my movie back. <laughs> because the whole thing, what happened with that is they took the movie away from him at one point. During filming, they were constantly like, oh, don't do this, don't do that. And he had, I think he just cut off connection with them. I was like, I'm not talking to them anymore. Mm-hmm. And then during post-production, he edited a cut of the movie together. And it was like two and a half hours long. And he was young, so he was like, I'm not changing a frame of it. Yeah, yeah. And they eventually fired him. That's crazy. And what he did was steal a print of the movie and then submitted it to Sundance Mm -hmm. in New York. I think it was wherever. He went to New York to submit it in Sundance. And then Reicher got wind of this, and we're like, well, shit. So they sent their own cut of the movie, and then Sundance chose Paul Thomas Anderson's cut. Nice. So then Reicher had to be, all right, fine. I guess you can be on the movie again. But here's what we're gonna do: you can't. Uh, you you can you can have final cut, but you have to fund the rest of the editing. And he just got paid for Boogie Nights at the time because this movie had been, shell basically almost shelved, taken away from him for so long after the pro- after that prolonged production period. And they go, you can have the final edit, but we get to keep the title, mm-hmm. which they changed to Hard Eight, which he hated because it sounded like a porno. Yeah. Which was, <laughs> you know, pr- kind of prophetic, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah. But he still calls it Sydney. There's, it's, this movie's sort of called Hard Eight or How I Learned to Stop Worrying It, Worrying and Call It Sydney. Mm-hmm. Was, so he said something about how they had made edits to his cut or something like that. Yeah, they, he, he wanted it to be widescreen and then they made it, so they cropped it so it was more, of a box like eight one eight five mm-hmm. aspect ratio, mm-hmm. and I don't know if they did anything else other than like well I guess the, every frame was changed at that point because you're mm-hmm. changing every frame with the aspect ratio. Yeah, he said there were some shots where he had long, really long dolly shots. Yeah, and they wanted to cut them. They did cut into it, and yeah, they couldn't. He couldn't really do anything. Yeah, it was about that. It was that shot where Philip Baker Hall goes, you know, walks down the floor. And that just a, a shot of holding on him, of walking down, mm-hmm. being all cool and shit. Mm-hmm. Hard Eight was released in a few theaters on February 28th, 1997. It got positive reviews, but did not recoup its $3 million budget at the box office. Yeah, the release was buried. They just released it in a few theaters and were like, screw you. Mm-hmm. We hate your movie. We hate you. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it made like $200 million. Uh, No, it made 200000 <laughs> it made two hundred thousand yeah. off a three million dollar budget. Can oh. you imagine if it made two hundred million? I think I th- I think the movie's good because the the thing that sets it apart. I don't think anything the subject matter is anything we haven't seen before. Because there's a lot of movies that take place during casi- with casinos and their scams and hey we're gonna make some money and it's very I think it's very hard to m- mess up the kind of procedural procedural stuff like that of, sk- of scamming people. That's always interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think what I thought was most impressive about the movie is how good Anderson was already at like peripheral characters where usually if a young writer or an inexperienced writer 
is writing a movie, the cop character is the cop. He's not John the cop. He's just cop. Mm-hmm. And in this, the bride and groom that he meets at the slot machines aren't just bride and groom. They are bride and groom, but the bride has a neck brace on for some reason. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that scene, the mechanically, that scene works if it's just because it's during the scam, it's during the scam, the rate card scam, and Philip Baker Hall is narrating. Here's what you're gonna do: you're gonna go back to the slot machine and then play for another twenty minutes. All Anderson needed to do was just show John at the slot machine and just pull it, and then that's mechanically that's all we need to know. But when John goes back, we see there's a bride and groom there. All right. That's you didn't have to do that, but now it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. But then we see that the she has a neck brace on, and you're like, "Well, what the hell yeah, happened to her? Yeah, what's going right. on with these people? Exactly. So now a scene that should I should never think about again is being talked about on this podcast because it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's There's just a random thing that's added in, and it ge- it just gives life to the scene. Exactly, and it doesn't it doesn't slow down the movie. There's it's on an extra five minutes of you know of seeing the well, there's some character stuff. It it's just this perfect little thing to put in there. There's another scene where Clementine is talking to Sydney at a diner, and they say the tag the tagline of the scene. They're like, "This is the final line to get the plot moving," and then all of a sudden you just hear like a screech, and this guy get up and go, "Fuck this, I'm out of here." And there's two girls with them, and you're like, "Well, not what the hell happened there yeah. was." So either he was a guy who bought them dinner. And thought that, and they told him if they bought if they bought him dinner, or he bought them dinner, they'd have sex with him. And then they're like, "Hey, we're not gonna have sex with you." And he's like, "God damn it!" <laughs> or that could could that be his girlfriend who just came out as a lesbian with her lesbian yeah, lover? Yeah. And he's like, "Fuck this, I'm out of here." Like, what is going on? Same thing. I'm talking about it on the podcast now, which is you know normally it would be a scene I would never think yeah. about again. There's he's stuff like that that I just think is so impressive. He's just pissed they didn't want to split a short stack with him. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, <laughs> how many pancakes did you have? <laughs> I ordered five and you had three? I paid for this. Fuck this, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. And then Clementine's just like, ooh. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Also, also, I think there is, there's a, I think Paul Thomas Harrison's first two movies mm-hmm. have have this I got too close to him when I said two. I, they have this weird theme about stupidity where a lot yeah. of it is defending their stupidity. There's a scene where Clementine it's that it's during that scene in the middle that that is the, 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 that giant intersection of the movie where things have gotten bad and you realize that Clementine and John and I guess Sydney are just shitty people who are in this shitty, crummy situation. Yeah. But you like them because you've gotten to know them, and they're and they feel so real because of the things we just said, like the character beats. And then Clementine goes, "We'll see how stupid I am when I get me my money, won't won't we? I'm not stupid." Mm-hmm. And then John is like, "Oh my god, I'm so stupid," or whatever. And then Jimmy at the end, Sam Jackson, is talking to Sydney, going, "You think I'm stupid? I'm not stupid." And there's it's it's subtle. It's not like a big giant game changer theme but it's in there somewhat mm-hmm. and it's in there in, Ma- in Boogie Nights which we'll, t- we'll talk about but and there's also another thing that I really 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 like that involves Clementine when Sydney agrees to help them out and he goes you're gonna have to skip town for a while and it, that scene can easily just be Clementine and Sydney going bye thanks for everything I'll see you later pal and then they leave but instead Clementine goes Wait, can you uh can you go can you feed my cats while I'm gone? And he goes, Yeah. So now that takes his 
his his gesture to help them one step further. Mm-hmm. And that's already a lot of information. Like, oh, she has cats. I didn't know that about her. She has a life outside this movie. And then she goes, and also when you, here's the key, when you use it, only stick it in halfway or else it won't open. It's like, we don't need to know that, but that's... Yeah, there's that's small little those things. Those two details just feel, uh, just add to her character so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the small little details that just give more life to everything yeah. outside, which makes everything inside of the film feel more yeah. alive. It feels like n- the characters don't exist for the f- movie. The movie exists for the characters. What did you think about this movie? I really did like it. I thought that for him to make a first feature-length film that has that much liveliness and shows what a casino was really like at that time, it was it was just enjoyable to see that atmosphere because mm-hmm. I've this film looks like it smells like cigarettes. That's well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it should be if it was named after or derived from a short called Cigarettes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Also, everybody's smoking cigarettes in the nineties. Exactly. That's when like cigarettes peaked, probably. You think? I don't know. That's when it was like, probably the coolest to smoke cigarettes because that was after they no, it's people still knew cool. that was <laughs> that was when people knew that they were bad, but still like I know. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Most dangerous. They know it's dangerous. They're exactly. Still just chugging away on them. I do think Hard Eight. When you look at other movies in the genre, does have it's even though it's not like Anderson's best, and I think it's just good. It's not at the same level as it's peers it's mm. a you could tell it's just there's something a little bit better about it and i think thematically the thing that's really interesting is it has my favorite shot one, probably one of my favorite shots to end a movie on which is so basically long story short sydney finds a this a, a desperate john sitting outside a coffee shop and he goes hey let me help you then cut to two years later we don't find out why sydney wants to help john so much and then we learn that Jimmy knows why Sydney wants to help John or is helping John so much after they have to go on the run. And he goes, you shot his father in the face. <laughs> and, and then it, so it turns out he's doing this because... And also we learn that he has two children who are Clementine's age, John and Clementine's age. He has a, a daughter and a son. Mm-hmm. And basically to compensate for... And he talks about how he's never... He he doesn't really talk to them anymore. That can be him trying to compensate for the fact that he was a failed father by trying to look out for Clementine and John because he takes a liking to Clementine very quickly. He doesn't really know her that well until they have a conversation, and it could be that he she just reminds him of his daughter. Mm-hmm. And then he off. So it's it, the movie. The movie setting up his character as a, a, a tag to go through a very redemptive arc, and then he tells Jimmy when Jimmy's threatening him with the gun, "Hey, like I'll shoot you in the face." Mm-hmm. It, he goes. I don't want to die. He goes. I'll. I'll. I'll sacrifice all my money for John's livelihood, but I will not sacrifice my own life for John's li- livelihood. And so, right there, it shows that he's not willing to die for John, which would be the logical conclusion conclusion of a more redemptive arc, mm-hmm. where he dies to keep the secret safe, or he dies to save John, or something like that. But then, what? So it's not a redemptive arc, but what it ends up being is just him doubling down on the person who he was trying to stop being. He basically doubles down on being the guy who killed John's dad. Because the, the the final shot, he kills Jimmy and then goes to the same coffee shop where the movie started, and he sees that there's some blood on his shirt, and he just takes his sleeve and literally covers up the blood. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's such a perfect yeah. final shot. Mm-hmm. You just can't escape that past exactly. life that he lived. Or you could look at it as he's willing to kill for John. 
but in a selfish way. Like, yes. He only kills that guy because he doesn't want to ruin his relationship that he has with John. Right. It's almost selfish because he's because Jimmy's not in any danger. He he wins, but not in a heroic way, or not a particularly mm, not the way he way. wanted to win. Right. It's like it's 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 not again. It's that's I guess that just speaks to Anderson's ability to operate in gray areas mm-hmm. at such a young age. Where mm-hmm. it's not, he's, it's, he doesn't have a heroic, redemptive... Because first, my first instinct would just be like, oh, have him die, that'll be emotional, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But in this, it's like, no, 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 it's not that simple. Boogie Nights, 1997. After a tumultuous production on Hard Eight, Anderson channeled all the frustration of his movie being taken away from him into the script for Boogie Nights. Yeah, he didn't channel it in a literal sense where Boogie Nights was about... A filmmaker murdering an executive for, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but he channeled that energy to be like, I'm going to prove these guys wrong. I'm going to make the best movie of all time. Yeah, yeah. Which he got pretty close to doing. Fuck yeah. Because Boogie Nights movie. is the most fun movie I've ever seen, mm. maybe. It's my favorite movie. Ever. Yeah. Personally, yeah. Interesting. Do your favorite movies about porn, Danny? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a sick bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very bad God guy. Damn it. <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> that whatever whatever you just said just wiped my memory bank. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll go. Anderson's first choice for Dirk Diggler was Leonardo DiCaprio, but he declined in order to star in Titanic. Big mistake. <laughs> However, DiCaprio suggested Mark Wahlberg for the role. Yeah, and and it wasn't Leo having to convince Paul Thomas Anderson to take Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson liked Mark Wahlberg because he saw him in the Basketball Diaries, and he goes, "This guy's really good. He's not just, I guess, I guess he was a, well, he was a rapper, Marky singer. Mark. He was Marky Mark. Yeah. I only know the Good Vibrations song that he. It's the only Marky Mark song that I know. Yeah, yeah. Yo, it's about that time. Don it's John's. Good I think movie. that's Don John. I don't know. I don't know much about his career as a rapper, but I think that's his only good yeah. song. I know a lot about his crimes when he was a teenager. Yeah, we <laughs> which won't we won't get into. Get into. <laughs> but, um, so but he described. Mark Wahlberg is this, just this big ball of talent. Like, he's not trained mm-hmm. at all, but he's absolutely fantastic. And when he was going do, around doing the casting, th- there wasn't really a movie like this because it's about the porn industry, which is a very taboo thing at the time. I guess it still is now. But it, it was a non-moralistic take on it. So they heard porn, and were, were they like, is this... Saying that porn's bad is it saying that it's is it endorsing porn? What is mm-hmm. it doing? I I, I want to be careful with what I'm getting myself into here. And that was that 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 conversation was almost came up with every actor. And but with Mark Wahlberg, what he was concerned about is Paul Thomas Anderson talked about how he gave him the script, and then Mark Wahlberg called him and he goes, "Did you read the script?" And he goes, "Yeah, I read the first thirty pages." And Paul Thomas Anderson said he was like this jerk read only read thirty pages like he's not going to be in my movie. And then Mark Wahlberg said, "I only read thirty pages because I love the first thirty pages, and I know I'm going to love the rest of it. But I just want to make sure you're not casting me or asking me to be in this movie because I'm the guy who can get in his underwear." And mm-hmm. Anderson was like, "I don't know what you're talking about. I you were just I just thought I saw you in the Basketball Diaries. You're really good. Please be in the movie. Please, please, please." And then he said yes. And he also casted cast casted. He cast Burt Reynolds as Jack Horner. He originally wanted Jack Nicholson. The script never got to him. I think Burt Reynolds ultimately was ultimately was the best choice. Definitely. He wanted Warren Beatty as well 
I forget. Maybe there was another guy as well who wanted, but he talked about Warren Beatty wanting to be Jack. He was, I want you to be in the movie. And Warren Beatty was on board until he found out that he wasn't going to play Dirk Diggler. That <laughs> 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 were like, that's a joke. But like, that was a joke that Anderson made. But he goes, I think he was trying, he, I think he wanted to play Dirk Diggler. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. During filming, Anderson and Burt Reynolds reportedly did not get along. Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley also got into it at one point. Yeah, they they I, the cast has talked about why Burt Reynolds maybe didn't have the best time on that movie, and he was like a big star, and I guess they they relatively didn't have that much money, so he had to share a trailer maybe with somebody, mm. and he was with all these non-established people. And I guess maybe he felt like he was, but this was beneath him. Mm-hmm. The only, apparently the only person he got along with was Luis Guzman on the set. Yeah, there yeah. was a, on the there's a the commentary tracks which we'll get to. I think Mark Wahlberg was like, "Hey, uh, Paul, is this the scene where Reynolds punched you in the cut?" <laughs> and they they talked like apparently Burt Reynolds punched Paul Thomas Anderson in the belly because they got in a big fight, and even even because. Anderson talks about how we had so much fun making it, which I guess was which was true probably, but they did have some times where everybody would fight. Yeah, where there was another time where they were filming like the pool scene. It was one of the first scenes between Dirk and Reed Rothschild and Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley. All of a sudden, Anderson just saw them saw Riley leave the set, and they were screaming at each other. And what happened is uh, John C. Riley showed up late to the set, and then Mark Wahlberg who'd like to mess with people, I guess. And some other people were kind of leaning into him, being like, oh, maybe if you weren't so late, you would know your lines and stuff whenever he would fly. And then they got, like, they were fooling around, but then it escalated to, like, a real argument. Mm-hmm. And they were throwing marshmallows at him the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> they were just chucking him with marshmallows. And then at one point... uh John C. Riley turns around and Mark just beamed a marshmallow and hit him right in the, <laughs> in forehead, the forehead. And John C. Riley just lost it and just walked off the set. I was like, I'm sick of this shit. <laughs> just like childish stuff. Exactly. Kind of and obviously, they laugh about it now, but it was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I, I mean, being on that set was probably so fun. It was fun, but it was, also, but it was also place. crazy. Like, I think some of the cocaine energy translated. I'm, I'm sure some of the people on that set were, were on cocaine. Cause it was oh, yeah, night. probably. But some of that translated to, like, the actual antics they would get into on set. There's a, there's a deleted scene where Dirk, Becky Barnett calls Dirk because she's getting beat up by her husband, Jerome. And she calls Dirk, and Dirk's like, I'll be there in a second. And then Dirk goes and leaves, and since he's all messed, he's all fucked up, he's like smoking a cigarette, and 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 then he's going like ninety miles an hour, and he's supposed to crash into a telephone pole, which is why the the is why his Corvette is best busted up later in the movie, and Paul just goes, hey, just Mark, just crash into the thing, just crash into the telephone pole, and they didn't tell anybody else on set, mm. so the cameras are rolling, and all of a sudden Mark just slams into the pole. Like full speed, or Not, I don't know how fast it was, but it was pretty. It was a full enough speed to where the hood like crumpled up and stuff, mm. and that's just a crazy thing that happened. That's the biggest liability. Like your main star gonna make him crash into a telephone yeah, pole yeah, just, and <laughs> not tell your stunt the stunt coordinator was pissed. Oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As he should. You can't. No, nah, he was overreacting. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably on cocaine. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Wahlberg probably was on cocaine. Who knows? He might have been sober at this point. Yeah. Because he was on cocaine when he was a kid. I don't yeah. know if he was sober at this point. Mm-hmm. 
Possibly. Who knows? Maybe he maybe being in that atmosphere made him a little Maybe he hit his head in the accident was like I never need to do cocaine again. Yeah, yeah, fixed it his just life. Changed, it just fixed his brain. <laughs> changed his life. He's like, I'm gonna be jacked when I'm almost fifty. <laughs> I'm gonna make a clothing brand called Municipal and post every single day about it on Instagram. Dude, he posts on Instagram a lot. <laughs> I'm gonna get insanely jacked with the worst form anybody's ever seen. <laughs> I like Mark Wahlberg. No, he's great. He's great. He's in my favorite movie ever. With one of my favorite scenes ever. You know what scene that is? Scotty trying to kiss Dirk. No. <laughs> that is a great scene. It's a great scene, but no, not that one. It's the donut shop scene. Oh, yeah? With Bucky. It's like, what that? Buck Swope. When I saw that for the first time, that is one of the first times I remember actually being on the edge of my seat for something. Uh-huh. I don't know why. I just cared so much about that specific character. And I was like, is he going to fucking die? Like, fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just so... Because it's so... It's a and tense also, scene. Also, it's like... It's the first scene in the movie that has a very visceral sense of violence. Mm-hmm. Other times, people are are Almost having there. drug overdoses or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that was the first time where... I'm in a crime... I'm, what? Now I'm in a this dark crime movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it fits so well somehow. Mm-hmm. And it takes its time too. Buck doesn't go in there and go, let me get a donut. There's like a whole buildup of him getting the donuts and be like, oh, those are cute. Give me some of those. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's probably what makes the scene is that buildup. Because mm-hmm. it seems like something that actually might happen. You know, some guy tries to save the day and, yeah. and shoots him. And oh, so well done too. The way he shoots and then like the mm-hmm. swipes the gun around and shoots it in mid. It's, it's mm-hmm. so well done. And even that character, you know nothing about him. Yeah, but it you, turns to him and it's like this guy has a gun. Well, yeah, you, <laughs> that's the thing about like the periphery characters mm-hmm. is immediately you see that guy for a second and you know it's exactly what's about to and happen. And his and he's sitting there almost looking as though he's been waiting for yes. that to happen. He's re- he's literally reading a magazine that's like I love guns. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it pretty, really? yeah. I, I think it's a gun magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It basically says that. Uh, the the uh, two commentary tracks were recorded for the home release, one with Anderson and one with Anderson and the cast. Yes, I brought these up because they're insane, and they they were at the the they were at like the end of the era of home media where people weren't sure what commentaries were. Yeah, we sit in front of a we watch the movie and we say stuff. Okay, cool, and then people can watch it. Like they weren't. I don't know. I don't know if how aware people were of what they were and so on the first anderson knew what they were of course but the first one is anderson just like high on whatever maybe drunk he's watching the movie by himself and he's rambling which as he should in a Mm. commentary the one with just him the first one and there's a scene which you can find on youtube and it's a video titled the greatest scene in a commentary ever and Paul Thomas Anderson is see, it's not about th- like Boogie Nights isn't about this or like anything like that. It's about this and that, and then it comes around, and then you go there, and he goes, and uh, I'm sorry, I gotta take a piss so bad I can't even fucking think. And then there's like 30 seconds of silence, <laughs> and then the next thing you hear is you see Mark Wahlberg do cocaine, and then Paul Thomas Anderson goes, "This is a scene where Mark Wahlberg does uh, cocaine," <laughs> <laughs> and that's what, but that's I think that's. That's what I think a lot of young people like about Tom Paul Thomas Anderson is that he makes these movies where if you didn't know who he was, you'd think the guy who made him was like some boring grandpa mm. where he's like, yes, I'm, I'm very smart and I make these movies. But then you find out he's this very unassuming guy who feels just like you. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And he doesn't talk in flowery things. Oh, I thought the existentialism about the thought. He's very accessible conversationally, mm. which I think I like about it's him. just a guy eating pizza. Exactly. <laughs> he's just eating pizza. I saw a comment on that video, that he, the interview you watched, where Paul Thomas Anderson's eating pizza. Yeah. And the first comment is, believe it or not, the guy eating pizza talking about porn is one of the greatest filmmakers <laughs> of the 21st century. And then it cuts to him and goes, I, I'll be the first to say it. I want to watch that guy fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he goes and makes Phantom Thread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. We'll get to Phantom Thread. Yeah, yeah, we but will. The, the second commentary mm-hmm. is wild. It's the most balls-to-the-wall thing. It's So Paul Thomas Anderson watched that. He made six commentaries. He watched it with, like, different members of the crew. So there was one where he was with Marky Mark. There was one with he, he was with John C. Riley and Don Cheadle. And then there was one where he was with Melora Waters and William H. Macy and then Luis Guzman. And first of all, it's the, uh, one of the first things is Paul Thomas Anderson goes, do you think Louise was stoned in this scene? And they go, oh, uh, maybe, I'm not sure. And then it cuts to, to like seven times him asking people, do you think Louise was stoned in this scene? <laughs> and that's all they talk about for like a 30-minute chunk of the uh. movie. And also Melora Waters had just had kids. So in the entire, wherever they had the mic in the room to record, her kid like had a whooping cough and it was just going <coughs> oh, yeah, the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny. Mm-hmm. And they're in the middle of like describing like a very serious point. And then you just hear her kid with a whooping cough just <laughs> phlegm into the, into the yeah. mic. Mm-hmm. And then, but the thing that's craziest about it is Marky, Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg and Paul Thomas Anderson were recording it together. And the whole time Marky Mark's like, I got to go. I got a plane to catch. And Paul Thomas Anderson's, shut up. Just stay here. We're already here doing it. How about, how, just don't worry about it. 15 minutes, 15 more minutes. He stays to the end. Yeah. yeah. But they're just watching the pool scene with, with when Spill the Wine's playing. And then Paul Thomas Anderson just goes, you see that girl there? Did you fuck her? And Mark Wahlberg goes, no, but I wanted to. And they don't, I, don't know if that, I don't know if he realized what the commentary was or talking about like that. And there's one thing that they describe at the end that I'm going to look, if you're squeamish or you don't want to hear this, skip ahead 40 seconds. I'm getting five, four, three, two, one. Okay. At the very last scene when they show Dirk Diggler's dick, all of a sudden Mark Wahlberg just goes, yeah, I broke my dick in half once. And Paul's like, what? And he goes, yeah, I was having sex and it slipped. And then it, it cracked to the side. Oh my! He goes. I went into the bathroom, and I just saw my dick was all black, and, Holy it, and, shit. and I just saw there was this big bubble, and I just I was panicking, and then I fell asleep in pain, and then I woke up the next morning, and my penis was just all black, and it stayed like that for like two weeks, and then it went away. <laughs> what? Like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> on, a, on a DVD commentary. <laughs> DVD commentary. <laughs> and also, this was after he's like mad at Paul for missing his flight. Yeah. <laughs> he's just. <laughs> It's crazy. He's just hanging out. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Anyway. I get the sense that Mark Wahlberg doesn't miss flights. He just has to tell the private jet to wait a I little. I mean, the only flight that he ever missed was the 9-11 one, apparently. What? He was supposed to be on the 9-11 flight. How? What? And then he didn't go, and he talked about how 9-11 would have went down differently if I was on that plane. He says that? I think he said that. I don't want to paraphrase. Okay. Boogie Nights was released nationwide on October 31st, 1997. It received rave reviews and made $43 million off a $15 million budget. Julianna Moore and Burt Reynolds received Oscar nominations, and Anderson was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. And I'm not sure how... Again, like I talked about earlier, it's it's a non-moralistic telling of the porn industry. 
And I'm not, I think it was maybe a few years ahead of its time because, like I said, the apprehensions that the cast had about starring it, like, what is it? What exactly is going on? I think a lot of, like, a mainstream audience, let's say, was kind of cautious of what it was, what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And, but I think we, we talked about the peripheral characters in Heart Eight. In this, there's almost no peripheral characters because the cast is so big that everybody feels like a main character almost. Mm-hmm. And he, the, the way, like we talked about the guy in the in the, the the donut shop. As soon as you see that guy, you know what he's all about. Just it takes a second, yeah, right? Yeah. With every character in this movie, it takes a second to know who they are. Reed Rothschild. It, it takes two. There's a there, so the scene where Dirk uh, comes to the pool party when he meets everybody or Eddie Adams at that point, and he he gets introduced to Reed by uh, Jack Horner, and Jack goes, oh, "Are you two Get to know each other, and then Reed says, "So uh, Jack tells me he found you on the street," and Dirk's like, "No, I didn't. What? No." And he goes, "Oh, I thought you. I thought I heard him say that you were living out on the street." <laughs> and then he spends the rest of the scene trying to one up Dirk, and you're, "Oh, I know who. Yeah. I know who Reed Rothschild is," or Buck Swope, where he's like, "Hey, how about my new outfit?" Yeah. In the yeah, beginning, yeah. he's like, "Oh, it's it's nice. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's his thing," and it's it, it's just so well done. And, but the going back to what I think is interesting is every all, all these characters, right? At the end, the, the, all, the, all the character stories are weaved through each other effort, effortlessly. That's that's the very Altman thing about it is how well it handles all these characters. But we talked about Scotty before. I think Scotty is like the most tragic character in the movie. Maybe ex- who mm-hmm. who ends up the worst? Maybe. Besides the colonel, who like deserves it, but with Scotty, every if you look at the end of the movie, every character has like a new frontier or like a restored equilibrium that they go through. Dirk is back making movies with Jack. Jack, vice versa. Buck Swope has his radio store and he's married and he has kids. Luis Guzman opens up the or he nightclub. he or... the nightclub. His brothers come down or come up from Puerto Rico and become part owners in the nightclub. Amber Waves becomes a uh, commercial director and they all have a new thing going on but the only character who doesn't really have anything going on is Scotty when he first meets Scotty he instantly has a crush on Dirk he goes up to him talks to him immediately Dirk's attention is caught by somebody else the colonel and they go come over here and their conversation is cut short the next time Scotty interacts with Dirk he has to get him from the dressing room during their first the first porno scene and the whole time he's like oh Dirk you look really sexy Mm-hmm. And he's like, can you give me a few minutes? And then he's just like, oh, shit, let me get out of here. And then when he walks, to, he escorts Dirk to the set, and he's chewing on this pen. And it's like a very suggestive thing about him having this oral fixation, basically translating him chewing on that pen to wanting to like yeah, do yeah. stuff with Dirk. And every time they're go, they go through a doorway when he's walking, it's very funny. Every time they go through a doorway, they make sure to go at the same time, so they yeah. have to sandwich their way through each doorway to just make it extra awkward. And then, of course, he's doing the sound, and then Dirk shows his... Dick to everybody, and he's like almost drooling. Yeah, he's <laughs> <It's> like. <laughs> but then that scene is basically the last time Scotty is in the movie's forefront consciousness until the midpoint, mm-hmm. and f- until that, we just see Scotty in like regulated to the background where Dirk wins the award, and there's a there's a small little thing where Dirk goes around the entire table and like hugs everybody and shakes their hand, and then when Scotty goes to 
if you blink and you'll miss it, Scotty goes and goes to high five him, and Dirk just goes. <laughs> not because Dirk is mean or yeah, anything. He, he just didn't see him because he's not in Dirk's head like like Scotty wants him to be. And there's a lot of stuff like that, like body language stuff, that's very, very well done. But then in the midpoint, I know I'm going on, but this is good. No, no. I, um, in, in the midpoint, finally, Scotty gets Dirk's attention. He's like, hey, I got a new car, and Dirk is genuinely happy for him. They go out to go see it. Todd pa- Todd, Todd, Packer, Todd Parker and Reed Rothschild get Dirk's attention, and Scotty's like really nervous. Like, well, do you want to go see the car? And they go out there. Dirk's genuinely happy. He is at the forefront of Dirk's consciousness for a second. He finally has his full attention until Dirk goes, wait, what time is it? We're going to miss the ball drop. Mm-hmm. His attention, again, diverts somewhere else, and then he just kisses him. He's like, Scotty, you, what do you got? <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. And, and Mark Wahlberg on the, on the commentary talked to Paul Thomas Anderson because you want Dirk to kind of kiss Scotty back because yeah. you feel bad for Scotty so much. And Mark Wahlberg talked about how he told Paul Thomas Anderson, can he, can I, I kind of feel like he should kiss him or something or give him like a, a like it shouldn't, I don't know if I want it to end this, you know, badly for Scotty. Yeah. And Paul Thomas Anderson's like, no, it has to end this way. And then Scotty, of course, goes, fucking idiot, fucking idiot. <laughs> he says it like six times too many, which makes it even sadder. Yeah. That's another thing about the, 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 um, the theme of idiocy or whatever, or yeah. defending one's intelligence. And then that's already super sad. It's the saddest scene, what I think is one of the saddest scenes of the movie. But then it's extra, it sucks extra much for Scotty because everybody gets this new equilibrium at the end, except for Scotty. We just see him at the final scene, that final shot through the house. He's just unloading stuff on a truck with that guy, Rocky, who's barely had a line. Mm-hmm. And he's not even in the house with everybody. And then the movie ends. It's the last time we see of him. There's not, there's not, never a scene where Dirk goes, "Hey, thanks, Scotty, for sticking with me." Yeah, or like yeah, thanks for being just... my friend. Because Scotty was there when Dirk was going through addiction, and he'd be like, "Guys, maybe you shouldn't go to Rahad Jackson's house because this looks really dangerous." Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Shut the fuck up, Scotty." <laughs> and this poor guy is like, "It's the, like you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't, he doesn't get any thing." And also, he's gay, and it's the '80s, and AIDS is going to happen. He's going to have to go through that. Yeah, his yeah. life is going to is not going to get better. Poor yeah. Scotty, man. Poor Scotty. Philip Seymour Hoffman was such a great actor. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. He plays a lot of. He's he's always sort of a background character in Paul Thomas Anderson. Except movies. for the other master. master. Other yeah, but yeah. other leading up to the. He's master. always like a supporting guy, and mm-hmm. who or I guess he was always a supporting guy. Mm-hmm. But Paul they Thomas always they always have their moment on the screen where it's fantastic. Every you know? yeah, every character in that movie has that scene. Well, yeah, they have yeah. their scene. It's insane how well he was able to balance that. Mm-hmm. Um, what about r- what happens right after in terms of sad characters? What happens right after? Oh, maybe a little bill. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like, uh, he had a pretty bad. Yeah. But, but, that, he, but his is kind of comedic, I guess. Yeah, there's, there is com- comedy in there, but it's also, <laughs> I mean, when she's first getting. Yeah, that's true. And, well, and they're all just standing over her and he just goes. Yeah. What does he say? He, he says something like, my wife's got an ass in her dick. Or No, he, so, yeah. so the line was, my wife has a cock in her ass. I'm yeah. not really focused on the photography of the film. <laughs> but instead, in the movie, he goes, my wife has an ass in her cock, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not focused on the photography <laughs> of the film. And they just kept it in. Yeah, yeah. There, oh, there's a lot of great stuff mm. like that. Uh, Ricky J, who plays, I think, Kurt or Bert, who plays the guy he's, uh, Little Bill's talking to in that scene, he was like a like a master magician, apparently. I didn't know that about him. Mm. But there was one thing that Paul Thomas Anderson talked about where the scene where Dirk and Bert 
Reynolds or Jack are fighting, and Dirk's like, "You're not an actor, man. You're not an actor. I'm the. I'm the. You're the boss of me." Uh, Jack goes, "Nevertheless, you can't do a film like this." And every time Jack would say, "Nevertheless," Ricky Jay would always like start to laugh. And he goes, Ricky, what are you doing? Why do you keep laughing? And he tells him a story about how there was like this football game and uh, there was these commentators and somebody walked by and there was like a, I forget exactly how, but there was like a woman during like a show singing in the middle or singing the national anthem. And let's say the woman's name was like Michelle Jones. Somebody walks by and goes, and goes Michelle Jones sucks cock. <laughs> and the announcer goes, nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's why he and then every time every take in the movie he just couldn't stop he laughing couldn't stop laughing yeah yeah there's so many i want to oh, yeah wh- remember how uh when we were talking about the dirk diggler story yeah how i liked the song better yes i also liked i forgot to bring this up but there's a, such a funny part in the dirk diggler story what is it um he goes because this is something that carries over where I think it the, the uh, Dirk Diggler is going, maybe uh, just turn down the bass oh, yeah. and turn down the bass and bring up the vocal, yeah? yeah, yeah. And then, but in the Dirk Diggler story, he goes, yeah, I think we should just speed it up, like maybe a few octaves. Yeah. And <laughs> octaves and speed have nothing yeah, to exactly. do with anything. He's just like <laughs> coked out. Does he say that in Boogie Nights? In Boogie or? Nights, he says something about like, can we crank it up a few octaves or something? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if because I noticed that last night. Mm-hmm. I think. I, I, that scene is pre- it's pretty similar. It's expanded in Boogie Nights, but yeah, I don't yeah, I don't know yeah. if he says speed it up a couple of octaves oh, in the so movie. Good. That was really good. That's 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 a you know that could go over a lot of people's head. Yeah, but I, was, I just and, thought it was so funny. And that speaks to there's a what I said about people defending their stupidity in these movies. Eddie Eddie Adams's mom. He he ha- he has sex with Roller Girl in front of Burt Reynolds or Jack Horner. Then he goes home the next morning and his mom's waiting for him. And she's going, you're dumb. You're stupid. You're so dumb because you didn't finish high school. And he's like, shut up. I'm not dumb or whatever. And he, then the rest of the movie kind of, you never you never really, see, I think she might be right that he's dumb. <laughs> because yeah. you, ne- he, you never see him have like a single critical deep thought. Anytime, he's very, very nice at the beginning. And he's a he's a very good person and very polite to everybody. But anytime he it's a, it's time for him to have like a serious conversation, he's never he never displays any intelligence. When he starts to get success in the porn industry, all he talks about is just making up leather. He's like, oh, this yeah, this is imported Italian leather. Yeah, yeah. He's just he, talking about these superficial cultural consumer consumerist things. He's not saying anything. There's a scene. He also doesn't seem like he really knows what he's talking. Yeah, he's about making it. He's saying. literally making yeah. it up. Yeah, and. So that's an interesting. I don't. I don't want to speak out of turn, but I. I saw somebody talk about maybe because his mom. I know, at first was kind of apprehensive about his film career, and maybe the mom thing in Boogie Nights had something to do, and like being an idiot has something to do with his relationship with his mom. Also, one of the themes of the movie, or I guess one of the midpoint collisions of the movie, is the transitory time of the pornography industry transitioning from film to video. And I think that th- thing going on in it kind of ex- kind of makes it makes the movie exist out of its own time where you can you can I think that maybe that was speaking to the transition between film and digital in Hollywood 
because around this time, the first movie, like around 1997, the first movies were being written digitally on a computer, filmed digitally on a camera, and then edited digitally. That was like the first time that was happening, was the late 90s, early 2000s. And like that could speak to that as well. But now, it, it, that ana- the analogy of that transitory time can, is also analogous to what's going on with theaters versus streaming. It's not the exact same thing, but that I think that kind of makes the movie exist out of the, you know, the 1980s. And you can, it, it kind of, how do I explain this? It kind of you can transpose the, the that concept to any time we're living in now, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I guess, was it a subconscious thing of Paul Thomas Anderson thinking about how that transition may decrease the quality of certain aspects of making a film? Yeah, I or think making movies. Well, I think it. I think it was portraying like a sort of loss of innocence because right after because that conversation happens at the midpoint of the movie. It, uh, with Floyd Gondoli comes mm-hmm. in, he's like, "Well, I like butter in my ass, and we got to start using videotape." Mm-hmm. And then everything goes downhill, and because it, and everything seems so perfect before that, mm-hmm. so I think it's it's sort of it's sort of you know greater society or greater economics getting into something that was just so fun and perfect or whatever. Even though I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily endorsing pornography because every everybody's woes and Everybody's woes and joys in the movie are connected to them being in pornography. Mm-hmm. Like Jesse St. Vincent and Buck can't get a, a loan, and Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't portray that as the banker is the villain, and Buck and Jesse are victims. It just when I see that scene, I'm like, that's a good point. Like they can't endure, they can't give a loan to a pornographer, but then Buck's like, no, I'm an actor. I want to. Do this is a real business. I'm like that's a good point too. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure like who's right and wrong in the situation. It's sort of an, an again a non moralistic thing. Mm-hmm. But Jesse and Buck are also together because of their connections in the porn industry, right? Yeah, and it's it's every character has that thing where their whole everything that's good in their life is because of porn, but everything that's bad in their life is also porn. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very non moralistic thing. You brought up a thing to me about Buck and Jesse that I thought was interesting, which was the deleted scene between them. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. where they try. He talks about how they tried to have sex like normal people, yeah. but they can't not get into being all oh fuck oh baby you know, oh baby and the, yeah. they keep doing that and they're just like forget about it. We can't we can't even do that right. So it was more of a thing to show that they were struggling to escape that world. Yeah. And they didn't really want to be in it anymore. Yeah, kind of like me right now with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh huh. I hate you too. <laughs> Magnolia, 1999. Hot off the success of Boogie Nights, Anderson was essentially given a blank check for his next project, in which Anderson initially set to make very small and cheap. So, on the outset, any director who had a big movie like Boogie Nights and was given a blank check would go, give me $100 million right now or else I'm going to die. But mm-hmm. what he initially did was, no, I want to make something small and cheap. It was only till later that it kind of ballooned into a very long and big movie. The budget's $37 million, which is for today is like 60-something million. Mm-hmm. So technically that's his biggest movie. And But he talked about how he... 
every he was he, all these ideas that he was thinking about in his head. It just, it just kept adding on and adding on, and a, like you know, and then afterwards, a, a small movie eventually turned into something as giant as Magnolia, and a lot of it was very informed by what was going on in his personal life. It's I think Magnolia is probably his most uh, at least overtly personal movie because obviously his dad passed away in 97 and uh, from cancer that's a big thing in Magnolia takes a more serious turn like straight from the jump of the movie I feel like yeah it's 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 like a guttural movie like he mm. he talks about how he wrote it from the gut so it's this very emotional and maybe some un, sometimes unpolished thing mm. you know while doing the press for Boogie Nights in the UK, Anderson visited the set of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, where he met Kubrick, Nicole Kidman, and Tom Cruise. So Tom Cruise saw, saw Boogie Nights and then called Paul Thomas Anderson. And Paul Thomas Anderson said that's like getting a call from the president of the world. Because <laughs> Tom Cruise in the, in the late 90s was yeah. the guy. Mm-hmm. He, was the, he was the biggest star on the planet. So he tells Paul Thomas Anderson, hey, I want to be in your next movie. Also, he talks about when he met Stanley Kubrick. He said, yeah, I got to meet Stanley Kubrick. It was very nice. He was nice to me when he found out that I directed Boogie Nights. And he was really nice to me when he found out that I wrote Boogie Nights, too. Mm. I guess Kubrick had... Kubrick, I, going back, because we talked about it in, his last, in the last episode we did. Kubrick always was like dying to get his next movie out but he could never find the subject matter that was good enough Mm -hmm. and i guess he admired people who were able to just make up their own subject matter which is why he admired paul thomas anderson and while he was there he didn't have the script he was sort of he sort of had a few ideas around he might he may have had the title magnolia because he said he had the the title for magnolia first and he told tom cruise like all right let me go write this thing but i feel like i don't i feel like i got something naughty for you to do man i don't know what it is but I, I'll, I'll figure it out. And then eight months later, he wrote the script. And it took him eight, eight months. He had the script. The last two weeks, he said he, most of the writing got done. He went to go up, uh, stay up uh, in William H. Macy's cabin in Vermont. And he said he was finishing it. And then he didn't want to leave because there was a snake outside the cabin. And he was scared to leave. So he was like, well, shit, I guess I just got to write this movie. <laughs> and he said most of the writing got done in that two weeks. Filming began in January 1999 and lasted until June of that year, which was chronicled in the making of the documentary Magnolia titled That Moment. So on the special features for the Magnolia, I guess, home, home video release, that documentary is awesome. It's, it's 70 minutes long, and it, chronic, it chronicles day one of production all the way up to the premiere, mm. where they're at the premiere. And it's, I think it's amazing. And the reason it's called that moment is because if you look in the script for Magnolia, which we got back here, since everything takes place at the same time, whenever he cuts to another scene, it, the, the time isn't day or night. It, the time is that moment because it's, everything's happening concurrently. So that's mm-hmm. why the documentary is called that moment. And it's amazing because you're getting to see the nuts and bolts of how a movie works. Anybody who's interested in like how exactly a movie is shot or filmed, or who's what roles people have on the set should definitely watch that. You get to see the first shot of the movie being filmed. And Paul Thomas Anderson's like, "All right, this is the first shot of this movie. Let's try to make a great movie." Blah blah blah. <clears throat> and there's a there's a couple of good sequences where Philip Seymour Hoffman and Paul Thomas Anderson are just goofing off on set. Mm-hmm. And Paul, you can find it on just look up Magnolia Blooper, and you'll find Paul Thomas Anderson's making fun of 
Philip Seymour Hoffman's acting, where he goes, "This is this is what Phil would do. This is in this scene. I go, Phil, uh, you have to go over there and touch that box, right? That's all you have to do. And this is how Phil would do it. And then he just gets up and just goes." Like that. <laughs> he starts like falling around and stuff, and just meddling with stuff. And Paul and uh, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman has like the funniest laugh I've ever heard, where it's that <laughs> like that that like you just feel his that that what do you call it that raspiness in the lungs? Yeah, it's so yeah. good. And that's fun. That's that's a fun clip to see. Yeah, that kind of stuff is always good. Yeah, especially on a thing like that with Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, yes. John C. Riley. Uh-huh. Crazy cast, and Tom Cruise is the only cast member who doesn't appear in the documentary. Why? Which is interesting. I don't know. Maybe because he was like, "I'm not doing." It. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what was his deal. Was he method acting? Maybe. It's funny how he turned into like because his career kind of went down during the whole like when he was like promoting Scientology, mm. and then he just became the I love making movies forever. I'm never gonna stop, <laughs> and everybody loves him again. I like mm-hmm. Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. But do you want to break down a little bit about or what Magnolia is about? Do you, do we have an extra two hours? No, I mean the short version. I guess. Well, well, you can't give a short version. It's it's harder to give a short version. But ba- it's basically Magnolia is inspired by movies like Nashville and Shortcuts, where it follows all these characters. And what you have in this movie are, I guess, nine storylines. Two of them involve a father who has cancer. Two of them involve child prodigies. I I, I mean, who, if, if you're this far into the podcast, you know what Magnolia is. Yeah, I guess. yeah. But mm-hmm. it's basically just following all these people in the San Fernando Valley and coincidence and all these connections drive them together and stuff. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the overarching themes that I notice are how the characters are um, coming to grips with either things that they've done wrong or admitting to their wrongs. Right. Or not admitting to their wrongdoings. And and some of their... There's biblical um references in there with the frogs falling from the skies uh-huh. and everything. You want to hear a funny anecdote about the 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 frogs? Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson was reading a lot of this guy Charles Fort and he that that guy's writing is basically was based I think he was like late early 1800 or late 1800s early 1900s and his writing was all about this weird peculiar supernatural stuff that would happen like a farmer would go outside in the morning and there's just frogs everywhere like where did they come from? And he talked about UFOs and just the, the, this, these weird paranormal things. And that was what partly inspired Paul Thomas Anderson. So he read the about the raining frogs and then put that in the movie. And then he went to go cast Henry Gibson, who was in Nashville. He's the guy in Nashville that goes, 200 mm. years. He's the Thurston whatever. Keep going. Yeah. In this movie, he's Thurston whatever. He's the gay guy who wants to, who's, who, um, Oh. William H Macy's competing with for the for the bartender. Yeah, yeah. And so he goes to his house and he reads a script and he goes, "I like that you put uh the Bible or whatever Exodus." And he's like, "Yes, you I did, did put that. the Bible because he didn't know that was in the Bible. <laughs> he didn't know that was like a biblical thing. No, but oh. then afterwards he learned that it was like Exodus eight two, and that's you could find eight two like hundreds of times in the movie. Mm-hmm. When that guy when the guy's jumping off the building in the beginning, you can see there's wires that make an eight two. There's like a street sign. There's a gas station sign that says eight two. You can see eight two in the in the sign. One of the signs that Paul Thomas Anderson plays a PA who takes the sign away mm-hmm. during the in the 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 game show sequence mm-hmm. that says Exodus eight two on it. So dang, it's like some Pixar theory kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess like that's like the most Kubrick esque thing in that movie, probably putting some weird like coding in the in the background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, foreshadowing. Yeah. I mean, it has a lot. 
the with that, you know, the talk show host mm-hmm. who at the end we find out had probably uh, sexually abused. Yes, maybe molested his daughter. Molested probably. her daughter, most his daughter, most likely. Um, he won't. Ex- he won't accept it, or he won't say it. He just won't say it to the wife, and he goes to uh, shoot himself, and the frog falls through and causes him to shoot an electrical thing, causing a fire, and it's sort of an analogy for hell. He's trying to take himself out in a different way, but instead he gets burned, and he won't. I feel like that's pointing towards the fact that he won't accept what he did. Or even admit his wrongdoings, right? And it sends him, yeah. It for it, like it forces him to reckon with the consequences because you don't know if he died. Like it that in that sequence, the fire starts, yeah, yeah. But you're not sure if it burns the whole house down or something like mm-hmm. that. So I think that's that's there's some sort of ambiguity there, unless there's a cut scene. But that's the last time we see his character. So I think the defining thing of what that scene's saying is basically like, nah, you can't take the easy way out. The the whole movie is basically people dealing with this recognition there's it's like a reckoning of their karma for bad or good you know and what i magnolia are we at the point where we're going to talk about what we think about it are we doing that uh yeah we can all right yeah sure so magnolia to me i've seen it like four or five times every time i watch it the first time i watched it i was like this is great second time i watched it it's not that good third time i watched it no this is a giant mess but it's great it's just this emotional great mess. For this time around, I watched it. I go, it's good. Mm. I keep growing in and out of it. It's very, very strange to me. Why and do you? Why do you think that is? I think because it's sort of since the movie is so emotionally based. Not just obviously a movie is emotionally is supposed to be an emotional experience. Ideally, sometimes there are intellectually stimulating ones, which is fine. But I think since we talked about how he wrote this from the gut, and I think. That's why sometimes it could feel a little hit or miss or first drafty or unpolished. And Adam Naiman, who's a critic who wrote that that orange book behind you, he talked about how Magnolia was a movie made without a delete button, which makes sense because Anderson said he the, the movie started out as a small thing and then he just kept adding and adding and adding to it. And it's almost like he had something. And then in order to make it work, he couldn't change it or cut stuff out and put it put things in differently. The only way he can make this work is if he adds something over here, which is why the movie is so filled and seems to be about everything thematically. There's not one thing that's thematically about. It seems tied together by so many ideas. And and but the one of the side effects of that is there's so many ideas going on, but the geography of the movie is so big that it's, I'm not sure how those ideas are supposed to... They, they, those ideas feel so far apart from each other on opposite ends of the movie sometimes. And they don't... It's ironic that they don't... I don't feel like they fully come together. I can give you an example of something that should have been deleted more that wasn't deleted. There, he only pressed delete the delete, delete button once. The singing? That I know. What? The singing? No. <laughs> I will just, get to that. That was weird. That was will, out of nowhere get for that. me. I'm about to go on a tangent. I'm sorry. Yeah, advance. go ahead. Go ahead. So look, he's getting already. He just turned in. <laughs> he just turned in and turned the seat. Put the seatbelt on. So, okay. The, there's there's a sequence. There's a subplot that I think there's remnants of a subplot that I think should have been fully deleted. They're partly deleted. I don't know why he didn't. Because maybe because he only had six months to edit the movie. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why the maybe the edit feels unfinished or it feels first drafty. I don't think. But anyway, I'm getting off track. 
There's the the character Dixon, the young black kid that uh, uh, Jim runs into after he finds the dead bod- body in that woman Marcy's yeah, yeah. house. That kid comes up to him, and it's like the most, I guess, cryptic or enigmatic scene where the kid, he's like, I know who did it. Like, let's work together. And he's like, shut up, little man. You don't know what you're talking about. And the kid sings this rap about, you know, something about, th- that's when shit starts raining, like foreshadowing the rain of the frogs. And he goes, I just told you who did it. And I've seen the movie four times, and I'm not sure exactly what, I guess it's a foreshadow, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure, I don't know exactly the geography of the ideas behind that. I'm not, I, when it's that, not When that me. came around the first time, I watched it again, because I was like, thinking maybe i just didn't pay attention well enough to what he said but yeah. i couldn't get any meaning out of it that was just me yeah though, and but i don't rapped. think that's just i don't think it's our fault because i think that might be the result of some stuff that was cut out because the next time we see him there's there's a scene like an hour into the movie where everybody's connected by these whip pans it, it the, and so now every the, there's a, the camera is itself is connecting all these characters together not only their situations but the actual you know visuals and but Dixon, the kid, the little black kid, his name is Dixon. He's in that those those whip pants, and that suggests that he's on equal footing, presence wise, as any other character in this movie. Which doesn't feel like the case. There's a shot of him it whip pants to like what looks like a boy's home, and they're watching what do kids know on the television. And then this guy walks in, and then he looks up. Dixon looks up, and this guy has a very ominous presence, and he grabs him by the shirt and then pulls him away, and then. The next time we see either of those characters is the scene where I think the mistake most blatantly occurs is when Jim finds sees the guy running. Uh, he sees the ominous man walking down the street, and then he runs and he goes, "Okay." He turns around and chases the guy, and then Jim falls down this weird patch of vegetation, and he loses his gun, and he starts searching for it. And then we see a shot of Dixon t- picking up the gun and grabbing it, and then the ominous man running away. And that's where I think the mistake is, is not cutting out that shot of Dixon taking the gun. Because then the next time we see Dixon is when he runs into Julianne Moore's character. I think her name was Linda. She's in the car, unconscious. And he goes, hey, lady. And then he calls the ambulance for her, but also takes her wallet. But there's no mention or suggestion of who was in possession of the gun. In the That Moment documentary, there's a deleted scene where the ominous man and Dixon meet and they're talking to somebody in a diner, Dixon runs in and pulls up the gun like this, and the ominous man takes it away, right? Mm. We can't use that for interpretation because it's out of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So now, the, and, then, and then at the end, the rain, the rain of frogs occurs, and then Jim saves Donnie, and then at, in the next morning, as like an, almost like an afterbirth of all the frogs falling out of the sky, the gun lands right in front of Officer Jim, and he sees it. And I'm, I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because the uh, the whole idea of what the Reign of Frogs kind of represented was, was Paul Thomas Harrison said when he started researching the word magnolia, the word magonia came up. And the magonia is basically, like I guess biblically, is a place above the firmament where stuff disappears to only to fall out of the sky years later. There's a book called Passport to Magonia that I read by Jacques Vallée. He's like a ufologist in quotes. That's what they call themselves. It's a very interesting book. It's not, it's not concerned with the physical reality of UFOs. It basically makes the the observation that UFOs, the modern myth around or lore around UFOs is very consistent with ancient folklore, medieval folklore, and that aliens are just the sci-fi filter we've placed over. It's a very interesting book. You should go read it. But so it's where stuff in, in, the, in that book, he talks about how people would be, there's legends of people being kidnapped by these beings with craft, and then they go up to the Magonia, and then they come back and be delivered back like years later. That's the same idea. It's a very ethereal 
supernatural paranormal thing, right? But what I think having Dixon pick up the gun does is take out the mystery of Officer mm-hmm. Jim's gun disappearing. If we just saw it disappear, that would set it up for a more ethereal feeling because there's no way they could not find it. Yeah, Where yeah. did it go? And then when we see it fall out of the sky, it makes sense because the movie has this lining of, you know, of a paranormal supernatural thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think that's consistent. I think that the two, D- Dixon picking up the gun and falling out of the sky are two things that don't fit together. Mm-hmm. You know? Unless, un- well, obviously there was stuff cut out. Yes. And that makes me believe that what was cut out is that this is now basing it off of the deleted scene. Yeah. That guy took the gun, threw it in the water. Yeah. That's how that's I got what, That's what I thought. Like that, something out of Sydney where he throws it in the grate, the mm, sewer grate. I was mm-hmm. like, maybe that happens. And it ends up in the water, yeah. which then is how the real version of the frog uh, storms happen. The water gets sucked up. And yeah, that, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? We can't, we can't use that as an interpretation. Yeah. So it's kind of just... You know what it feels like, though? That whole Dixon subplot? Because I do think... Because when we first see Dixon... Uh, he, it's it's a bl- a black kid with a police officer, and I think that was setting itself up to be like because this movie's about everything, right? Except the race, mm-hmm. and I think if whatever was cut out, probably would have had like a racial yeah. angle. But doesn't that to me that partially deleted thing? I think feels like cut content from a video game. Like you see, like if you're playing Red Dead Two. And you see a house, this house, it's super detailed, and it's like in this very prominent spot. And then you're like, oh, I can't go in here. What is this? And then you find out it's cut content. That's what it feels like. Yeah. I think the shot of D- Dixon t- taking the gun and then the shot of the whip pan to him in the boy's home, I think that should have been cut out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry if I spent too long on that. No, it, it makes sense, though. Well, not like the as a, as a whole, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But I think... If the gun just disappeared, maybe he just left it in to show that the gun didn't just disappear. That was the only reason, you know. Yeah. You know, th- I, I, yeah. I don't know. I would, that's what I would ask him why he kept that in if I yeah, if I ever yeah. run into him. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you want to talk about the the singing, the wise up scene? Yeah, yeah. I think that scene would work so much better. It's actually the opposite critique of I have of. The Dixon thing, where the Dixon thing, I'm like, this should have felt more ethereal and mysterious. Whereas the the wise up scene feels like too supernatural and too un too much like an unreality. Is all you would have to do in that scene. And Paul Thomas Anderson made this connection to that sequence. Is he goes that that sequence is inspired by you know maybe you're, if you hear a song on the radio and you're singing it, there's a good chance that other people are singing it too. Which makes me think, why didn't he just have that song playing on TV or the radio and they all just be happening to sing it? To sing it? Not only does that go in line with the theme of the movie about this, these, these tales of extreme coincidence, it's, all, it's just by chance that they all happen to be singing the song at the same time at a certain point in their character arc. That, and, but now that there's no reason for them to sing, it's, it's, it's almost like a two... It's, we're, it's, suspending our dis- it's asking us to suspend our disbelief too much. So they all just start singing the song out of nowhere. I think that's where. I think mm-hmm. I agree. I think. Do you? What do you think about that? Scene? I just it it came out of for me watching it. It just came out of left field. Yeah. Because maybe if it was a TV program where she was doing a live performance of the song and everybody's tuned in, that would make more sense. But the the first person who starts singing is the 
what's her name? She does all the coke. Uh, Melora Waters' character. I forget yeah, her name. Yeah, she's the first one who sings. We already know that she listens to vinyl records based off of the early interaction with John C. Riley's character who comes in and says, oh, you got to turn your records down. And we, I keep it at three. So she's listening to it on a record. Someone else is listening on it to it in a car. Exactly, yes. So uh, in my mind, I was wondering where, how it was happening, I guess. And, uh, you know. So we're kind of on the same page. It needed a, it needed a real-world catalyst for that to happen rather than for just me, occurring out of nowhere. For me, in yet. my personal opinion, that's about it. Yeah, but my but personal is opinion is also objectively correct, which also makes you correct. Yes, yes. Yes. Hell yes. <laughs> All right. I, what I, but part of my, I have a complicated relationship with Magnolia because... Like I said, it's a lot of it is hit or miss, and I think the movie's too aware of how sad it is. A lot of it feels like, oh, look how sad this is. But I think Magnolia feels like an athlete with all the natural talent in the world, but sometimes he just can't get his shit together. Where it's like, oh, how did he do? Like, oh, oh, for, how did he do in the first 30 minutes? Oh, he did great. He had seven home runs. That opening sequence was fantastic. Well, how did he do at the the wise up scene when they all sing? It's like, he kind of got full of himself a little bit. I don't know. I'm not saying he's. I'm not saying Paul Thomas Anderson got a little full of himself. But however, Paul Thomas Anderson has retroactively said, "I cut like 20 minutes out of that thing for sure." Yeah. And he goes, "I had way too much confidence," and I think. But I, I kind of like it as this weird. I kind of like it as this intention, in, intensely emotional, non-intellectual mm-hmm. thing. I'm not saying it's non-intellectual to dismiss it. I'm saying it's. It's very gut-oriented rather than brain-oriented, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that is different about this, though, is at points how empty the world seems rather than lively in his other films. You know, there's scenes where the cop is driving and there's nobody on the road except the one guy running. You know, that's one of the things that stood out to me is how unlively and almost dreamlike some sequences seem to me at least that's interesting it's almost like a precursor to the to the oil embargo sequence in licorice pizza mm. there's just nobody on the streets it's a good I, I didn't i never noticed it but now that i think about it also there's like nobody on the street when the only people on the street that we see during the reign of frogs is yeah. jim uh melora waters's mom and the ambulance carrying Linda. Mm-hmm. It's it seems oddly empty at yeah. points, which stood out to me after the first watch, because every other thing he does usually has the characters that stand out in the background, and this one is sort of missing that. Maybe maybe not missing, or just intentionally that way. Yeah, we have to talk about Tom Cruise's performance. Excellent. Amazing. Oh my god! Perfect. It's funny because he he if he played such like a repressed and almost cuckolded character in Eyes Wide Shut for eighteen months straight. That in this he was finally like, God damn it! Finally, I can just let loose, and he's like the craziest man of all time. And it's excellent. He's absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. If you get those dogs get near me, I will drop I will, kick. I will <laughs> <laughs> or even when he gets in his underwear with the reporter lady, yeah, and yeah. he just does a backflip, and he's like. Whoo. Any woman, oh my God, just one glance. That's all it takes. Like, this is the greatest thing that anybody's... <laughs> Did you see Ni- uh, the second, the Glass Onion, the second Knives yeah, Out? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Remember when they're flashing back to Ed Norton's character? And he's, and dressed, one, like and he's dressed like Tom Cruise in Magnolia. 
Yeah. Excellent. It's so good. Nothing to do with this movie, but uh, still. It's so good. I mean, uh, how much of a jerk he is. Yeah. and how. But at the same time, as he's being a jerk, you already get a sense that there's a reason for this. Oh, yeah. You definitely. know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, exactly. He's not just actually that way. He's traumatized. Yes. And it's made him that way. Oh, my. And the way he cries, dude, <laughs> is the best. Not only like he... Like, it's Tom Cruise, right? So he's extreme in everything. But when he has a crying scene, he cries harder than anybody's ever cried in a movie. Yeah, Just yeah. like, hold, hold my mic. <laughs> just, the way, just the way he's not crying like he's blubbering and stuff. He's just going... <laughs> like, he, it's just like the most tense movements. Yeah, and he's, yeah. And he claps. Mm. Oh, my God. It's hard. Oh, my God. So amazing. Yeah. I love it so much. He's crying... As if he's wanted to really say that for he's, so long. Yeah, and he's trying to repress it so much. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, my it's god! All that repressed energy just coming yeah. out of he him. He clenches his jaw and goes, mm-hmm. "I am quietly judging you." Yeah, to the lady. Yeah, oh, yeah. He just buys out his tie and goes, "Fuck you, bitch." Also, yeah. there's a scene that was a, that was epic too. I'm this, when, he, when he stands judge- up, and on one side you have his Gentiles. privates area, and mm-hmm. then you have her face. He does a similar shot like that in Hard Eight, Paul Thomas Anderson. Where Clementine goes, do you want to have sex with me, Sydney? When they get into the room, and Sydney is standing up, and all you see is Sydney's lower. Like, you just see him from the chest down. Same shot he uses in Magnolia. But with that character brings forth one of the th- other themes that I thought was important to bring up is how the parenting um, plays a part in how people grow up. Mm. Obviously, he was subject to a crappy father. Oh, for a second, I thought you said to Paul, I thought you were no, no, Paul no, no, not Paul Thomas. No, uh, yeah, uh, um, yeah, Frank, Frank T.J. Mackey. Yeah, yeah, he was subject to a crappy father. He grew up, and a lot of that negative energy, which we learn later, comes from his father cheating on his mom, um, and leaving at a really crucial part of their lives, turned him into a sort of a monster, sort of like. Andrew Tate kind of character. <laughs> I think he's more likable than Andrew Tate, though. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Andrew Tate's... I mean, well, boy, it's, I mean he's Tom Cruise, so of course he's more Yeah, likable. yeah, yeah. You're thinking of it. I meant his character, though. Are you saying you not... like Andrew Tate, Danny? I think no, that's what no, you said. No, we're not getting into this. I think you said you're a big fan of him, <laughs> and then not, you stand no. by anything he's ever no, said. <laughs> never, never, never. Yeah, I see, I see what you mean, though. Because the parent-children relationship between Frank T.J. Mackey and Earl Partridge and how that messed him up, is also prevalent in was it Stanley? Stanley was Stanley Specter the actor's name, the kid, the little quiz kid. His name Stan- is Stanley. Stanley, Stanley. Yeah. and then it's a uh, Donnie Smith. His parents took his money. Phil, uh, Jamie Gator, and his daughter, uh, Claudia. That's her name, Claudia. And who else? Who else? Name the other characters: Tom Cruise, Julianne Moore, Phil. Not really. So yeah, I guess those characters are all. It's just showing the product of how their parents raising their parents affected them, which makes sense if this movie because Paul Thomas Anderson has been asked like, "What's this movie about?" And years later, and he says, "My dad. It's about my dad." Mm-hmm. So, did he have a good relationship with his dad or no? <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 not I mean, just be, just because it's about his dad doesn't mean his dad did what Jimmy Gator did to his daughter to him. Like it's it's basically just this emotional raw emotional movie that. The genesis of that emotion comes from losing his dad. He may, he might it might have been a gut, like a knee jerk reaction to him thinking like oh thank God I had him because there's people who don't have a good 
father figure or parental figure in their life and it just it seems like a common thing that doesn't lead to good things for those people and both dads in the in the movie have cancer and they're gonna die mm-hmm. just like his dad mm-hmm. and it's and it's um it's a mirrored thing too with the quiz kid he loses all his money his parents take it their his parents are we never see them but we know mm-hmm. from the context that they're pretty poor people, pretty bad people. And we see Stanley kind of Has dodge worst, that bullet. The worst dad ever. Yeah. <laughs> the dad infuriates me, dude. Stanley's yeah. dad. Yeah. When he's mm-hmm. like, let's make some goddamn money. Everybody everybody in that whole s- s- production yeah. pisses me off when she, Literally she won't let him go. She won't let yeah, she won't let him go the to the bathroom. And then and then the um, producers goes, "What's wrong with him?" She's like, "I don't know." It's like she pretends like it wasn't her fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that that whole that whole thing is a whole another story with Magnolia too. They, he kind of points out the oddity of that whole portion of television. Yeah, and he yeah, sh- and he also child grew, prodigy yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, and he also grew up, or like we said before, he grew up around that mm-hmm. environment and television. And I think a good thing to end on about Magnolia is, I said before, it's this giant emotional thing. And I think sometimes movies operate best when they make you react to something that you don't have the words for. For example, when it, it basically it's this, ready? When you're watching a movie and you go, oh, and I don't know what that means. There's the scene when the frogs start raining and they hit Donnie in the face. And then he breaks his teeth, right? Mm, oh. Obviously, there's the the irony is that his teeth are perfect, but he wanted to get braces to impress Brad. And then when he there's an irony in him breaking his teeth. I don't know what that idea means, but I go, oh, that's good. Or the rain, or the raining of the frogs is basically the rain, the whole raining of the frogs. When you watch that for the first time, you don't know what it means, but you're watching this thing occurring, going, oh, this this supersedes language for me, you know. And I guess the but and like again going back to even I'm sorry if we're getting a little repetitive, but Paul Thomas Anderson later said, you know, hearing my dad, hearing a doctor tell me that my dad was going to die of cancer was basically I, I remember I remember he goes I remember thinking when he told me that you're telling me that frogs are falling from the sky. On January seventh, two thousand, Magnolia was released nationwide in the U.S. Critical reception was mixed to positive. For example, Janet Maslin at the New York Times said in her review, it's astonishing to see a film begin this brilliantly only to to torpedo itself in its final hour. Yeah, and I get that because we talked about about the two sequences that are kind of giant swings that may or may not have paid off. That would be the wise up scene and then the frogs falling from the sky. What do we got? What else we got? Magnolia was nominated for three Oscars, Best Supporting Actor for Tom Cruise, Best Original Song for Amy Mann, and Best Original Screenplay for Anderson. Yeah. I guess I, I maybe people were expecting it to be, I'm just assuming here, but maybe people are expecting it to be like a big awards contender that maybe gets like between five and ten nominations, let's say. Mm-hmm. I still think, I don't think a barometer for how good a movie is, though, is the Oscar nominations. I guess from a business standpoint, short term it is. But long term, I think Magnolia is still maybe not maybe maybe not one of the greatest movies of all time, but definitely a movie that has a lot of discourse around it and has stayed in the conversation for film in the film community mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. 
And and also it the budget was thirty seven million and I think it made like forty eight million, which isn't the, I don't think it's theatrically profitable because it would need something maybe closer to like seventy or eighty to be pro or maybe even fifty or sixty to be profitable at that time. But ancillary markets like home video and stuff like that, T V cable runs, it probably has made money back since then. Definitely. Oh, I would imagine. It has that rewatchability as as almost like a Kubrick film does. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I was talking about this today with people in my right group. They oh, they keep saying, they said, I don't know if I like Paul Thomas Anderson because every time I watch it, I, I'm i not sure how I feel and I want to watch it again. I'm like, that's the point. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to, mm-hmm. especially when we get to things like The Master or Inherent, Inherent Vice especially is, uh, yeah. <laughs> is, like, is like, Inherent Vice is like that infinite jest book that I talked about, the David Foster Wallace book. And all at once I knew, I knew it once, I knew he needed me. Punch Drunk Love, 2002. Anderson expressed that he wanted to get away from all the sadness and cancer of Magnolia and wanted to make something fun. Inspired by the comedies of Adam Sandler, Anderson met with him about making a movie together. There were three Adam Sandler movies that he was a big fan of. There was Happy Gilmore... I think Little Nicky was first, and then Big Daddy, or Big Daddy was before Little Nicky. And those movies, he said he would see a glint in Adam Sandler's eyes when he would get really, really angry, and that he you could not see the whites of his eyes, and it didn't feel like he was acting. And he said he saw something in Sandler. People thought he was joking. Like, after Magnolia, people said, who would you like to work with again? And he said, Adam Sandler and Daniel Day-Lewis, and everybody thought he was joking. But like, mm-hmm. no, he was dead serious, and those are the two actors he worked with in his next preceding movies and there is probably the funniest clip one of the funniest clips i've ever seen where i don't know if it's during production but it might be during pre-production because i know he he hung out with sandler for a while before they started making the movie and they're in a car and and sandler keeps calling him pta i'm here with pta i got my licorice and they're eating they're both high as shit Mm-hmm. And they, he goes, I got my licorice PTA. What do you got? And Paul Thomas Anderson goes, Gummy bears. <laughs> <laughs> the little cool, kid, the greatest, high. one of the greatest <laughs> filmmakers of the 21st century, just going, Gummy bears. <laughs> it's the funniest thing to me. Uh, how can he be so organized yet so like little kid high exactly. at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad we were able to put that in the podcast. That's uh-huh. one of the funniest things. And I think the genesis for the idea of Punch Drunk Glove as a whole happened when he met Maya Rudolph, because the movie is about falling in love, mm-hmm. and retroactively he said it's about love, man. Nothing. It's not about anything more than that. And he was he did a, ske- a sketch for SNL. I think it was called like Hercules or maybe I couldn't. I I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. It's it's it's, it's you could definitely find it on um was it Peacock. SNL's on. You can. I'm sure if yeah. you look up the episode in his IMDb, you can watch it. And so he did a sketch. He directed a sketch for SNL, and then he said he saw, he read a name of somebody who was about to be on the show, and he saw the name Maya Rudolph. And it, it, to his recollection, he said, "I saw that name Maya Rudolph, and I just had this weird feeling like I knew this name was going to be important to me somehow." Mm. And I still hung around there, and I, I met her a few times. And then I went to London to work on something, and I was just like, no, I want to go back. And he went back to New York to ask her out. Mm. And then they were together. It says they, got, it says they married in 2002, where they started 
you know, they started to get together in 2002, which is around when Punch Drunk Love came out. So that's very that's so that's very interesting. So I think it's possible that that's why he made Punch Drunk Love because that's when he met mm-hmm. Maya Rudolph. That would make sense, as a lot of the other themes of his movies have something to do with something from his real life. Yes, that's a good point. You know, Boogie Nights, his porn obsession slash growing up in the porn industry, Magnolia, his father, and this, his love for Maya Rudolph. Yeah. Wow. And also he said sort of the, the chicken soup to just being all depressed because he was making Magnolia, it's a very depressing movie, mm-hmm. was that he would watch movies like by Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, which which had a big influence on this movie. And those were just very happy, and they were only 90 minutes, and they weren't these long, dark movies. And he would gravitate to movies like that, movies like Adam Sandler's movies. So where the scripts for Boogie Nights and Magnolia were 152 and 194 pages, the script for Punch Drunk Love was only 95 pages. Production got underway in February 2001. I think I remember. I thought it was on the Charlie Rose interview, but I rewatched it. I didn't hear them talk about it. I heard that they started filming for two weeks, and then stopped because they didn't have a flow going on. I wasn't. I'm not sure what it was. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that's true. And then eventually they got back and got started again. One of the things that uh, Sandler talked about that we didn't talk about when we were talking about them getting together was. Anderson goes, I want you to be in my next movie. And then Sandler goes, okay. And he went and saw Magnolia. And he goes, you want me to do that? Yeah, he was not. Anyway. He didn't feel he was capable? He didn't feel like he was capable of doing a dramatic role like that. Mm-hmm. But he, but obviously Punch Drunk Love is a very, what would you call it? Very funky movie. Yeah. And Paul Thomas Anderson described it as like the art house Adam Sandler movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it 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 is totally different from most of the characters that he's played. So the the mattress man commercial, where does this come up? The, so I saw this on YouTube, and I had no idea how they filmed it or what it was for. It's 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 Philip Seymour Hoffman doing like a commercial for his character mm-hmm. Doug Doug Tremble and Dean Dean Tremble. And he's on the he's on top of the roof to the plate, or no, he's on top of a bus, or something. And he's he has a guitar. He goes, "Hey, this is Dean Trumbull, the Mattress Man. We got seventy five dollars for a mattress, and only this for two ninety nine. And then he jumps off and like lands on mattresses on top of a car, mm-hmm. but he doesn't hit it properly, and he falls right onto the pavement. And I'm like, they got Philip Seymour Hoffman to do this. Surely, I think that was scripted. Mm-hmm. And they got Philip Seymour Hoffman to do that stunt. That is insane. Me and my dad are rewatching it to like see if the pavement is cushioned, and it doesn't look like it, mm. but apparently it is cushioned, which is how they did the stunt, because there's an actual commercial you could find of a mattress man doing the exact same thing, oh. where he goes, hey, two ninety nine, and they they basically re- recreated the commercial beat by beat, line by line. Yeah, I was worried about that goddamn thing. He falls off, and it's hilarious. Please go watch. Just look up mattress man commercial. In the link, put it. No, in we're the not link. linking it. I'm not plugging it. All they right. have to pay me. That video has to pay me. <laughs> okay. Anyway. All right. <laughs> Fuck you guys. Then. <laughs> oh man. Cut that out. Yep. <laughs> I'm cutting out everything you say this episode, pal. Yeah, this is bad. I'm I'm fucking it up. <laughs> what? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Comment down below if you think Danny's messing it up, and also be extra mean about it. 
Punch Drunk Love was released nationwide on November 1st, 2002. Critics praised it, but audience gave the movie a terrible D-plus on CinemaScore. We talked about how Eyes Wide Shut got it like a D-minus on CinemaScore. Anything below, like anything around a C below is pretty disastrous. If your movie gets a C, it depends what kind of movie you are. But if you're a big budget movie and you get a C, something, that's almost unheard of. That's crazy bad. And this movie, it, it was only $25 million budget, but Adam Sandler at that time was very strong in the box office. And so it made $24 million worldwide off of a $25 million budget. And so if you go, that's, that's definitely a theatrical loss. I don't know if it was, if that's, I don't know if that's enough to eventually make a profit, you know, in, in ancillary markets. I don't know how many DVDs they'd have to sell to be profitable. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I, I understand why audiences were, it didn't sit well with audiences because I've seen the movie six times. I've probably seen that movie more than any other Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Oh, really? I've seen that movie like six times. And the first time I watched it, I had a really bad fever. And every time I watch the movie, I feel that fever. Yeah. But yeah. also, it it was just me not. I just didn't understand the point of it. Like it didn't sit right with me. I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't find the frequency on the radio that this movie was operating at. Hmm. And but this time, this, doing this, like watching the movie and then writing a bunch of notes on it, really helps me understand the movie. And I think I under. I appreciated them because I watched this a few months ago only, and I I still like I still don't get it. This time, writing writing down my thoughts have really helped me appreciate it. And the conclusion or realization I've come to is if you treat this movie like you're watching The Courage, The Cowardly Dog Show, it makes a whole lot more sense. Because the premise of The Courage, The Cowardly Dog Show when you're a kid is, oh, there's this dog and he exists. He has to protect his owners from this hellish encroaching world where all these monsters are trying to get at his owners and stuff like that. And then as you get older, you realize, no, that's just how he perceives the world. So for Courage the Cowardly Dog, a mailman becomes a flying spaghetti monster. And what we're watching with Barry is the world is so chaotic around him. And all all the... the beats you'd have in a traditional narrative are there, sort of, but they're all scrambled and shifted around and out of order. So, for example, there's a scene where Barry gets punched, and he he says "ow" before he gets punched. Like the re- the reaction is before the action because everything in the movie is being all scrambled up. And that first twenty minutes is so chaotic because that's just how he interprets the world. His socially anxious, the, the world doesn't make any sense to him. And then when he finds that harmonium. That's what really starts to get him in tune. Is he? That's when he. Paul Thomas Anderson talked about how this movie's about getting in tune, and the only times where we see him do that is when he has that harmonium, and that harmo- the appearance of that harmonium is sort of linked to the appearance of Lena, and the first time, the like the same the same way a mailman turns into a flying spaghetti monster for courage, him getting you know, abducted by those four blonde brothers is portrayed like a UFO abduction. You, if, you, if you rewatch that scene, it's like a, he's getting abducted by aliens. There's that light that stays there and then that zooms away and there's this weird UFO noise and stuff. And the world doesn't make any sense. Like chairs break down weirdly. There's a scene where he's looking at the cans for the, the coupons and he's 
gliding like he's like he's getting pulled like he's not walking yeah, i love that shot and then he, you could hear the footsteps so not everything's coming together and then the, but the first time you see a mo- the movie perform a scene in a tr- traditionally dramatic way is when he kisses lena for the first time yeah the camera pushes in their choreography is perfect and the music kicks in and all those three things are working in perfect harmony for the first time mm-hmm. and i think that I finally, mm-hmm. I find that's what makes me finally get the movie. And even right before that, when they kiss, is such an anxiety-inducing experience. It's, but it's funny too when he's running around the and he just can't remember where her room is. Yeah, and he's going. That back. seems like a bad dream yeah. sequence. Like you just, I, I could imagine myself like being rooms. in a dream, just not knowing where to go. Yeah, knowing the that there's someone waiting for a, yeah. a kiss. Exactly. It's like it's like those dreams where you're getting dressed the whole dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So annoying. Where you show up to school and you're not dressed, and you realize, oh, dang, you must be insecure as <laughs> shit because I'd never had that dream. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's so many. There is so many instances of just feeling anxious. He's trying to finally talk to Lena, and everything in the shop is just going to shit. They like they crash and knock over all the stuff. That scene gives me so many. Hey, fellas, you're all right. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just kind of knocks on the... He's, he just wants to focus on her. He finally has something. He has a few things that he really wants to focus on, but everything else is yeah. blocking him from doing that. Even the... Uh, oh, I felt so anxious when he walks into his family for the first time. Oh, yeah. And he walks in and walks back out. And you're just thinking, why doesn't he just walk in? And then he walks in and the um, first few lines are all like, are you gay? Or what's wrong What's up, with you? Gay voice? Yeah, like, yeah. God damn it. <laughs> the worst possible thing to say to him. Yeah. Someone who's just feeling so anxious and he just walks in. They're like, Remember when we used to call you gay boy? Yeah. <laughs> and then he breaks the window and they call him the R word. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. that you could just tell there's that ho- a whole lifetime of... Yeah. That's why he's he's he was so domineered by these, these very invasive sisters. All the sisters call him and they're like, what are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. What, why? Why don't you like her? Well, what's going? Are you gonna come? Don't. Why are you wearing that suit? They're all. It's like impo- it's impossible for him to live. Yeah, all that stuff. It, it made it made total sense. Everything that happened before that, once he shows up to the party, it makes a lot more sense why he's acting so strange. What did you? Where does this land in your ranking of what tier of Paul Thomas Anderson movie does it? Ha- what was your enjoyment of this? Oh, I, I really, I really did enjoy this movie a lot. There's so many shots where you look at it, and it's that is Paul Thomas Anderson. The first shot, he's in blue, the blue line on the wall. He's high. He's, he's all cornered up. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of enjoyment, <laughs> I had just watched all of his other movies that were three hours. So it was a nice break to go to a ninety-minute movie, and that's probably <laughs> get, why I've seen it the most times. It's bit. only ninety yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You're in and out. Mm-hmm. So, and even even if even if I still didn't understand the movie the sixth time, I still think it's worth the watch just because it is very very funny. Yeah, yeah. The scene still like funny like parts. the scenes where he's in Hawaii and he's asking for Lena's number, and he's at the phone booth, and his sister. 
He's like, why do you want her number? He's like, just give me the fucking number. You can't treat me. I'll fucking kill you. Mm-hmm. Give me the fucking number. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's so funny. You can't just fucking help me out. Fucking yeah. God damn it. He's run- this when way. he's running away after he gets punched, and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so strange. It's crazy. Like, why? And or even when um after he says bye bye to Lena and he doesn't bye kiss bye. her, he goes bye bye. <laughs> Stupid motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Bye bye. Yeah. I I don't know if it's underrated, but I think I I think Punch Drunk Love is one that people should give more of a chance. I know because I know there's a lot of people who love it, and I didn't know why. But mm. now I feel like I'm one of those people. I want to hear your thoughts about the shot when he shows up and goes in for the handshake. Oh, in she Hawaii. Just kisses him. Yeah. And it's and then it goes to the wide shot, all the people walking by, beautiful ocean in the background, water, and they're just kissing. I, I think that's one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen. And I do like how it highlights the every social interaction he has is still awkward. Like There's an awkwardness in the way he goes to yeah, for the handshake. Yeah. Or even when he goes to Hawaii, and ev- like even getting on a plane for him is awkward. They find a way to make it awkward where... The hall that he has to go down is is a little bit too long, and he ha- and he sees the, the the flight attendants at the end of the hall, and he has his ticket, and he's going, and he does that little jog, and he doesn't he can't just walk up like he has to do a thing. That's very good, but that shot that shot's worthy of the poster. It's the whole po- it's the whole movie, you know. I don't like you know I don't I, I'm not I'm not as well versed in picking apart that shot and saying well they're silhouetted because of this philosophy thing you know that's a great shot a great scene i like i like how they people walking by they when they walk by when they mm. start kissing and then they all again that's like a paul the way people walk in the background of paul thomas anderson's movies is such a particular style i don't know how he can like how he tells them how he communicates that to a bunch of people to walk a certain way or maybe it's just the way he frames it but even the the way lena kind of hooks around that garden where he sees her for the first time in that scene where he's waiting and he sees her out the door and she kind of does this curve around and he cuts and she comes around and then he cuts closer and then cuts back to her revealing herself again. That was really good too. Mm -hmm. That whole Hawaii sequence makes me want to go to Hawaii so bad. Or uh, the scene after that when they kiss when they're in the hotel room. And he's like, your face is so pretty. I want to smash it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, (laughs) that's, that's, could be taken for me at first i was thinking boy this guy's got problems but at the same time to find someone that he could feel comfortable to even say that to is a big step for him you know and that's and that's why i was always like what's the big deal about lena like is she a good character because i i didn't know what was going on with her but she exists basically as a catalyst for Barry to find a rhythm and a harmony in life. And I think that's enough. I think she exists as sort of like this weird entity. There's theories that she's an alien. <laughs> I mean, it could make sense, but I guess makes but I think she is she's totally opposite to the sisters. She's she she'll bring something up and he'll seem like he doesn't want to talk about it and she won't pry about it. She'll back off when the sister's probably yeah, she's a normal like, person. What the hell's wrong with oh, you? Dude, the scene when she mentions when she goes your sister your sister's told me that you hit the screen window with a hammer. He goes, 
I gotta go to the bathroom. Yeah. And he goes to the bathroom and just trashes the place. <laughs> it's so funny. He just rips apart the, and he punches all the stalls apart in one punch. But the little soap dispenser is just indestructible. It's not good. Not and then the way yeah. the way he gets called up and the manager the manager goes, Sir, I'm gonna have to ask you to leave. And he goes, please don't do this to me. He goes, Sir, I'm gonna crack your fucking skull open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but how, how calm he's able to just be like, No, that wasn't me. Yeah. No, that wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like your no, hand is bleeding. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That movie operates on such a that's why I don't blame audiences for not liking it. I don't blame it's the, the, the it operates at such a unique frequency. There Will Be Blood, 2007. Anderson stated that he suffered from writer's block in the years after Punch Drunk Love until he discovered the novel Oil, written by Upton Sinclair. Yeah, he had two... He had a script of two warring families or two fighting families, and he was kind of stuck on it and couldn't really figure it out. Also, he says he has writer's block, but it was around this time he started having kids. So yeah. it's less writer's block and more just kid's block. <laughs> you know? It's an interesting way of saying you had kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he was in he was in uh, London doing work for something, and he said he felt homesick, and he saw, he picked, he bought oil because it had a picture of California oil fields on it, and he was homesick. He was like, oh, California. So he bought it, and then he read the first half and was like, wait a minute. This could really help me figure out the script and he incorporated oil into the script of the two fighting families that he had and that eventually became There Will Be Blood. He doesn't, the his ad- adaptation is basically the first half or the first hundred and something pages of the book and then later, because the book chronicles Daniel Plainview's rise and then it just talks about the transformation of, you know, Los Angeles into modern day Los Angeles. It's more of a historical thing of a city more than it is about Daniel Plainview mm-hmm. and he just adapted the first half so it's a, it's a very loose ad- adaptation so I'm almost in the vein of like Kubrick yeah because Kubrick would just take a, a book Some, and be like I'm gonna do whatever I want with it yeah just take it and make it his own okay so the production team had trouble figuring out exactly what oil derricks looked like and how they worked yeah because he read because well it's it he it's, it's funny because he talks about his research into silver mining and stuff like that and he said, I had to read like five books to figure out how, what, really, it's this simple? You just go into the ground and blow stuff up? <laughs> like there wasn't any big... He was looking for more of a... Yeah, but he couldn't believe how simple it was. But then the oil derricks, all the... Because I have a book called Western Mining. I read some of that. And it's the way they say that everything works is just confusing because they're using all the, all the spindle, you know, works on the crankshaft and then the crankshaft spin into the gimbals. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, they you know, talk as if to... you already know it. Yeah. And so the... The, I think it was Jack Fisk was the art director on that movie, and he basically said, we should just look at children's books of how to oil, or how to drill for oil. There's children, because they have drawings of how to do it. They have From those times? From children, well, I guess from those times, but also like modern day. Mm-hmm. So they just looked at a bunch of children's books to help them figure out how to build the oil derricks. Interesting. You never think. Yeah. But it's also, if they're having trouble figuring it out, how many? How much of the audience is going to be like, "Hey, that oil derrick isn't right," <laughs> you know? But it's still something. Obviously, if it's central to the plot of the film, yeah, I'm sure they just didn't right. want Neil deGrasse Tyson to be like, "Hey, you know the stars were wrong," and they're like, "Shut yeah, up!" Yeah, 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 that kind of shit. What did he, he do that on with? Titanic? 
He tweeted about the stars being wrong, and then James Cameron was like, shut up. Yeah. And then a few years sure. later, they remastered it, and James Cameron was like, and he, he, he changed it. it. <laughs> yeah, he changed it. <laughs> Production went underway in June 2006. Dylan Frazier was cast as H.W. Plainview. However, Frazier was not an actor and was just a kid who lived in West Texas. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the decision was between finding just a local kid to be in the movie rather than a trained actor child. But ap- apparently, the story goes where they contacted Dylan Frazier's mom and s- expressed their desire for him to be in the movie. And she goes, "Well, who's he's he going to be working with?" They said Dylan Day Lewis. She goes, "Let me see one of his movies." So they showed them. She apparently she watched Gangs in New York. <laughs> I don't know who recommended she watch yeah, that. Yeah. And of course, she's Bill the Butcher. In that. Yeah, yeah. She's like, I don't think I want my son to be in this. And then I think Paul found out that she watched that, and then he sent her a copy of The Age of Innocence. Mm-hmm. And she was like, okay, he could be in the movie. And then there was another guy originally cast as uh, Eli. No, Eli, yeah, Eli Sunday. Yeah. It was originally Paul Dano was just the brother, Paul, who gives Daniel the tip about the oil in little in little boston and there was another actor i think his name was ken o'neill or kel o'neill and he worked on the movie for like six weeks they filmed for six weeks with this guy as eli sunday and i don't know if i i think it was just uh, some people say oh he, he daniel day lewis was so intense that he, he couldn't take it i don't know if that's true that might be like a sensationalized story yeah. but it's also possible that paul thomas anderson just didn't think the guy was fitting the role it could be, or it could be a mix of the two, mm-hmm. but that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think with who ended up being Eli is perfect choice. Yeah, it, it is funny. Dylan Frazier is just some normal kid who just went to elementary school in West Texas, and he's acting as Daniel Plainview's son. And if these stories of this guy being intimidated by Daniel Day Lewis are true, the then this guy was scared of Daniel Day Lewis, and this kid's just like, yeah, whatever, who cares? Yeah, it doesn't matter. So. Okay, There Will Be Blood was released nationwide on January 25th, 2008, and was immediately praised as one of the best movies of the decade. It was also the most profitable movie of Anderson's career, grossing $76 million worldwide off a $25 million budget. This was the first movie, I explained before, where Magnolia was maybe expected to be an awards darling. This was the first time Anderson had a movie that was an awards darling. I think it was nominated for like eight Oscars, and it was a big tender for Best Picture. And what I think is interesting about There Will Be Blood, I've seen this probably, because There Will Be Blood is the movie you watch where it's I don't, it's pretty accessible to mainstream audiences. It's more accessible to them than, let's say, Punch Drunk Love or Inherent Vice. But also the vibes are just so strong in it. A lot of times, I, like especially me, when I was growing, like when I was coming of age, is I was much more drawn to the vibes of a movie before I understood it. Mm-hmm. You know, I see the shots in this and the music, and I'm totally drawn to it, and I think it's the best thing of all time. And then somebody's like, "Hey, what does the movie mean?" I'm just like, "Ah, I don't just know." Like that, yeah. But this time around, I was much, especially after we did the episode on Kubrick, I was much more aware on of Kubrick's influences on this movie than I have been before. People say it's influenced by Kubrick, and I'm like, yeah, sure it is. I didn't know how. Mm -hmm. But then this time around, I realized it's interesting because this is his most Kubrickian movie, if that's the word to say it, but also the subject, the and it's also heavily influenced by 2001, which is interesting because 2001 and There Will Be Blood are basically the complete opposite of each other, the complete inverse of each other. 2001 is like this hopeful space 
journey about a, a search for man's meaning in the stars. And There'll Be Blood is this very dark, cynical, pessimistic character study on this guy who's obsessed with getting things out of the ground. Looking down. Both movies open with, you know, in basically in the desert, in this barren land, in this primitive time, relatively primitive time in human history with the Dawn of Man sequence and then in the opening with Daniel, he's just in a hole with a pickaxe. And the most, let's say, I think the most Kubrickian shot of PTA's career is at the is the very last shot of the movie at the bowling alley where it's this it's this very symmetrical it almost feels like it's from the the shining if there was yeah. a bowling alley in the shining it's this very symmetrical shot and the movie ends with obviously he kills spoiler alert I don't know what you're doing here if you haven't seen the movie but he kills Eli with the bowling pin and then he goes I'm finished and then it cuts to classical music and it mm. feels very reminiscent of the ending of Clockwork Orange where the the governor goes, hey, we should be friends, Alex. And Alex goes, all right, we'll be friends. You got love a whatever bloody hell. Mm-hmm. And then the media comes in and takes pictures, and then Alex narrates, I was cured all right. And then it cuts to Beethoven playing. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, very similar. Yeah. What do you think about that? Think about that, huh? I bet you never thought of that. No, no. I, I, already, I already was going to say all that. Oh, but. <laughs> damn it. I believe you. <laughs> no, but... Uh, no, the the interesting thing about Daniel as a character is that he kind of doesn't complete a character arc in a sense. Like he's still just a piece of shit at the end of the at the end of the day, right? Yes. I feel like that's one of the points of the movie is that he never really yeah. completes a he he does go through a character arc but he's somewhat. Still well, people People, that's one of the most common criticisms. Like, I showed this movie to my sister and my sister-in-law, and they told me, yeah, I get it. He's bad. And I think people say, like, he's a one... He's Obviously, he's a great character, and he's well-written and well-acted, but he's ultimately a one-note or one-dimensional character. And I do think that criticism is partly true, but also I don't think it's that simple. I think there's some things going on where... I don't, maybe he's not completely. There's some. There's some contradictions in him, and that usually, usually contradictions in a character make for a, an interesting character mm-hmm. when they're done right. And like one of the con, one one of these contradictions is, you see, obviously the point of the movie is he's becoming incre- in, increasingly selfish, and uh, and, and greedy, and, and uh, misanthropic. But the first time we see his greediness is when. Uh, HW, they go to Little Boston and they find Little Boston and they realize that there's oil there. And HW goes, are we going to give them oil prices? And he goes, we'll give them quail prices. So he's already saying that he's going to scam them out of some money. But then he opens up the well and there's a scene where HW tells him, hey, uh, Mary's father hits her. That's what she told me. And he goes, Mary's the little one? And he goes, yeah. And they open up the well, and Mary's running around playing with, I guess, H.W., and Daniel grabs her, and he goes, hey, you like, you you know, you like the oil? It's great, right? Everything's fine. And he goes, I'll take care of you now. He goes, Daddy doesn't hit you anymore, does he? And he goes, no more hitting. And then he lets her go. And I'm like, why would he care? If he's this one-note dimensional guy, one-dimensional mm-hmm. guy who doesn't give a shit about anybody other than himself and maybe his son at this point, why... 
does he care if this if this guy hits his daughter? And one can suggest that oh, he's doing it because it's part of his snake oil salesman bit of being a very community oriented guy. And mm. there's I think it's an it's an abomination that bread be looked upon as a luxury. And he's but if if that was what he was doing in doing that, why didn't he do it in front of everybody like a big crowd like he did with the opening of the oil derrick? Why does he? The only people that are in that scene are Mary. Uh, Abel, the, her dad, and Daniel. He's not doing it for anybody. So that suggests an actual care mm-hmm. for her well-being. And then at the end, and I think the part where the thing about him being one-dimensional, one note is hold is kind of I, I agree with is when we flash forward to 1927 and the whole thing about him being insane and his, his downward spiral. I think the concept of that does feel a little bit tired. But then there's that scene where he talks to H.W. He goes, "You were never my son. You're." Orphan, yeah, yeah, and out of a basket, he, yeah. He something. goes, "You were never my son, a bastard in a basket." And then the movie cuts to a shot of them back in Little Boston in 1912, let's say, and it's the first time where there's you can see a sort of warmth in Daniel's char- character. Excuse me, because he's smiling and his in his mustache and his hair, he almost looks like Charlie Chaplin. And H.W. goes up to him, and he's playing, and Daniel's, like, fiddling with a hat, and he looks over and smiles at H.W., and he has this very warm presence, and and that seems put in the movie to suggest, oh, yeah, he, he was his son. He's just lying right now. Yeah. So it suggests, it suggests a few things. Is that Daniel, is that taking place in Daniel's head? Is he remembering his memories with H.W. as a son? Is that in H.W.'s head? Mm-hmm. Or is that the movie objectively juxtaposing... Him saying you were never my son with this scene, objectively saying Nick, no, you were, you, you're lying, and it could either be there's still a part of Daniel that feels that way, or the tragedy is that he did feel that way at one point, but now he's completely spiraled into being a piece of shit, and and that, and that that and that basically represents his final gesture of separation from humanity, as Daniel Day Lewis mm-hmm. put it. Yeah. That's that's more of what I was getting at, like thinking of, <laughs> not I know it's, obviously. I know it sounded, yeah. it sounded like you were just going. Yeah, I pretty much was thinking. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> I no. I, mean. I didn't mean, in a sense, that he's one. Like when I said he didn't go through the proper story arc, I guess I meant it more, and he m- went through it in a tragic way. Yeah, he had Instead a negative of, one. Yeah, he didn't. Because there's parts of the film where he does feel like he's going to be a good father to H.W. And then obviously that doesn't happen. Yeah. He sends him away. He, he does. All, he it, it's it's uh, it has to do with the greed type of thing where he he trapped. He went f- for everything he thought he wanted with the greed. And in the end, he ends up lonely and. Yeah, it's a murderer. Like, it's like exa- it's like a story. It's that classic story of a man who has everything but has nothing. Yeah, and I think another thing that's interesting is he has this. He talks about him finding his brother has given him like a second breath because he says that he hates people so much. And so H. I don't because I think he cares. I don't know if it's genuine at the time. There's a scene where. Obviously, he sends he sends H.W. away, and then he meets with Tilford about doing a deal uh, to sell 
all the 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 the, the oil derricks and the drills. And they go, we we can make you a millionaire right here. And he goes, you can retire and spend time with your boy or whatever. And you see Daniel think. And I think at that moment, that's, I don't, I, I would guess that that some takes place somewhere during the midpoint, because that's a moment where he could stop. The story can be over, and he can literally just live with HW. But he realizes no, because if I sell. I'm going to be working everything I work towards is already done. Like it's it's sort of about the grind for him rather than it is the result because he has enough money to take care of his son. It's clearly not about that anymore. So what he does is he sabotages his own chance to sell out when the guy goes he goes take care of your son, spend time with your boy. He goes I'm going to come to you in the middle of the night, wherever you're sleeping, and I'm going to cut your throat. The guy goes, what <laughs> did you just say to me? And he, he says this extreme thing out of nowhere. I think par, like partly it could be, well, and that's just about the thing, that's, that's a perspective of interpretation is that can clearly to one person say, oh, he's guilty about what he, how he sent his son away. But also it can be, oh, he's using his son to... He's using his son as an excuse to not take the deal and keep going and and try to find and try to keep achieving this giant monopoly on the oil industry and stuff like that, which I think is interesting. And then it's only when he kills his brother that who the guy who's given him the second breath, he kills the brother, and then immediately right after that he gets the pipeline and then he get, he wants HW back. But again, I. That's a part, I guess that's like sort of a half, this is just sort of a half-baked thought of how exactly does having family around relate to his existence? Because he always needs somebody around him because he only sends HW away. He only sends HW away because he has his brother, who's allegedly, and then once he finds out he doesn't have the brother, then he gets HW back. It's just an interesting... Mm -hmm. Well, it's also something, doesn't Daniel... Uh, as a character, he he sort of uses HW in certain aspects. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To get ahead. Yes. How does he use him? Well, there's it's sort of ambiguous whether how much of it is HW being an actual son to him, and how much of it is he only took HW under his wing so that he can use him in business dealings. I guess that could be it because he wants to be a family. He wants the he wants the the image of a family business. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner. HW Plainview. And then when he has his brother that still maintains the family business. And he just gets rid of HW. Yeah. But also having a kid is a pretty good business tactic. <laughs> I, I, my, me and my dad used to get giant tips when I was like 10. <laughs> I was like 9 or 10 working with him doing garage door stuff. And people would just give us... I had old guys hand me a 100 bucks. Nice, dude. Heck yeah. He gave me a $20 bill. Oh, goddamn. You! <laughs> I'd love to get you. On a slow boat to China. The Master, 2012. Anderson had the idea of a sailor coming back from World War II in his head since the early 2000s. But Anderson expanded on the idea after watching a documentary called Let There Be Light. Yeah, I don't know exactly when he saw that documentary. But let's just say somewhere between 2000 and 2012, he watched that during the writing process. And that really opened up. And he confirmed some of the things that he was already writing about the character that became Freddie Quell. And the, the the documentary, Let There Be Light, it's actually on the Blu-ray for The Master, which okay. is interesting. It comes with it. I don't, is The Master... Did I not bring that in here? I guess not. Oh, I shit. I have it. the Blu-ray. 
I it, saw it on top of the t- by the TV. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. It was in my living room. Anyway, this is important. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> so, but the Let There Be Light was a documentary made by John Huston during World War II because the, pro- the War Department commissioned a bunch of prominent directors at the time to make some propaganda films for the U.S. Army. And John Huston comes back with Let's, Let There Be Light, which is following shell shock soldiers, shell shock soldiers mm-hmm. coming back from the war. And there was these, inter- they would, the doctors would do these interviews with these guys, and these guys would be crying. Like, I don't know how I can go back to my wife after I've seen the thing. And they were severely damaged. There's one where this guy, fit, he should be able to walk, but he can't. Like, he, he's his brain's psyching itself out. And the doctor has to, like, put him under hypnosis to make him regain his ability to walk. Fascinating. And it, it's no, when you watch it, and it's no wonder that the government took one look at it, or the War Department took one look at it, yeah. and we're like, we're going to ban this for 40 years. Yeah, it was yeah. banned until the 80s. Wow. You couldn't watch it. And, yes, that's a, you should go watch that documentary if you are interested. Uh-huh. And, and, and Anderson ripped scenes right out of that. There's scenes of the guy going, uh, you won't, there are people on the outside that will not understand the conditions that you men have. You know, it'll be hard for you to assimil- assimilate. And while everybody's looking at that guy talking, those shots of the close-ups on the soldiers are right out of there will there will be light. Let there be light. There will be light. There will be light. <laughs> and there's a shot of everybody going of the guys going down the hallway or of this uh stairwell that is ripped from Let There Be Light as well. Filming was originally slated to begin in August 2010, but the financiers River Road pulled out, delaying the movie indefinitely. So I don't know who River Road is. I've never heard of them before, which is maybe sucks for them, and they should have made the master. I don't know. But I didn't know this. Originally, the movie was... Originally, Jeremy Renner was casted to play Freddie Quell, which is weird in retrospect to think about, Hawkeye playing yeah, Freddie yeah, Quell. Yeah. <laughs> and it was Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. He was always attached. And then Reese Witherspoon was going to play his wife, Peggy. And... But then this woman, Megan Ellison, who had a production company, Annapurna, she was like, a, I think she was a daughter of a billionaire guy. So she just had a bunch of money, and she said, I'll put up the money. So during the rap party on The Master, the sober Philip Seymour Hoffman reportedly had a drink during the celebration. This relapse allegedly led to his death in 2014. Yeah, I, for, I, I forget where I heard... PTA talk about this, but Paul, he was asked. I think Bill Simmons or Bill Simmons's guy, right hand man on their on the Bill Simmons podcast, asked him, "What's the best thing you've ever seen an actor do?" And he just said, "Philip Seymour Hoffman and the Master." Yeah, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He's playing a basically L. Ron Hubbard, isn't he? Yeah. So he was based off L. Ron Hubbard, and guys like in the whole the whole gist of. Lancaster Dodd is L. Ron Hubbard, Orson Welles, guys like that. Also, do you know who the most published author of all time is? Is it him? It's L. Ron Hubbard. He what? has like thousands of books. Oh, he or just... H- or at least or maybe hundreds. He just would write the shitty first draft in like two weeks and be like, publish it. Go, go, go. Anderson reportedly showed the movie to Tom Cruise. However, what exactly Cruise thought of the movie is unclear. I would have think he would hate it because it's. I don't, but I don't know if the movie is necessary because people, when it was coming out, people described it as the Scientology movie, mm-hmm. and I think similarly to the idea of pornography and Boogie Nights, it's a little. It it tends towards Scientology, 
or the the cause, which is the the the, the representation of Scientology as not working and not being correct, but it's not a expose on the origins of Scientology and how it's the dumbest thing ever. It's more of just an afterthought, if mm. that makes sense. I don't know if afterthought's the exact right word for it for it, but it's not the point of the movie is to be Scientology's bad. You mm. know? And and it's it's interesting because Anderson was asked, Oh, did you show the movie with Tom Cruise? And he said, Yeah. And they said, What do you think? And he said, Well he had a good conversation, he you know, and we're still fine. And then there was another reporter who said, Have you showed the movie to Tom Cruise? And he says, Do you know the answer? And she goes, I do. And he goes, Well, that's it. Then I'm not gonna say it. And he was like really angry. So oh. and then some rumor some people say that Tom Cruise stormed out and really? was like, This is ridiculous and then they haven't talked. But we don't I don't we don't know what exactly is correct. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell because I can't see Tom Cruise doing that. Well, I guess I could. Well, I can't. I can see him storming out and stuff. I the the thing that's is, the crazy to me is that Scientology would let him watch that movie. Mm. But I guess I mean he, Tom Cruise has some leverage over them because he's almost the main guy. Okay, it was awarded the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival, but the award was quickly revoked. Yeah, this didn't kind of doesn't make any sense, and it was a big thing at the time. What? What is the Golden Lion? It's the so the Venice Film Festival is one of the biggest festivals in the world, and winning the Golden Lion is the grand prize. Okay. The Joker won it when it came out in 2019, or in 2019 it it won it. It's a big deal. Usually, when your movie wins the Golden Lion, it's almost like a shoe in to get nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Not not that they go, oh, it got it won. Now we should nominate it. It's yeah. just if it, if it's that big of a deal. It, and but the reason they revoked the award is because Paul Thomas Anderson got best director and then Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix were given a joint award for best actor or best lead performance mm-hmm. and then when they went to give it they they originally announced that it was going to be the master who won it but then there was a technicality in the rules where a, a movie can't get more than two awards mm. which is I don't know why so then they gave it to some other movie. I forget. I think it was like a Japanese movie. So it was a movie with a title I couldn't really pronounce. So they just took it away? Yeah. Did they do an award ceremony and give it to them and then take it away? They after? actually had that guy, Justin Horowitz, come out and go, no, 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 guys, there's been a mistake. <laughs> it's Moonlight. <laughs> Moonlight won the Golden Lion. It hasn't even been made yet. It's four years away. <laughs> the Master opened nationwide on September 21st, 2012. To critical praise. However, audiences were left scratching their heads, and the movie grossed $28 million off a $32 million budget. Now, I might need help explaining this movie because basically all my thoughts on this movie are just trying to explain what happened. Because, again, I've seen this four or five times. The vibes when I first watched it were crazy. I was like, this is great. Do I understand a single scene? No. Yeah. But this is so fantastic. So I, I ju- I'm not going to go off the notes, but just in case I get lost, I will refer to the notes <laughs> because I really don't want to get this wrong. So I'm going to read off my notes. No, I'm kidding. So the thing that I th- I like about The Master, and this is something Paul Thomas Anderson talked about, was he goes, yeah, I can if I'm going to do a war movie and have there's going to be war flashbacks or something to explain that he's all messed up from the war, I can do a war flashback, but 
you know, that costs time and money. That's a whole big thing. And then I have to figure out a way to do it like nobody's ever done it before. Mm -hmm. I can do that. Or I can just open up on that shot of Joaquin wearing his helmet. And you just see that thousand-yard stare he has. And just hold on that for 30 seconds. And that's everything you need to know about Joaquin. Mm -hmm. And and also, the there's no dialogue really for the first... There's no actual dialogue that explains anything about his character in the first 15 minutes or so there's some you know there's some talking about to his the, 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 to the doctor and the let there be light sequence when he's in the army hospital or the military hospital there's some talking there but most of the stuff we learn about him is just shown through visuals so again we see that shot of him in the beginning and he, he we, we can tell that he's has like shell shock or he's messed up from the war he has he went he saw some stuff and then we see that he's doing all this alcohol concocting. It's like, okay, so he's an alcoholic. And then we see that he's deprived of the female touch because there's a scene where all the soldiers are making the giant sand woman. And he initially goes down and humps it. And it's funny, but then he just keeps doing it. And all the guys are like, uh, this is pretty weird. And then he walks away. And the next thing you see is him masturbating. And so that's... That sets up his character so well. And then we see him in the department What? And even just the way he's standing... He's very strange. He's doing, like, he's sitting weirdly, like, hands on hips. Yeah, yeah. Paul Thomas is talking. He goes, I wrote a lot of The Master. I could never write the way, I could never write that he stands like that. Yeah, yeah. And. Stands out, though. Literally stands out. Yeah. And then there's the sequence in the department store where he, the other, the, the girl, the model who's advertising that dress, he goes into the, the dark room and he's able to have a short moment where he can mix his alcohol concocting thing and his lust for women in one scene. But then that can't hold up in the long term because then they go out on a date and he just falls asleep. And then the next day at work, he's just really... his. I heard somebody describe his face as a wound-up fist. He's just standing there, and all of a sudden he just turns the camera and then walks over to the guy and just starts putting the lights on him, and then he gets in a fight and he leaves, basically showing that whatever he went through in the war and the subsequent effects of that that have manifested, let's say, his alcoholism or his lust for women... Are, he can't. He's having trouble assimilating back into a society, basically. Yeah. And then he goes and has his own. Uh, he he makes a drink for that guy. I guess in whatever country, Mexico. I don't know where he is, but he's farming, you know, or or harvesting. And then that that guy may may have died, and has a crazy a f- crazy uh, reaction to his alcohol. And they go, "No, you killed him." He goes, "I didn't kill anybody." And then he runs. Then the next time we see him, he's walking by the, this harbor and he sees a boat and he just gets on back on the boat. He's just drawn, but he just drifts back to the sea mm-hmm. wherever he goes. And and on that boat, the Alethia, I think, is where he meets Lancaster Dodd. And he's kind of cued into this weird family dynamic and this weird cultish thing that he's got going on. But he has he seems to connect with Lancaster pretty quickly. And Lancaster, through that processing scene where he has to answer all those rapid-fire questions without blinking, it puts, him, it puts his brain through such an extreme stress that he, he has this you know, psychological moment that feels like he's improved where he finds out that the one thing he wants in life is that girl Doris that he left behind. And he kind of has that experience and finds this faith in Lancaster that, oh, he can, this, this man will, should be able to show me a way in life. And so he sticks around and becomes their most loyal member, but his his recklessness and his alcoholism and his lust for women are not fitting, and they're being repressed in the causes 
circle. And this can be shown when uh, there's, a, there's a great scene where he is watching Lancaster talk and Lancaster's daughter comes over and like rubs her hand on his groin. Mm-hmm. And he, initially he's like, oh, and then he sees Clark, her husband. And he put he moves and then Freddie decides to move. He, he displays an amazing self control for this character and then puts her arm away and leaves. Right. And the next scene we see him in, he's drunk in the corner and he's just so sexually frustrated that while Lancaster sings, he sees all the women naked. Yeah, yeah. And during and then in in this scene we see he, we see Lancaster cue him into I want a drink, and then we see Peggy looking at at a. Uh, at, at Freddy. And then the next scene, Peggy jerks or master or masturbates Lancaster to, and shows like a control over him in the craziest way possible. <laughs> uh, if you remember, do you remember that scene? No, I can't remember. Where she wants him to stop drinking and she starts master, like she starts stroking him mm-hmm. and she's whispering in her ear right as he's like climaxing going, say you'll stop drinking, say you'll stop drinking because I'll stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's nuts. It's crazy. So anyway, Next next scene, she goes, Freddie, you can't drink anymore. Stop it. And he's like, well, shit. So now he can't he can't have sex. He can't drink. And he's extremely frustrated. And then there's this, per- this perfect storm happens where he goes outside and Val, Val goes, he's making this up as he goes along. And Freddie's, what are you talking about? And then the police come and arrest Lancaster. And then Freddie lashes out from this frustration because now he's been told that the guy who's sh- supposed to be showing him a way in life is making it up as he goes along. Mm-hmm. He get, they, and then they have that argument in the prison where Freddy is basically the animal, just like just ripping stuff with his teeth and kicking the toilet. And Lancaster's going, "Your anger is an implant from millions of years ago." And he's he's super calm. And then and then Freddy goes, "You're making this shit up." And then as soon as Freddy confronts Lancaster that he might be he might be lying, Lancaster just lashes out and goes they are facts and they start going fuck you fuck you and they just both start yelling at each other and then the scene ends with him going I'm done with you and the next time we see them Lancaster is sitting on the porch at the the house and Freddy comes back and it's like the best scene in the movie where they they Freddy and and Lancaster hug it out and then Freddy tackles Lancaster to the ground and Phil Seymour Hoffman lets out like the greatest laugh of all time. And really a really quick detour. That came from Paul Thomas Anderson. There was one time, I think it was probably around maybe the time he met Maya Rudolph where Phil Seymour Hoffman recounted, Paul came to to me one time we were hanging out and he was in love and we met at this bar and we just saw each other and we were so happy that we ended up just wrestling on the ground of this bar Mm -hmm. and we almost got thrown out. (laughs) So when that scene, when that scene came, Paul Thomas Anderson was like, Hey, remember that one time? Yeah. Do that with him or whatever. That's that's a, that's a good story. But then they go, all right, Freddie. Again, I'm sorry I'm going on. Freddie, you have to go through this processing. We have to fix you, let's say, in phrase. All right, let's do it. And they make they put Freddie through these extreme situations like walking back and forth between a window and a wall and then telling him to like feel different things. He has to be berated by all these negative comments by Clark without reacting at all. And another thing with with Peggy, where she goes, change my eyes to, my, my eyes are green, change them blue, change them to black. And what they're basically doing isn't really anything therapeutic. It's just making his brain go through extreme situations so that it forms like a kind of placebo effect to 
feeling something. And so he's deprived of sight and he's just put his, his he's put through extreme discomfort by walking back and forth to the wall for hours and hours and hours. And when he finally comes to, he's so relieved that he has this overwhelming of emotion that restores his faith in Lancaster and the causes methods, let's say. And then they go out to the desert and uh, uh, Lancaster publishes his book. And then there's a convention for every all the members of the cause, and Lan- they go they go there, and Lancaster goes up on stage. There's it's a big it's a pretty big scene with a big production value. They're in this big hall, and there's a whole crowd. But Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson only shows us the scene through a close up of Lancaster and a close up of Freddie. And when you look at Lancaster, something my dad pointed this out to me. He goes, his teeth were so black in that scene. So, like I think it was probably intentional that his his teeth were so black, and you can see that he's sort of na- very nervous, and he's kind of making this up as he goes along. And then it cuts to Freddie, and Freddie looks massively disappointed. And I think this scene is him realizing that Lancaster's really just making this stuff up, and he's not. This isn't going to help me find a way in life, because and I, I know this because in the very next scene, the first shot of the next scene, Freddie's in is backstage, like in the kitchen, let's say. And he's walking back and forth with his eyes closed in the same manner he was walking back and forth between the window and the wall, which restored his faith in the cause. And then a guy comes in, Bill, who's played by the same guy who played Daniel Plainview's brother. He comes in. He goes, did you read the book? And Freddie's like, yeah, it's great, right? And he goes, I think it's a piece of shit. And then Freddie goes, can I, can I talk to you outside for a second? And then Freddie just beats the shit out of him because <laughs> he's frustrated that he's like, why am I spending my time here? This guy's whatever. And then they go out to the desert and he goes, pick a point and drive the motorcycle to that point. Lancaster goes, it's fun. It's a scene out of Melvin and Howard, which is a Jonathan Demme movie, which is great. And then Freddie just goes, and he doesn't come back. And there's this great close-up of, of Lancaster Dodd where he realizes that he's not coming back. He just goes, Freddie! <laughs> and, but then, I'm, again, I'm sorry, I'm just explaining the movie to people. But I think this is a movie that warrants an actual step-by-step explanation as to what was going on. So then Freddie goes back to his home, I think in Lynn, Massachusetts, to go find Doris because he, because now he's like, well, I well I know Doris can show, maybe show me a way in life. That's maybe what I'm supposed to do. And he goes to her house, and her mom tells her, oh, Dor- she's married with kids now. She married J- Jason Day. He goes, J- Jason Day. So now her name is Doris Day, like the Doris Day. <laughs> and then he's well, well, shit. So then the next time we see him, he's sleeping again, like he was on his date with that woman. He's drunkenly sleeping at the movie theater, watching. Mm-hmm. Casper the Ghost, and then a phone call. There's a phone call for him. It's Lancaster. I don't know how he f- called him at the yeah movie theater from England. He goes, "You're in. We're in England. Come visit." Freddie goes, "All right." So he gets back on a boat, goes to England, and they basically have their last attempt to kind of save their friendship because they have this amazing. Even though Lancaster, all of Lancaster's stuff is bullshit, the only thing that one can believe in the movie that is actually like transcendental in time and space is their connection because they have such great chemistry and they get along so well that that's the only thing that feels like it has a, an ethereal supernatural quality is their relationship. Anyway, back to England. This is where the climax of them having to face the dilemma of their relationship comes to, I guess, the, well, it's the climax. And the reason why Lancaster is so drawn to Freddie is because Lancaster is so trapped and repressed by this web of lies that he spun that he can't get out of mm-hmm. that he's jealous of Freddy's freewheeling spirit and ultimate freedom 
Freddie's the ultimate drifter, and that's the problem in his life. But but Lancaster represents the op, the polar end or the opposite of what Freddie's going through, and and I think he sees. A, a, he, there's a there's a scene where he talks about like a dragon, about how he tamed a dragon. And I think that has something to do with Freddie. And I think Peggy, the reason why she doesn't like Freddie throughout the whole movie, is because she knows that Lancaster loves Freddie and wants to spend time with him, but she thinks Freddie is bad for Lancaster, which is why she stops getting him to drink to drink booze with him, because she thinks this very carefully curated world is getting upended by Freddie. And but it's in this scene where Lancaster tries to get Freddie to stay. He goes, I've I discovered where we met each other. We met during this Prussian war or whatever. And and then he starts singing to Freddie uh the 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 song that played while during their first processing scene. I want to get you on a slow boat to China all to myself alone. And they both start crying cuz they realize that they're best friends and they're maybe soulmates, but Freddie Lancaster does not have the he cannot show Freddie a way in life, and Freddie realizes that he has to do this on his own. Mm-hmm. That the cause is not a place for him, and the, how that relates to Scientology is just it's not saying Scientology is bad or good, like or the cause is bad or good. I don't think I don't think it's making a moral judgment, but it's just saying that it's not gonna help you find a way in life, you know? Mm-hmm. And then Freddie ends up leaving. And there's an interesting thing that the movie ends. He go, So he goes to England, and then after he leaves Lancaster's office, he finds a woman in a bar, a British woman, and they start to have sex, and he, they, he, and he does the processing questionnaire on her. And then the movie ends by cutting to Freddie with laying next to the big woman in the sand, the sand woman. And the last, there was only three times we saw the sand woman. That scene, the beginning, and then there was a scene during the processing scene where PTA cuts to a shot of Freddy trying to build the sand woman and uh, some water comes and washes it away, maybe hinting at the processing of the cause, like repressing his his desires or primal urges. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what that shot exactly means, but I think it might be something like that. But then at the, at the end... He's next to the woman, and it doesn't represent the loneliness that he felt when we first saw him with the woman in the beginning. I think it represents now that he... I think it now says it shows that he has the woman's touch or the woman's... the connection, an intimate connection with a woman that he's been looking for all along. Mm -hmm. Because he's been looking for sex the whole time, but when we get to the end, it's not like... It doesn't feel like lustful sex with that woman. She's slowly on top of him and they're just talking bond and having this moment together and i think what ultimately that is probably showing or saying about freddie is lancaster the cause can't show him a way in life lancaster can't show him a, a way in life he maybe he can't show him a way in life but maybe he'll never find it but if he's looking for it maybe being with a woman or finding a good woman is a good way to start or something. yeah yeah so that's basically my whole ge- that what I interpreted from the movie. That's just like the surface level what was even going on mm-hmm. stuff, you know. 
Surface level. <laughs> <laughs> In-depth 30-minute <laughs> breakdown of a movie. He calls it surface <laughs> level. <laughs> what do you think about that, pal? That was good. That was good, yeah. Um, what do you... So, you have seen The Master. What did you... Do you... Because I remember you, you talked about how you had complicated feelings with Inherent Vice. Do you have complicated feelings with The Master that's similar to that? I think I have complicated feelings with a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies in that way where it's the same thing that I had with a lot of Kubrick's movies. I want to I need to watch them more. Yeah. I can't just watch them once or twice. I have to watch it. I mean, how many times have you seen The Master? Probably Maybe five. Five. Yeah. And and you have a good grasp on it. Mm-hmm. But you probably didn't. You said you didn't get that after the first two two times watching it through. I think yeah. I've seen the master twice, um, and it's still just you know, it's it's something I need to watch more. And I love it. It's the vibes. You, you get to, the vibes. Yeah, I get the vibes. It's just there's so much to take in that I could not tell you like exactly how I feel about it. Yeah. In in the way that you just said. Yeah. One thing that really helped me is do, like doing this podcast. Like, I don't know if I watched The Master again if I would have understood it as good as I do now if I wasn't doing this podcast. Yeah. Right? Just write it down. Just write like if, try that. If anybody is watching, try one time just like watching a movie that you never understood, mm-hmm. and then just write down a thousand words on it and see what you come up with. Yeah, yeah that seemed to 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 help me a lot in this. I showed my mom The Master. She doesn't like it. She goes, "I want to call Paul Thomas Anderson and tell him what the hell was going on in this movie." And then I basically just told her. Everything Whatever, and she goes, eh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- you know what's crazy? This didn't get nominated for best cinematography, but it did get. Uh, so Hoffman, Phoenix, and Amy Adams received Oscar nominations for their performances. However, Anderson and all other departments didn't receive any, which is nuts. I don't. I don't expect. Kind of I don't expect the best picture not or anything, but cinematography. Cinematography. Yeah. This is the best. I watched it on my TV, my two hundred dollar TV, and the, the the if I okay, have you ever? Let me ask you this question: Have you ever watched a movie like when I watched the Batman? I remember feeling like I've never seen a movie like this before. The way this looks is insane. And then the second and third time I watched it, it, I got accustomed to it, and I didn't get that feeling of I didn't get that dopamine hit of I've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. I still every time I watch the Master, I still go that looks crazy good. Because they filmed it on this old 65 millimeter. Well, they filmed it on 65 millimeter, and then got these old Panavision cameras that hadn't been used since Ham, uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet in 1996. And there's these there are these giant cameras, and Anderson's getting these close-ups on these people's faces and putting the camera right here as this big loud camera. Anderson talks about how a lot of the times during the production they'd be filming, and Philip Seymour Hoffman would just go, "You and your fucking cameras," because <laughs> they were just taking these forever. giant things that were yeah. moving around the set. They're almost mm. a distraction of the actors. I mean, I could see that. We'll get we'll get to that in Phantom Thread. I watched a, th- a thing of him breaking down the different sh- uh, oh the camera test tests. camera yes. tests, and it blew my mind because you know we film on digital, and it's like if you want to add a filter later on, you just go on and add the filter. Those are you have to pick the camera for the filter. I didn't realize that. You know, you change the camera and it's a whole nother look. Yeah. I mean, I knew it, but it I didn't realize it until I saw that how you know, you have to be sure about it. And also speaking of 
the cinematography. This is the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie where Robert Elswit was not the cinematographer. Oh, really? He was a cinematographer for every single Paul Thomas Anderson movie. He won for There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. Why was that? Just I think it was just scheduling stuff. And also, the one last thing I'll say is there's there's a a tr- speaking of Phantom Thread, there's a trend in these particular Paul Thomas Anderson movies, The Master, Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread, where there's a subjectivity. I get well. I guess you can argue it's in Punch Drunk Love too, but there's it's much more subtle in these movies. There's a subjectivity in the movie where, for example, the 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 the, the way that the processing and the causes methods work in the master is very very complicated because it's you're operating on this very weird ambiguous frequency in your brain where your brain can just be deluding itself like this woman goes into like this meditation with lancaster at this fundraising event and she and she and she comes out of it and she goes the man in shining armor was that me and he goes, yes, you exist on a whole time scale where that's you, and that represents you coming out of your whatever. And to her, that's a real moment. But to me, every like every night before I go to bed and my brain starts to get all tired, I see things. That's just my brain randomly doing stuff. What? It's just funny. To I don't <laughs> see things like I'm hallucinating, <laughs> but you see like weird things. Yeah, yeah. And I, and in this, and also when you're putting your body, your mind through extreme situations, like they do with the processing and the master, there's almost this placebo, and also telling people that this is going to work. There's a placebo effect that's operating in the master. There's a, the scene where Peggy is, te- is telling Freddie, "Change my eyes to from blue to green, or green to blue, and I'll turn them black." And then in the movie, you actually see Peggy's eyes turn black. In reality, her eyes aren't turning black, but Freddie is going through so much processing that his brain is tricking himself into thinking that her eyes are actually black. And that's a again, I don't I don't really know how to put my finger on it, but it's a weird subjective frequency where there's a there's a dissonance between reality and Freddie's perspective that is there in Doc's perspective in reality and inherent vice and also Reynolds's perspective. And, and, and phantom thread yeah and it, it's interesting too because in real life it's almost people who find themselves in a situation where they're going to be going through processing like that where they're in a cult cultish type of atmosphere they're usually looking for something like that yes. or their their uh, their yes, mind that's, is that's just more point. open to it yes so it's easier to placebo them into thinking you know making their eyes look black or just or just feeling like it's working because that's they want it to work you know they're convincing themselves at the same time because they're out in the world actively seeking something like that which is usually what you would see you know someone like uh freddie who's going through a lot those are the types of people who end up in situations like that right and and paul thomas anderson talked about and that's like part of the genius of Picking this movie to take place during this time is he talks about after the war, a lot of people, a lot of people were looking for something to show them a way in life, whether it was dieting, yoga, yeah, Scientology, whatever it was, or some weird cult stuff. And and Freddie, of course, is the epitome of that idea of somebody who needs to be needs to grasp onto something to find meaning after this crazy war. And that's that's something that you just brought up, and that was really interesting. 
Inherent Vice 2014. Shortly after The Master, PTA chose to adapt the novel Inherent Vice by the reclusive and enigmatic author Thomas Pynchon. 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 Well, people, some people say Pynchon and some people say Pynchon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's interesting because he's sort of... It's, it's, uh, Mark Maron and Paul Thomas Anderson were talking about how when he writes, like, it feels like he knows something that you, that you don't about everything. And he was, he's very, nobody, I don't, I don't think anybody knows what he looks like now or where he lives or anything. He's very, very like secretive and reclusive. And apparently Paul Thomas Anderson made him do like a secret agreement about not to say what he thinks about the movie or anything about him. Josh Brolin says that he has a cameo in the movie and nobody has found it. They got uh, Thomas Thomas Pynchon's in the movie and nobody has been able to pinpoint who he is in the movie. Maybe Josh Brolin was just lying, or maybe he's cut. he was cut out of the movie. I don't know. I bet he's in the scene with all the hoods and stuff. That's a good point. Ooh, that's good. That makes that would make sense. That'd make a lot of sense. He's the guy with the swastika. <laughs> <on his face. laughs> yeah, he's the last guy you'd expect to be like a genius writer. So Yeah, so he adapted that and Paul Thomas Anderson because it's such a, a difficult because oil when he adapted that, wasn't an actual adaptation. I mean, it was, but he took a lot of liberties. But since he's such a big fan of Thomas Pinchon, he wanted it to be uh, uh, truthful to the source novel. He didn't want to mess it up. Yeah. And his th- his thing was Thomas Thomas Pinchon's going to be really hard to get right. But if anybody's going to mess it up, it's going to be me. And so he, he he what he did was just transcribe the entire book as a screenplay, and it was about like five inches thick. And his, he usually his sister reads the screenplays for feedback, mm-hmm. and she just gave it right back to him. He goes, "I'm not reading this. Cut this shit down." Yeah, and yeah. He goes, which, he, which in reality is actually very good advice. Yeah, this is the first piece of advice: get rid of ninety yeah. percent of it. Exactly. <laughs> how how do you know how many pages it actually was though? I would imagine it's it was probably between the realm of like three hundred to four hundred, maybe five hundred. Mm-hmm. Paul Thomas he has a Paul, he has a script that's six hundred pages. That he says he can't figure it out. He, he can't, can't figure out how to get it shorter. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Of Inherent Vice? No, of just uh, oh, like a secret something. project. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's just a little... Anyway. Um, so reportedly, Robert Downey Jr. was initially cast as the protagonist, Doc Sportello. They, so apparently he was cast before the master. Okay. I believe that's true. And... And also, he has a relationship with Robert Downey Jr. because Paul Thomas Anderson has a relationship with Robert Downey Sr., who if... Actually, I just spoiled it. But if you can tell me what that purple and pink DVD is behind Danny's head on the top there, if you can tell me what that is, uh, I'll give you a crisp like button on your comment. And so Robert Downey Sr. is in Magnolia. He plays one of the booth guys. And he's also the guy in Boogie Nights um, who is the record label guy who won't give them the tapes of oh, there yeah. and there's a movie called Putney Swope and you, you know the scene I can't believe we didn't talk about th- that scene in Boogie Nights the, the Jesse's girl with the Rahad Jackson the guy the drug dealer guy oh yeah Why and Mark Wahlberg just spaces that? out I mean we talked about Boogie Nights for so yeah, long yeah. anyway great scene and the, but that's that scene, covered in so many other yeah, things so yeah. many people have talked about that but the, the firecracker this is a known thing too but yeah. I'm going to say it the firecrackers that movie Putney Swope, there's this, I've seen that. There's a scene where these uh, this Ch- these Chinese businessmen walk in, and in the background, one of the Ch- Chinese businessmen is just throwing firecrackers at the ground. 
And Paul Thomas Anderson asked Robert Downey Sr., can I just steal that? And he was like, yeah, go for sure. it. And the, that the, it makes the scene so... John C. Riley says he still has PTSD from Firecrackers, from that scene, because every time he would jump. Yeah, yeah. And it's, oh, my God. Anyway, so Robert Downey Jr. was, was going to be Doc Sportello, which would have been awesome. But um, apparently... I don't know exactly how it went down. Also, why did I say apparently? Like apparently, 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 um, he uh, PTA thought he was too old to play <laughs> Doc Sportello, so he went back to Joaquin Phoenix, who he used in The Master. Yes. Who they're all they're kind of like the same age though. Yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make it much of a difference. I don't know. It's not like he went to a younger, way younger character. Yeah, but also I, Joaquin. I could see Robert Downey Jr. passing as a younger person than right. Joaquin Phoenix. Really. It depends on how he's yeah. pr- portrayed. I honestly, though, I think Joaquin. Not, I, I would love to see Robert Downey Jr. do that, but I think Joaquin is probably the best choice, especially for a Paul Thomas Anderson movie like this and yeah. The Master, because his physicality mm. is the best. Nobody is good at doing physical gags or comedy or physical anything in a movie than Joaquin Phoenix. The mm. way he stands in The Master, the way he moves around, the way he gets thrown around in this movie mm-hmm. is absolutely fantastic. Jo- Josh Brolin talked about it while filming, uh, going, Joaquin's small and he's a, kind of a skinny, small guy, but he is so strong. There was a scene where I had to get him in a car and it was like the hardest thing I've ever had to yeah. do because <laughs> he's just so scrappy. Like, remember in Napoleon when when Joaquin, they're getting the, he, they're, he's trying to change the vote and they're all, they all chase him out, and he's running out, and he's punching the guys. The physicality, and that's so, he's mm-hmm. so good. I'm like, why doesn't why don't people move like that more in movies? That's so fantastic. Maybe, I don't know if this was it, but I'm speculating, but maybe that's why PTA thought maybe Robert Downey Jr. wasn't the best choice, because he maybe he, wasn't, he was afraid of getting thrown around a little bit. But I don't know. That's, what I, that's my personal opinion. Yeah, I love that scene in the plane where he just turns around and he starts to punch over the thing. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's so little kid, too, yeah. though. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, filming began in May 2013 and was described by the main cast as organized chaos. Yes. they. A lot of them talked about the freedom they had where since the movie is supposed to be... There's a very cartoonish, sudden cartoonish comedy that it has... And so they would do scenes, like let's say that you know the, you know the moto moto penakeku moto penakeku that mm-hmm. scene the, my favorite scene of the movie, that scene maybe the first take would be, Joseph moto penakeku, and then the next scene moto penakeku, and then they just kept dialing it up up and up and up and up and up until they couldn't do it they couldn't go any bigger right, mm-hmm. and that that that's probably what was so fun about it for PTA but maybe confusing for the actors like you really want me to do that mm-hmm. like Joaquin is I'm going to take the picture and scream at it when yeah. he sees the ah! picture ah! <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's it's so I, I think that's really good and and we'll, I'll get to my thoughts on inherent well I'll get to my overall thoughts on inherent vice later mm-hmm. but I think I think p- things like that where he takes the thing and screams like yeah. and then um, she doesn't really react to that much Right. Yeah. Well, the way it's edited is a little weird because she gives him the picture, and you see his hand take it, and then like five seconds later, it cuts to Joaquin, and he's just taking the picture. Mm-hmm. Well, things like that are when I started realizing: is it actually happening, mm. or is in his mind is he screaming? Yes. There's a lot That's of a things point. in this movie where you don't know if it's actually happening. Yes. And I think that's one of those points where I started realizing 
did he actually just scream or because you know, she doesn't re- really react to it and there's there's things before that that hint to it but that was one of those moments for me I'm so curious to hear what you thought about this movie. Can you read the next thing so you can just tell me what you thought? Inherent Vice opened nationwide on January 9th, 2015. It received positive reviews from critics, but suffered the worst box office of Anderson's career, excluding Heart 8. So I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about it. Normally I would go first, but I think it's better to hear someone who has some immediate unfiltered thoughts about inherent vice than maybe just a guy who thinks he's solved it all. Yeah, yeah, I really yeah. Would, not to say that you're an idiot, <laughs> no. which, which you are, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. I really, I'm so curious to hear It's hear hard to give my opinion because <laughs> I really have, after watching it, I have no idea what happened. I, I have an idea, but at the same time, I feel when it was over, I really felt as if I wasn't paying attention hard enough. And I really was paying attention. I was watching this movie and, like, looking at it, and it's just, you know, it happens, and it's over, and I'm just thinking, was I paying attention? Because there's so many things where it's, it's hard to tell if he's real. Like, certain people are real in the movie. You know, the, uh, the saxophone player... He meets him oh, in the uh, alley. Owen Wilson. Yeah, Owen Wilson's... Coy. Coy. He meets him in an alley, and he turns away, and he's gone. But he's still whispering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that makes you think, are all of his next interactions with that character even real? That sends it off I didn't in a even whole think... I thought about that for other characters, but not Coy. That's interesting. That for he me, wasn't like, real. Yeah, yeah, the whole time I'm I'm thinking, is this guy real? But then at... But, it throws you off too because as a character, Doc Sportello, when he's uh, he's, he's talking to the FBI, he's so confident. You know, he's so sure of himself in certain scenes. And then there's little moments where he's not. And it throws the whole thing off because for someone to be so confident in certain situations and then you see something where it seems, is he, is he crazy? Right. Can you give me an example of the craziness? The craziness, I mean, he sees the, he walks right out, he walks outside and just jumps on the car. Why did he do that? Oh, when when Bigfoot was there? I think he was trying to jump over the car, but he tripped. Oh, okay, okay. See, okay. You just thought he was going insane. Okay. Well, that, well, that's just one that came to my mind. But, I mean, he sees, he's in the, uh, the alleyway and he sees the guy and he disappears is that real is that not real do you have any other examples that i'm not coming up with that i'm trying to think um i think i will say while i'm trying to figure out another example or while you're trying to figure another example i will say that i think you are sort of not supposed to understand the movie sort of by design i've read the book i didn't i'm not smart enough to understand it let alone, I barely understand, smart enough to understand the movie, let alone the book. I, I have like a sixth grade reading level. Um, but, because Paul Thomas Anderson describes, you watch the movie, and there's a scene where Doc hears a certain piece of information. Then the next scene, he hears a piece of information that contradicts that first piece of information. Then in the third scene, he finds out information that confirms both of those pieces of information. And, and you're like, well, which one's true? This doesn't make, what's going on? 
and oh, also there's the scene where in the beginning where Doc is sitting in his room smoking. I think this is when he calls Aunt, whatever her name is, and she goes, she's technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi, that call. And he sees Bigfoot on the TV for the first, or us, we see Bigfoot on the TV for the first time. And he's dressed as a hippie and he's selling like a real estate commercial. And then he goes up to the camera, Bigfoot, and looks at, at Doc through the television lens. He goes, what's up, Doc? And he just goes, oh. oh. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. And, all right. I'm, I can't, I'm so confident that if I try to talk this, talk about this movie without looking at the notes that I wrote down, mm-hmm. it will not make any sense. Yeah, and yeah. I will, I'm going to read still this. still might not. I'm going to, yes, probably. I'm going to read this off and I'm not going to try to read it in a monotone. Yes, this has happened. I'm going to mm-hmm. try to say, say it normally. Just bear with me. I have to read it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the most common criticism of, of inherent vice is the challenging and incoherent plot which could be why it never found the mainstream audience, even though the subject matter lends itself to being a classic private detective story. However, this incoherent plot is part of the premise of the book, following Doc through this labyrinth of American conspiracies obscured by marijuana smoke. This premise was deliberately transposed by PTA into the screenplay, and when it comes to the question of does it work, I have mixed feelings. Because obviously it's truthful to Pynchon's novel, but then, for a, a modern audience or a mainstream audience, they're going to be like, "What is going on?" And there, it, I think it does affect the entertainment value somewhat. Not that's the only thing that's important in a movie. The movie is very intellectually stimulating, but as mm-hmm. a watching experience, I think it, it's a case where sometimes it's a little bit better to think about than it is to watch. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't mean that absolutely in an absolute way. It's I, I sort of have mixed feelings about that. As I explained in my when we were talking about the master. The unreality in the master exists in a, in a placebo of the processing methods of the cause. Peggy's sequence, for example, and her eyes changing from black to, to from black to green and Freddy, that's the example of that. However, in Inherent Vice, this unreality is incited by Doc's paranoia, a result of the plot he's trying to uncover, but also his chronic marijuana smoking. The first instance of this unreality comes when Doc watches Bigfoot on the real estate TV, and he says, what's up, Doc? We got to that. And then from this moment, it's understood that Doc is an unreliable narrator. Deciphering what is real or hippie hallucination is going to be tough for the non-patient audience. PTA talked about the complexity of Doc learning information, which is what I said about the, the you learn the piece of information, then you learn the information that contradicts it, and then a piece of information that confirms the two, and you're like, what the hell is going on? And at some point, the connections make Doc... The connections that Doc makes between these multiple plot points, between Koi and then the Golden Fang and then the dentist, make him... He, he can't tell if he's just being paranoid. Yeah. And this sentiment of schizophrenia is expressed by Coy at the Spotted Dick Party. He goes, the thing I learned from snitching was how often people ask questions they already know the answers to. They just want to hear it from another voice outside their own head. The ambiguity between real or hallucinatory gives freedom to the idea that Sordelige and Shasta also exist only in Doc's mind. Sordelige is, is his friend who's the, this weird narrator, and she has a weird presence over the movie. And her presence contrasts with the rest of the cast. She seems to be on the present over the story and is only interacted with by Doc. The only time she's brought up by another character in the story is by Shasta in the final scene. Adam Naiman, who wrote that orange book behind Danny, talked about the possibility of this scene taking place in Doc's head. Doc drives at night with his arm around Shasta. The car is surrounded by this weird cloudy haze, which suggests that Doc is taking a trip down memory lane. This is emphasized by Shasta asking Doc, Remember that day the Ouija boy, the Ouija boy, the Ouija board sent us off into that big storm? It feels the same way tonight. 
The last mm. time we saw the aforementioned scene was when Doc was quite literally taking a trip down memory lane when he walks and sees the Golden Fang building. Yeah, when, yeah. Right after the scene, the flashback scene with him and Shasta in the rain. Naaman says that the light that Doc catches in his eye at the in the final scene and then he smiles into the camera can represent him seeing through the hazy facade of this memory or him being will- willfully blind to it mm. and still just wanting to be you know, hung up on his ex-old lady. And however, I find the Shasta, the Shasta through line to be the least interesting in the story. We see her in two giant scenes in the opening and one later, and both are very long and talky. And I always end up forgetting to listen to the dialogue. I don't know if you felt that during those her two scenes. Mm-hmm. They're, they're super long. They're really long. They're at least like five or six minutes. This, the first one is probably five. The second one she's in, where she comes back and Doc has sex with her, that's really, really long. And it goes on for a long time. All right, last paragraph. The central idea of inherent vice is as elusive as the plot. Inherent vice is the tendency in physical object, objects to deteriorate because of the fundamental instability of the components in which they are made. I think the title inherent vice refers to the degenerative state of America, and evil has infiltrated America's institutions in order to make a profit. The CIA works with the Golden Fang to bring heroin into the country. The Golden Fang then profits off of the dentistry services paid by the buyers of their product, etc. That's those are the heroin addicts who go yeah. to the Golden Fang. And, yeah. and we, see, we follow Doc as he realizes the rotten structure of America's institutions, the reality of which is so world-shattering that he questions if he's just being paranoid. Of course, at the end, Doc will not uncover what's really going on to the mainstream consciousness of the public like in a more traditional Hollywood movie. The conspiracies are too powerful to him to have any effect. However, what he can do is to make sure one family can stay together after it was driven apart by the corrupt institutions. That's when the story becomes about Coy and his family. He goes, I'm not going to stop this giant conspiracy, but I might be able to work with them so that one person gets out free. Mm-hmm. And Inherent Vice is a movie that I admire for staying true to the book, but I think there are pros and cons to this that make the movie more intellectually stimulating, possibly less entertaining, and I'm happy with what we got, but I'm curious of what could have been. Inherent Vice is a movie that gets better the longer ago I have watched it. Sometimes I forget that I can, that it can feel like a chore to watch. If there's any movie that one should have a half-baked, confused notions or feeling on like these, it's probably Inherent Vice. Yeah. How did I get through that? Was that good? <laughs> that was good. That was good. Did that I agree. Make I, any sense? Mm-hmm. The last sentence you just said, I agree wholeheartedly with because it was when I watched it right after I, t- I think I texted you or something, and I was, I just said Yours, I, I d- couldn't. Wait. I don't get it. Yeah. But now that I've had time to process it and just think about it more, I like it more right. than right after I watch it. Right after I watch it, I usually don't dislike movies other than you know really bad movies obviously um but this movie after i watched it i really wanted to love it and then i watched it and i was like what yeah i just don't get it it's it's, like, it's it's that movie where people talk about oh i hope it's not like inherent vice and i go what do you mean inherent vice is really good and i before i rewatched it again for this podcast i was I'm like, this is a objectively great movie. Mm-hmm. Because it is like Punch Drunk Glove, where even if I don't understand it, those individual scenes in it are so good. Like the 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 vis- the visual or physical gags in the movie, yeah. the 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 the, the, vis- the comedy of the visuals is so strong and so unique. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the movie just moves too slow sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I don't and I, and I guess it feels slow because I at some point my brain just turns it off. Uh, t- t- turns the plot off because I can't understand it. I do have vague notions of what was going on, 
but I don't I don't know exactly how it all. And I guess that's the point where, because you're it's this labyrinth of marijuana smoke, mm-hmm. and you're trying you're just trying to see some ideas through these puffs of smoke. And I, I I'm, again I'm, this is another half baked thought, but yeah, I I do however like Doc Sportello as a character. Yes, I mean he's awesome. You know, just like you said, the fi- the physical gags and stuff that he goes through are just great. Yeah. And just the way he reacts to certain things uh, when he walks into the sex club, whatever that place is, they're like selling sex in on the development, which oh, yeah, also yeah. don't even know if it's real, too. Oh, yeah. That seems like something. Oh, yeah, yeah, do. yeah. Uh, what's his name? Oh, yeah, Chuck. He eats pussy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then they just both start, you know, uh, she just goes down on the other girl, and he just the way he watches, well, and is or so or funny. the way when they start going at it, and he goes, "Well, it says here the says the the spe- preview special because he's like watched it. It's so, and yeah, then the way yeah. he gets hit, and he goes, uh, yeah, 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 fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's a great sequence. Stuff like, yeah, big I oh love. Bigfoot. We didn't even talk about Bigfoot being gay. Oh, is how that? much time do we have left? All right, good. Yeah, d- so so there's a sequence where. Okay, so obviously Bigfoot is a man's man, or mm-hmm. at least cosmetically a man's man in the oh, movie, yeah. right? So there's a scene where he's eating a chocolate banana, and he holds in the banana for a very long time, and Doc's just looking at him eat the banana. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a scene where we find out that Bigfoot's partner was killed by, effectively killed by Adrian Prussia. Mm-hmm. And... There's a scene that's part of a, a somewhat deleted scene, but there's a, a snippet of it that remains in the movie where Adrian walks by and he goes, enjoying your banana, Bigfoot? and Or no, he goes, he says something like, like you know, a nice hippie Bigfoot, some bullshit. And, and Bigfoot goes, hey, you want a banana? I'll stick it in for you. Associating the banana with a, with a penis, like a phallic thing. And also his wife is this domineering lady named Chastity. Yeah, that was interesting. To and see. I, I think there's, and it's not, the movie doesn't present it as this is a clear cut evidence that he's gay, but it just makes you think, like, he's, is he what? Yeah, yeah. He's just covering up with his ultra manly man yeah. macho ness. And there's, I think Josh Brolin might be my favorite performance in the movie. Yeah. He's so good. And that's the thing that, like, the, the duality of these, this, these two characters in his movie, starting with There Will Be Blood, there's Daniel and Eli. Then there's Lancaster and Freddy. Then there's Doc and Bigfoot. There's Reynolds and Alma and Phantom Thread. And then in Licorice Pizza, there's Alana and Gary. But I don't find them that compelling as the rest. Anyway, mm-hmm. so what were you going to say? Um, well, the the difference between uh, Doc and Bigfoot, their internal struggles are completely swapped. Yeah. Bigfoot is... Just he, he gets dominated by his wife, uh-huh. not in that way, but <laughs> maybe based off that, that one scene, yeah, maybe yeah. in that way. Based off that one scene, you just see she's she's tells him like, get, get the fuck up, yeah, and he just what's does his it. what's his first name? Christian, get the fuck up, Christian. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's, that's a good observation I hadn't thought of before. Doc, obviously, like Doc's life and the way he lives it is very unstructured and chaotic. But internally, he's very cool and collected and kind of just goes with the flow. Mm-hmm. And Bigfoot, I guess, is kind of struggling 
with the American, with like achieving the American dream, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. And at the end, you realize he just want he takes a hit of the weed. Oh, he, he just g- eats it. Yeah. I well, that that's another scene where. In yeah. my mind, I'm like that, that could easily no take way place outside of his head. Yeah, because and, and, and I remember seeing that for the first time, going, "That is the funniest thing I've ever seen," and I have no idea what it means, and I still feel that way. Phantom Thread, 2017. The idea for Phantom Thread famously came when Anderson was very sick and his wife, Maya Rudolph, was taking care of him. Anderson noticed the look in her eye that made him think, maybe she wants to keep me like this. Yeah, so he had the idea. That was just such a simple, raw idea. And he didn't have anything else from that. He was he was like, yeah, this movie started from just man and woman. And then I just had these little extra pieces that came together. And in the writing process, he talked about how he recruited Daniel Day-Lewis and cast him in the, in the lead role very, very early to the point where he said he should probably have like a co-writing credit, Daniel Day-Lewis, but he doesn't, so it's fine. Don't even worry about it. Shut up. Give me the Oscar. And Daniel Day-Lewis came up with the name Reynolds Woodcock, and Paul Thomas Anderson was talking about how he was eating cereal or eating his breakfast, and he choked when he saw that because he, he was just the funniest name of all time. And another name they had was something like Arthur Dapple. I remember him saying that. I can't remember where that was. But one of the things that they both decided on is that it should be in the 1950s in the fashion industry in England. And the, like he, he brought him on before there was even a draft of the script. It was just a very, basically from the beginning of the writing process, which is, I don't think he did with anybody else, really. Maybe, maybe I mean, I, he actually, he did it on Licorice Pizza. With which character? With uh, Alana. Mm-hmm. Production began in England in January 2017. It was Anderson's first movie to film entirely outside of the United States. Production ended in April. It's pretty crazy the turnaround on this movie because they st- obviously they st- be- like they started in January, mm-hmm. and then the movie came out January 2018. Yeah. It was released and it was basically had to be ready yeah. by December. So they had six what six months, seven months to edit it. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. He hasn't had a turnaround like that, a turnaround time like that since Magnolia. And the also he said that the production ended in May on April twenty sixth. That was their last day of filming, and that was the day I believe that John, director Jonathan Demme died, mm. who was a big influence on Paul Thomas Anderson. I mentioned that movie Melvin and Howard when we were talking about the Master. He did that. He also did Something Wild, Silence of the Lambs, and he died that day. He remembers filming the last shot right before they filmed the last shot he learned that Demi died and then they filmed the last shot and all he could hear was Jonathan Demi going buddy you filmed you finally finished the movie dude because he was always like the nicest guy of all time Mm -hmm. so he that was kind of sad that he recounted I think the movie's dedicated to him as well Mm -hmm. yeah I think it says does it say that at the end yeah it says Johnny's right yeah yeah it was directed to Jonathan Demi (laughs) it was dedicated to Jonathan Demi (laughs) (laughs) It was the first of Anderson's film without a credit for a cinematographer. Yes. So I mentioned Robert Ellswit wasn't the cinematographer for The Master. He came back for Inherent Vice, and reportedly he said he was like a bad marriage with Anderson and that he didn't have a good time working on that movie. And by the time they came around to Phantom Thread, he just didn't have a cinematographer. He, the question of who holds the light meter, which is who's the cinematographer, because usually the cinematographer has the light meter, 
it was Michael Bauman, I believe that was his name, was the main camera operator on Phantom Thread. But it says that Anderson is uncre- has an uncredited credit as cinematographer. So he's, he was sort of the cinematographer, but he sort of wasn't. So he, the, he doesn't get a credit for it. But Robert Ellswick goes, yeah, I don't know if we're going to work again. Strange. I saw that story. I didn't really... I don't, I don't know a lot of details on it. Mm-hmm. All you know is that it didn't really seem to work out after Inherent Vice... Basically. Yeah, some the, yeah the relationship sort of just soured. Yeah, as will happen if you work on that many movies. Yeah. Like, I give it seven podcasts until that starts to happen to us. I give it, I give it to the end of this one. <laughs> I give it to the last podcast, <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> I give it to this next sentence if you stutter once. Phantom Thread opened nationwide on January nineteenth, two thousand eighteen. It was praised by critics and made forty-eight million worldwide off a thirty-five million dollar budget. Yes, good. I still like you because you didn't stutter. So I, I not this isn't to diminish the quality of the movie, but this is like the first mom movie that Paul Thomas Anderson made, where I can show this to my mom. I mentioned she didn't like the master. She would definitely wouldn't like Inherent Vice. But I, if I show her Phantom Thread, she goes, that was a nice, that was, well, not a nice movie, but like, she would like it, right? And I don't mean that as a dismissive. I think that's good. And it was, it was like a mainstream movie. It was nominated, it was an awards darling like There Will Be Blood was that we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So I guess he has two of those. And I, ta- I talked about in, in Heron Vice and The Master, that unreality we talked about. And there isn't, that the unreality in this isn't so much it's not the placebo effect of the master and it's not the paranoia of being on high on weed and there's this big all these corporate weird conspiracies going on but in this it's the unreality comes from or the subjective effect of it comes from Reynolds's super sensitive irritability and OCD so the first example of this is I remember seeing this for the I, this is actually the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie I saw in the theater oh, wow. I saw this was Robbie Deardle. It was like midnight, and it was in the middle of January. We we got out. It was like 2 a.m. It was so cold outside. Oh, I bet. And I remember not understanding the movie, but then I watched it a few more times, and I liked it. So the first scene comes when we see Reynolds eating breakfast with this woman named Joanna, or Joanna, and she goes, Reynolds, try these, and it's like this pastry. And he goes, what did I say, Joanna? No more stodgy things. And she goes, I feel like I can't get through to you. And he just kind of ignores her and goes, I can't start the day with the confrontation and then the rest of the day will be all wrong. And then basically she in the next scene, Cyril's like, Should I get rid of Joanna? And he's like, Yeah. So he doesn't even he doesn't even confront his own lovers. Yeah. And, and uh but then he meets Alma and they have their own thing. They go on a few dates, and then after the first night they have sex. I think it's I believe it's the first night they have sex. She comes down and kisses Reynolds while he's drawing during breakfast. And then she sits down and goes, good morning, everybody. And then she starts scraping butter on her bread and pouring coffee. And it's so loud. Like, it's abnormally loud. And at first, you're like, that's not that loud. But actually, it's funny. But then some of the rea- like some reactions like my parents had were like, that's, that's not that loud. And then once they start talking, and he goes, Alma, can you stop making so much noise? And then she goes, I'm not making noise. And then she keeps buttering her bread. Then the sound is normal. It's not, it's at a normal volume, and I think that it's, it's very subtle. But I think that is Reynolds's perspective of how he actually hears it, because if that is actually how loud she was, that's crazy. That's super loud. But 
that's not actually how that, that was. That was it's just skewed from Reynolds's perspective. It's sort of the same thing in Punch Drunk Love, where the world around Barry doesn't make sense because it he's very socially awkward and anxious and he doesn't understand it. And but th- with this, it's just an exaggeration of things going on around him. The same thing. The same thing happens in maybe the funniest scene in the movie to me, where it's after they get married, and they go to their honeymoon in the Alps, and she starts to. She starts. She's eating like porridge or oatmeal or something, and she's using her teeth to get it so she doesn't mess up her lipstick. But she's slurping, and you just see. Ren- and they just got married, right? Yeah. And Reynolds does the, the be- maybe the best piece of acting in the movie. Reynolds does this. He like huffs and puffs, and he's like, you could tell that he's regretting marrying her. He just yeah. goes, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's excellent. I think it's hilarious. But I don't think that she's actually slurping in that scene because on their first date. She does the. She eats that custard sauce shit in the same manner, where she's has her teeth to not mess up her lipstick. But there's no slurping, and he's watching her very closely, and there's no slurping. But now they're slurping because his OCD is getting triggered, yeah. right? And then another scene which doesn't have enough as, as much evidence as those two instances do of being, uh, I guess exaggerations by Reynolds' OCD or irritability, comes when they're playing backgammon, backgammon, in that at that party. Uh, thrown by Henrietta, and you we see her shake the thing for like ten seconds, and he goes, "I think they're good and well and shaking now, idiot." He didn't say idiot. I added that, and she goes, "Whatever," and she rolls him. It's quite. It's you know, there's no evidence to suggest otherwise, but I think it's possible that Reynolds also she was only shaking it for like two seconds, and Reynolds was like, "Come on, come on, let's go." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That all all the things that you just said about Reynolds is one of the reasons why I didn't like him as a character. Really? You didn't like him at all? No, no, I like... Oh, okay. I know he's an excellent character, but he's very unredeemable. He has very unredeemable qualities about him that, you know, he he's narcissistic, for sure. I'm, not, I'm no doctor, but he's very self-centered, and he gaslights every all the women in the movie, basically. Alma, mostly, obviously. Uh, but it's interesting because the person who sticks with him the most is Alma, and she can handle it the most, right? By far, you know. Well, you were telling me there were basically you're watching a a toxic two toxic people agree to a a toxic mm. relationship. Yeah, yeah. That's, that they make work. Mm-hmm, that's a full manifestation of a incredibly toxic relationship, right? But that's, also, do you think it could just be? A, not, not a microcosm, but maybe a metaphor or symbolism for just what it takes to make a relationship, any relationship work like that? Like, you have to die a little bit or give a piece of yourself. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean... Have you considered the fact that you're dead wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what the heck? <laughs> no, I mean, I do think that there are parts of that that are true, but... I mean, to the extent where you're accepting that your partner is poisoning you. Yeah. It's interesting because what I said about how he exaggerates these banal things, he also does that with these very petty situations where there's a scene where, uh, what's her name? Alma (laughs) comes into the breakfast room and she says hi to Cyril and Cyril smiles and then you see Cyril's face go white like she's about to tell Reynolds that somebody just... They're that they're you know somebody just died, mm-hmm. and then she goes. There's a good chance that Barbara Rose will invite you to her your, her wedding, and he's like, "That's very very disconcerting." 
much entirely too much for breakfast or whatever. Yeah, I wish you had waited to tell me that. So funny. There's another mm-hmm. scene where well, the, the scene when she when she throws the surprise for him, and he goes, he goes, I'm eating. He goes, you know very well that I prefer my asparagus with oil and salt, uh, and knowing this, you've chosen to prepare it with butter. And right now, I'm just admiring my own gallantry for eating this dish the way you've prepared it. You know, do you have a gun? Are you here to kill me? Are you yeah. here to ruin my evening and quite possibly my entire life? Yeah. The most insane things to say. The last thing I'll say is that when he goes, there's an air of quiet death in this house, and I do not like the way it smells. The most dr- dramatic, petty yeah. bo- bullshit, and it's hilarious. But at the same time, we can laugh at him at, at things like that, but then we can also laugh with him in other scenes. We also can get angry with him. We can also understand him and how much of a psycho he is about these dresses. There's a sh- there's a shot during the first fashion show where he's getting everybody ready backstage, and then he looks through the peephole of the door, and and uh, PTA takes a shot right out of Psycho by Hitchcock, where he looks through the door, and, and an audience in the know of what that shot is can be suggesting that, oh, he's a psycho about his dresses. But then you also cry with him. When he gets sick for the first time, when he gets poisoned for the first time, and he sees the vision of his mother, yeah. and he goes, are you here? Are you always here? He's an incredibly complex character. That's very hard to do, to laugh at a character, but also cry with him. Mm-hmm. That's very, very complicated. Right. What, did you, what did you sense or get from allusions to Alma's backstory? Um, or what well, her deal is? Her, her, in, honestly... That's something I haven't put much thought into, but judging by the fact that she's sort of willing to just leave and go with him, there must not be much holding her, you know? And in terms of how comfortable she seems in some of the situations that he puts her in, almost immediately... He's he's already measuring her and putting and then uh, yes. Cyril shows up shows up and is just he doesn't say there. hey this is my sister he's like all of a they're on a date and all of a sudden he's he, yeah that all of a sudden he's just working yeah. and um yeah but in terms of her uh, almost background I got the sense that there must not have been much holding her because I don't know if there's much mention of her family mm-hmm. in general there's. There's one hint that we get that suggests her backstory. And I think there was also a scene where they kind of explained it a little bit and they cut it out. Mm. I've read the script, but I forget if it's in the script. And there's a scene where Barbara Rose and her husband from the Dominican Republic, there's a press conference before their wedding. Mm. And somebody, one of the reporters asks the husband, what did you do? Or Barbara, what did you do? Blah, blah, blah. For business, and somebody suggests selling visas to the Jews, and all of a sudden, the movie cuts to Alma in a close-up, and she gives like a reaction, and she's not the main subject or character in that scene. We didn't even know she was in that scene. I'm pretty sure until that shot, and that cues us into some sort of hint or suggestion that maybe she had to flee Germany because mm. I think she's. I mean, she's not. She's from Luxem- Luxembourg. Was that in Germany? I don't know where that is. It's close. Close. So she's she's around. She's in Central Europe. Probably a place you would have wanted to flee. Yeah. So that suggests that she had to flee, and maybe she saw some shit, 
during World War II or during the Holocaust, but also suggests that it gives her a reason to why she stick, she's so determined to stick around because she has... I, I actually find, from this rewatch of it, I actually found, instead of her relationship to be like a purely love relationship, I also found an aspect to it where it's her trying to survive, where she has this grit and this determination to survive and make this relationship survive. Not that not that she's only doing it because of that. Like I think she does love him, and but she's just very determined. She's not gonna because we see her when I, I mentioned that woman Joanna, and then we see Alma in the same position, and she's framed geographically in the same shot, and we know that she's about to do something that's gonna mess up Reynolds's breakfast. That's that's part of the tension of the scene. So it sets her up as this her being another girl in her in his life, but obviously she has to do. There's something different about her, which is going to make her stick around and not just have, not just have Reynolds's women in his life just be existing in a revolving door. She's going to, she's determined to stick around. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's a, sort of something like that. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for six Oscars: Best Picture, Best Directing, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Original Score, and Best Costume Design, which it won. I mean, I think Reynolds Woodcock would probably manifest in physical reality if this movie didn't win best costume design. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, would have been, that would have been a funny bit to do. If I mean, it would have ruined the guy's win, but if Phantom Thread didn't win and then Daniel Day-Lewis dresses Reynolds <laughs> Woodcock, like, this is entirely wrong. This is entirely There's an air of quiet death at these awards, <laughs> and I do not like the way it smells. <laughs> Licorice Pizza, 2021. The genesis of Licorice Pizza seemed to have come from a few different sources, but the movie is primarily based on the teenage years of movie producer Gary Goetzman. Goetzman. You you went to Getz Middle School, and you called it Goetzman? Licorice Pizza. No, no, I'm keeping that in. We're keeping that in. Anyway, so... So obviously Gary Gessman was Paul Thomas Anderson was friends with him and he would always tell him stories out of the blue. He'd just go, "Hey, did I ever tell you the time I got arrested for murder?" And he goes, "What?" And then so there was a lot of stories that were that informed Licorice Pizza, but also another thing that started the kernel of the idea for Paul Thomas Anderson was this woman Alana Heim or Haim, who's part of a band that he does music videos for, and he just had her. He just knew that he wanted to put her in the movie, and or in a movie, and. Then the other idea was Paul Thomas Anderson was walking around his neighborhood. I think he just moved to another neighborhood, or he just happened to be walking by. And he saw this younger kid, maybe 14 or whatever, trying to convince this older girl to go out with him. Mm. And he was just thinking... It was sort of like similar to the, the genesis of the idea for Phantom Thread. And he just pictured a younger man, a boy and an older girl... And he just went, what if the older girl just went out with decided to said yes and decided to go out with him? And then he those three ideas he basically morphed into licorice pizza. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After Anderson wrote producer John Peters into the script, he met with Peters to ask for his blessing. Yeah, so John Peters was a famous movie producer, and he originally started out as a hairdresser. And he was I don't know if he was married, but he was dating Barbara Streisand for a time, and he was the producer behind A Star is Born. Not the new one that came out with Freddie Cooper, but the previous one. And so Anderson goes to... And in the, in the script, he wrote him as this crazy maniac, which I guess he may have been. He was on 
John Peters was on Rogan, and I never met the guy, but it seemed like everything that Rogan talked about, he'd be like, yeah, so when UFC started, it was pretty crazy. And then John Peters goes, yeah, we started that. Uh, what do you mean we? Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know a lot about this guy. Maybe he did, but he seemed very, you know, vain, I guess. I don't know the right word. I'm sure he's a nice guy. Anyway, so Paul Thomas Anderson goes to his house and goes, look, here's this. He goes, I don't, I don't want to read the script. Just tell me what it's about. So he tells him, and then he tells him about the scene where Bradley Cooper goes, uh, if you fuck up my house, I'm going to kill you. Is that your brother? Yeah, I'll fucking choke your brother out in front of you if you fuck up my house. <laughs> yeah. And while he was describing that scene, he saw the light in John Peters' eyes go out. And he goes, what do you think? And he goes, he goes, this girl that he's with, how old How old is she? He's like, he's like in her 20s or whatever. And he goes, what is she, attractive? He goes, yeah, she's beautiful. And he goes, I don't know if I would yell at her. I would try to fuck her. <laughs> and he goes, actually, that's a better idea. So yeah. he said, okay. So then that they got, you know, they talked. And then as he was going out the door, John Peters goes, also, you got to do one more favor for me. And he goes, what's that? He goes, you got to get my pickup line in there. And he goes, what's that? He goes, I would go up to a girl and I would just ask, do you like peanut butter sandwiches? And he goes, that would work? And he goes, yeah, it would work. They'd laugh and we start talking. So he puts it in the movie when those two tennis girls walk by when, when Alana's sitting on the on the pavement. So, yeah, yes. that, that's like iconic. <laughs> I remember seeing that. Yeah, don't try it in real life. It doesn't work. You would know. <laughs> <laughs> Anderson saw hundreds of actors auditioning for the role of Gary, but couldn't find an actor that felt right for the part. You said Gary with such disdain. Hundreds of actors for the role of Gary. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, so he yeah he saw all these directors and he goes some of them were great but there was something missing some real charisma rather than this charisma that they're acting you know and he goes I so then I went to Cooper Hoffman who I had known since he was born since he was a day old and I asked him to read the script and he kind of knew what was going on do you know what Cooper Hoffman is. I guess uh, the the kid in the movie. Yeah, I don't know him. He's Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. Oh, oh my God! I didn't even put that together. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Was he a, was he an actor before? No. That? He only wow. the only time he acted would be in home movies that Paul would make with his kids and I guess Hoffman's kids. Mm-hmm. There was a movie where there was a movie they made where. Mission Impossible Fallout came out, and they all saw that, and they were like, this is awesome. So they filmed a fight scene where Cooper falls off a cliff. <laughs> oh, that's so good. And um, so, yeah, so he so Cooper read for it, and Cooper goes, are you going to put me in this movie? And he goes, just, just read the script. Just don't even worry about it. And then he had Cooper and Alana just read through the script and go through the script together and had them walk around different parts of town and, and do some scenes. And then he eventually cast two leads in his movie, people who have never acted before. That's nuts. It's insane. Has has he done any other roles since then? Or he uh, he just recently got a part in a big movie. I, for, oh, I have to okay. look it up, but I forget. Mm-hmm. It's funny that he he's just he goes. Are you gonna put me in this? Like I know I'm gonna be a good. My, you know my dad is. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know who my dad is, dude. but it is because when you watch the movie, you don't get the sense that neither of them have acted before. No, it's very. That's 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 obviously something that's impressive to me. Mm-hmm. But I actually I listened to some things about him talking about them as actors, and he's it seemed as though they had a lot of time to prepare. Yeah, they were together practicing and or rehearsing. You would call it practicing, rehearsing doesn't matter for the movie for a really long time. And then COVID hit, 
So the movie was delayed from May 2020. Filming was delayed from May 2020 to August 2020. So that gave them an extra, you do the math, months to rehearse their lines. And he made them recite because he told them, one of the big things he talked about was, look, you guys are young, especially Cooper. He's like, I think he was like 15 at the time, maybe. And he goes, you're young. So right now you're going to put off figuring out the scenes and figuring out the script until maybe the night before. That seems like a good idea now, but you are going to be so tired at the end of every day that you will not have time to do it. Please memorize everything now, and then you'll know what to do when the time comes. And he was like, it's just that, like, when's the last time you ate? Are you getting tired? Okay, Cooper wakes up at 11. He's cranky in the morning, so try to get his scenes later in the day. Stuff like that. It was very practical stuff like that. Filming the movie... When I hear Anderson talk about it, it seems like it was just. I do think it. This will get. We'll get into this in a later review, but I. I do think it's a little bit too not esoteric, but too personal to the point where the point of it may be lost on a mainstream audience or somebody who's outside of that personality or whatever, because it feels like a giant home movie, and the way they filmed it is basically people's kids were in it. And it was during COVID, so they kind of had to scramble a little bit. The budget was inflated a little. But they, after every day, every day they would go to Anderson's house and project dailies on film. And everybody would watch dailies. That's cool. And his kids would just watch, and everybody would hang out. It seemed like a cool time. Yeah. So Licorice Pizza was released nationwide on Christmas 2021 and received positive reviews from critics and ultimately poor box office, earning $33 million worldwide off a $40 million budget. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that like I I like Liquor's Pizza, but it really made me yearn for Paul Thomas Anderson to do something more commercial. Mm-hmm. Now, not even commercial. Like I don't want him to do a two hundred million dollar movie. I w- I still want him to be Paul Thomas Anderson, but I want him to make something closer to Boogie Nights. There will be blood and Phantom Thread. I do think movies like Inherent Vice and The Master are interesting, but I would like I like the I like the bonus. I like people operating. We talked about this with Kubrick. I like people operating or directors operating to be able to do very intellectual things with with movies and push the genre while also appealing to the mainstream audience. It's a very hard thing to do, and and he's done it before. But for me, I think we talked about the movie becoming per too like a little too personal feeling. It came out during an era where nostalgia felt like it was in fashion. So and I think this started with Alfonso Cuarón's Roma in 2018, which was basically inspired by his childhood. Then we had Belfast, which is Kenneth Branagh's childhood movie. Mm-hmm. Then there was The Fablemans, which was Steven Spielberg's childhood movie. And then it, once upon a time, time in Hollywood, you sort of could lump into those. I think you can too, because it still is personal to him. And, and also in the in the I mean, this is an interpretation. Uh, this doesn't count for interpretation of the movie, but in the book inherent uh, inherent vice in the book Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that he wrote, there's a scene where his dad and Rick Dalton or somebody talk about Quentin Tarantino, and I think Licorice Pizza also can fall under that category of these personal director nostalgia movies because obviously in 1973 is when the movie takes place or around there, and Anderson's three when that happens, so he didn't live through these events, but the events seem very personal enough to him. Where it feels nostalgic, and I, and I think I think that era in movies that I think is hopefully over, is I think it was kind of hit and miss. Like something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a hit. Roma was a hit critically, 
but I, you know, mainstream audiences, whatever. Belfast, same thing. Fablemans, it bombed. Sort of the same thing. Other nostalgia things you can say would be like No Way Home, Spider-Man No Way Home. But then you have other things that Marvel's done with nostalgia that just feel really cheap. Yeah. They've done a lot with yeah. nostalgia. I, 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 don't, I don't find... I think the problem with Flickr's Pizza is, I don't like I said earlier, I don't find Alana and Gary that compelling as lead characters. The only thing I really find interesting in Gary Alana's relationship is the rift in their age difference. So, like, when they first meet, obviously Gary really wants to date Alana, and Alana's sort of apprehensive, but she's, oh, maybe I'll... Whatever, she's kind of flirting with him a little bit. And then they, you know, they go on the plane because Gary has to go to some event for an acting thing but he needs a, an adult chaperone, so he asks Alana to go. And they go on the plane, and Gary's very flirtatious. And then Lance shows up. And she, Lance is somebody who's probably closer to being as old as she is than Gary is to Lance. And she decides to go with Lance. She is, she's she's she prefers the prospect of somebody her own age. Gary does the same thing when... That woman, that girl Sue Pomerantz, who's at Gary's age, shows up, and suddenly when Gary and Alana were very flirty and stuff, all of a sudden Sue Pomerantz shows up and Gary's like, "Oh no, Alana's just my babysitter. Shut up, don't even worry about her. She's dumb." And so that's very interesting, and that spawns a lot of conflict in their relationship. But also after their big business boom with the waterbeds. And after the scene I just described when Gary hooks up with Sue Pomerantz, they're sitting at a diner. And this also highlights their difference in priorities as a teenager and an adult. So Alana's reading the actual newspaper. And Gary's reading, like, the porno version of the newspaper. And then on the TV, Richard Nixon shows up and goes, we, well, uh, we're going to have to not have oil for a while. We're just going to have to cut down and whatever. And Alana goes, Gary, are you hearing this? And he goes, what? No, oh, oh, yeah, crazy oil embargo. And she goes, do you know what this means? And he goes, no. And she goes, what? We're, we're, like, we can't sell our water beds anymore. It's an oil embargo. And he goes, they're not made of oil. I thought they were made of rubber or something. He goes, that's oil, dipshit. And so he, it, 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 you know, it speaks to her. She's at that age where she has that Jesus complex that everybody has, where I'm young and I'm going to save the world. And he ha- he's still ignorant and doesn't care. He just, I just want to hustle as a, as a little kid. But then this starts the best sequence of the movie, I think. And I, part of me wishes it, it's, it's easy to look at a movie and go, that should have been the whole thing, to point at the best thing and go make it the whole thing. Yeah. But it's the sequence where the, the, there's the oil embargo, and there's the, we're watching this semi apocalyptic LA where everybody's off the streets and there's all the cars don't have any gas and nobody's driving around. And, the rules, now it's period L.A., but the rules are different. We haven't seen anything like this before in a movie. And they go to John Peter's house. John Peter's goes, I'm going to choke your brother out in front of you if you yeah. mess up my house. And then they do that whole thing of John Peter's is super scary. I'll get to that later. John, John Peter's is super scary. And they go through, they drop him off at the gas station. And then they go back, they beat up his car. Then the, tr- the truck runs out of gas. Alana has to, without gas, like drive the truck backwards downhill. Super dangerous. She's freaking out. They're all serious. 
and finally they get out of it alive. They almost died. Mm-hmm. And she's realizing, oh my God, I just died hanging out with a 15 year old. And Gary's going, woo, Alana, that was awesome. And then that cuts to her sitting on the curb. And she's basically realizing, like, what am I doing? I really have to stop. I think it's the most interesting character beat for her in the movie. Like, what am I doing? I just really have to, let me just do something that matters. And then she sees the the poster for Joel Wax. And Joel Wax is an interesting character. I'm going to ask you what you remember about him. But he was played by Benny Safdie, who's one of the directors of Uncut Gems. And at first, I was thinking, is Benny Safdie just not that good of an actor? Hmm. Because he seemed very rigid and uncomfortable and I didn't really buy his performance and then it gets to the part where Alana gets invited out to dinner with him and she finds out that he's actually there with his gay lover and they need she needs to pretend like she's the gay lover's boyfriend because that reporter with the number 12 jersey if you remember that guy was there looking because I, th- I think he was a reporter. It's, it's kind of sketchy. I don't know who yeah, exactly he's just he was. A weird guy, right? Right, and he. See, I think he saw him and goes, "Yeah, he's trying to out me as a gay guy." So Alana goes and brings the guy home. Also, wait, but also, Joel Wax is a gay guy, and it's and that's where I'm like, oh, that's why he's so uncomfortable and rigid all the time because he t- he tells the guy his lover goes, "You know how uncomfortable I am every day," and then that's and when he says that line, I realize his body language seems genuine. Yeah, yeah. Or is it he's finally able to just be a person, you know? And then as soon as he goes back into being Joel Wax, he goes, all right, thank you guys for coming by, like pretending that he's just he's there just his friends. And that, that I thought that was a great performance. Anyway, back to Alana. She brings the lover home and realizes these guys are in love and they can't really be together. I why, what am I what am I doing not being with Gary right now? And then she goes back and falls in love with Gary, or falls in love with Gary again, or they they re, they reunite. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm sorry, I'm going on. Gary has an interesting thing about being bullied, where this is the, the the thing I think that's most interesting about his character, where every time he's confronted with somebody bigger than him, he always turns super shy and quiet. But anytime he's facing somebody his age or or younger. He is very charismatic and outgoing. So when they go, when they're on the plane, and he's flirting with her, like, "Damn, this takes good, huh? Yeah, I'm cool as fuck." And then the 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 stewardess Brenda shows up. She goes, "Are you an actor?" And he's like, "Hey, Brenda, what's going on? I'm you're hot. I'm hot. Let's do this." Mm-hmm. And he's flirting with her super casually. And then Lance comes over, who's a little cool, older and cooler than him, and he just goes white and doesn't say anything. He's like, "Hey, Gary, what's going on?" He's like, "Hey, what's going yeah, yeah." And then on the on the flight back, Lance kind of invades their personal space, and Gary can't really fight back against him. Then later, when Bradley Cooper, when John Peters shows up, when he's t- yelling at him, like, I'll choke your brother out in front of you. He's like, yes, sir. I won't I won't mess up your house. And then he goes, and then they're f- filling up the waterbed, and he goes, he tried to, str- he said he'd strangled Greg or kill him. And then he goes, screw this, and he starts, he ruins his house. He takes the, the hose out and gets water everywhere. And then on a the drive back, he's going to Alana to impress her. I mean, I wanted to say something. I was going to... I mean, you know what I should have said to him? I'll kick your ass, dude. He's acting all tough. And then in one of the funniest shots of all time, the 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 truck just stops, and they look, and John Peters is just, is just marching up the road <laughs> at night, and like his, his, his white outfit is just bellowing in the... 
in the air in the air, and it looks it's so funny. He just walks in and goes, "All right, take me back. Just reverse it, <laughs> like just yeah. wordlessly." And they ju- then obviously they're like, "Oh shit!" And mm. as soon as he gets in the car, Gary just goes white. And then they spend the entire drive like with quiet. with yeah. Gary spends the entire drive like this, and John Peters is flirting with Alana the whole time. They get back to the house, and he says the funniest line in the movie: "There's no gas hole in the goddamn car, Steve-o! <laughs> So good, and, and hit, that sequence reminded me of the cocaine energy from Boogie Nights. It's so funny. I don't need that in every Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but it was nice to see it come back. And then obviously they drop him off again, and then Gary goes back to being a tough guy and beats up his windshield, and then they run out of gas. And then later, if you, I think you'll remember this guy. There's when he, that, during the grand opening of the Pinball Palace, Gary it, sees a guy, an older guy, like humping the machine. And he goes, hey, you're going to break the machine. Stop humping it. And he goes, I'm telling you to fuck off, pal. And Gary's just like, uh. Yeah. He, doesn't say, he doesn't have a comeback. And he just goes up to some random little kid and goes, all right, that's it. You're out of here. The kid's like, what? <laughs> he, he just kicks, kicks him out. Him. And then he yells at some other kids that are pulling up. He goes, bike's on the side. You're blocking the entrance. Get out. Mm-hmm. And also, that's the guy. If you remember that later, there's a later scene where Gary runs out of the place. And you can see the guy who's humping the machine. And he's, there's a girl in front of him in between him and the machine. <laughs> so he's just humping a girl and humping the machine at the same time. <laughs> but so Gary has a weird thing like that. Mm. And I think that's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's like the bit, you know, the most interesting thing to talk about about the movie. But again, I don't find this movie that interesting compared to Anderson's other movies. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about this movie that you remember? We saw this in the theater together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember really enjoying it the first time I saw it. Mm. Remember one thing that stuck out to me that you pointed out was at the end, the running sequence? Yes. Maybe not. The, was it the yep. end? Yep. What What was it about that that was so interesting? To was it when they were coming back together at the end and they cut to yeah. their respective moments of when they showed some genuine care for each other? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was good. Yeah, that was good. It it just seems it seems like you said uh nosta- like nostalgia driven. Mm-hmm. It's like a love letter to that area from Paul Thomas Anderson. Like he just he, he he's talking or he's pointing out some certain aspects that he liked about where he grew up. You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um it's like <laughs> it's not I don't I don't mean this badly. It's like a self-indulgent exercise sort of. <clears throat> Um, I did think it was it was interesting. I, I remember watching it and thinking, uh, Gary is his name. You said uh, I, I remember watching it and thinking, Gary is interesting in the way that he's so young and making big money moves that he's making. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that goes back to the the contrast in him and Alana's personalities. Because mm-hmm. I mentioned, you know, obviously Alana's older and stuff, but there is an aspect to them where Gary is older for his age and Alana is younger for her age. And let's say she's 25. Her, her, she keeps claiming she's different ages throughout the movie. But she just wants to hang out with Gary and his 15-year-old friends. And Gary, all he wants to do is just set up businesses and, you know, and diversify and set up an Instagram businessman account. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's the, he would be... Oh, my God. He'd be following so much of those. Yeah. But also, I don't think if Anderson intended to just go out and be like, oh, I'm going to make this in the 70s, blah, blah, blah. Because he started writing this going, all right, so we got to, I have Gary. He's a very business oriented kid. All right, so what a kid, can a kid do this day in, in age? He starts a YouTube channel. He's like, well, that's not very, like, you know, entertaining for a movie, just that kid doing a YouTube channel. Yeah. So then he's like, shit, am I going to have to do another period piece? Because he's done like six in a row. 
Two scenes involving a character doing a stereotypical Asian accent sparked controversy. Do you remember these two scenes? I don't. So there's a scene, Gary and his mom do marketing, sort of, for local businesses, and they're mm-hmm. describing the menu, or I guess a summary of the restaurant. And the husband has this Asian wife. They have an Asian restaurant. The husband is white, played by Jerry Michael Higgins, I think is his name. And the the wife is Asian. And some, and the, the mom is reading out the pamphlet. And she goes, also, our little porcelain doll waitresses do this. And you see the, the woman's smile disappear, right? And then, at, then they, John Michael Higgins and the mom talk about the menu. And then I'm not going to do the accent because I, w- I would like to keep continuing to do this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he does an Asian accent to her, and then she says something back, and then he goes, yeah, we don't like the porcelain doll thing, but then everything else is, is good. And then the, the scene happens later where there's another... He's with another Asian lady, and then he does the same thing again. He goes, and, he goes, and she go, they go, what did she say? And he goes, I don't know. I don't speak Japanese, right? Now, people said that those scenes are racist because it's played for laughs, right? It is, but I think that, especially the first scene... I think the reason it's funny is because the joke is on the guy being racist, not that she's being racismed against, if that's a phrase, right? Mm-hmm. And because what because what that scene that's a, that the, the very important part of that scene is where we're cued into that woman's reaction to hearing porcelain doll. So now we're from her perspective because the porcelain doll is like a saying the porcelain doll waitress is sort of a I guess it's a vaguely racist thing, yeah, right. And so that cues us into her perspective. So meaning we're not here to laugh at her. We're witnessing her, you know, experience this racism, racism or whatever. The guy who's the villain or the wrongdoer and the guy we're laughing at in the scene, at least from my perspective, is the white guy. Now, there's there's an Asian guy in my writer's group named Takio. He told me he didn't like that. I'm not going to argue. I'm like... I'm not, it's a subjective thing. I don't. I didn't feel that way personally. He did that. Fair enough. He did. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, but that's just my opinion on it. I don't, people were calling for the movie to be to not be nominated, but you know, I think there was like an Asian organization, like a, the Network for Asian Actors, something like that. Which is, I'm not gonna sit here and go, "This is crazy. This is getting way out of whack, and this is bullshit." But I'm. It's a. It's like a. It's a thing that exists in the movie that's obviously gonna cause some controversy. So I guess that finishes the dossier on Paul. Dan, Tom- you ignorant slut. Well, there's one more movie we need to talk about, which which is the untitled Paul Thomas Anderson movie that is currently in production as of January 27th, 2024. Mm. Damn. It started shooting 6 days ago. It's described the budget's 100 million dollars, which is Anderson's biggest budget by a factor of like two and a half if you don't adjust for inflation. And it was described as his most commercial movie yet. Ooh. Remember I said Licorice Pizza gave me a desire to want to see a more commercial. This is interesting. Do you know anything about this? No, no. This Leonardo is DiCaprio is going to star. Oh, no, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sean Penn, Regina Hall. And they started filming. There was the, I don't, there's no, nobody knows anything about the plot. People were speculating that it could be Vineland, which is another Thomas Pynchon novel. And people are saying maybe he's, because it is contemporary. It's going to be his first contemporary movie since... Punch Drunk Love. Mm. And people are speculating that it, it could be Vineland. Vineland takes place in like the Reagan era, uh, 1980s US of A. 
don't know why I said U.S. of A like that. That's weird. But, <laughs> but people are speculating that he's going to translate it or transpose it to modern-day America. I don't know. You know, I said it's something more commercial. Inherent Vice wasn't very commercial. I don't, I've never read Violin. Maybe it would be more commercial. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's an entirely original screenplay that he wrote. I don't know. But I saw there was somewhere in Eureka, California, where they're filming where it's... I guess it has a lot of high plains and some mountains in the background. It's very foggy. They were, somebody took a video recently of them shooting the movie at like a small airport. Mm. And there's a black helicopter in what looks like government vehicles. Mm. So I don't know what kind of... People are speculating that it could be sort of like a political commentary... Com- comedy. Jesus Christ. It's, uh, it's, it's one o'clock right now. We're dead tired. Yeah, yeah. A political comedy about maybe the drug trade in around that area. I don't know. But it's very interesting. That's all the details we know for now. Or what if it's about UFO documents? Ooh. <laughs> deep cut for people who know what yeah. that is a reference to. How about this? I want to know more about this movie, and I'm sure you know do. So people from the future who know the details about this movie, can you please comment and tell us what is going on and what mm, the plot is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what the title is going to be and also if it's good or if you've seen it or not and how many Oscars it won and also send us a copy yes yeah this is a good was this a good one let us know who would you like to to see us do next not sexually <laughs> you can't say, you just say that what do you mean time. I have to clarify <laughs> I think they know <laughs> all right all thanks right. for watching really if you if you're here holy shit Thanks for watching. We know there's some of you out there apparently watching, which we really, really appreciate it. Thank you to everybody who watched the Stanley Kubrick episode. And we will see you in the next one, which is... We don't know yet. Stay tuned. Bye. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.